Paramount uh, interested me in this one. They said, it's impossible to do again. At which point my ears perked up. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 25 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm continuing the full series review that started in the Monster uh, episode 8, in which I reviewed all of the original series, then uh, episode 17, in which I did the same with the animated series and original cast movies. So now it's the next generation's turn. Uh, don't worry. We won't do the whole series in one go, just the first half. Everything from Encounter at Farpoint to Devil's Do uh, in the middle of the fourth season. Okay, maybe you need to worry anyway. Uh, much of this is adapted from daily reviews at Cisco's blog of Geekery, but you'll also get second opinions from across the podcasting community chiming in at intervals. Ready? Well, press pause if not, because otherwise... Engage. We start with Encounter at Farpoint, um, but where to begin? Because this is a new series and we have to address this. Uh, how about the opening? Uh, they start cold with those timeless words, uh, with one crucial PC change, uh, over very nice renderings of planets in our solar system as we leave it. We're into it now. Not sure about the motion picture theme being used, and the incidental music throughout was rather intrusive for me. But anyway... Then we see the new Enterprise. We're used to it now, but still I remember my reaction from 1987. The Enterprise D looked really warped, no pun intended, all curvy and top-heavy. Uh, the interiors are huge and just as curvy and non-threatening. took me a while to accept it, and you know what? I think it looks dated now. Uh, beige and dusty rows dominate with huge empty floor plans that belie a studio floor. And plush comfy chairs too, truly a product of the PC 80s. The trend continues with the idea of having families aboard, one that Picard isn't too sure about, and neither am I. It seems ill thought for an exploration ship, despite the saucer separation concept. We're not going to see it very often anyway because it breaks the Enterprise's curves and makes it look like a duck. Better PC ideas include making the captain a non-American and having a Klingon on the bridge. Things have changed in the last 70 years. Less interesting PC ideas is having a counselor as part of the bridge crew. Technobabble move over, leave room for psychobabble. It does say something interesting about Picard's style and this era of Starfleet, but I'm sort of prefiguring the execution of it. And what about this new cast of characters? Though their characterization isn't always solid, I thought Picard's command style was really very interesting here. He's gruff, cold, and pushy, and he quite consciously lets Riker be genial and make friends with the crew. Definitely a dynamic to watch. Data's a bit jolly, but he makes for a refreshing twist on Spock. Logical and machine-like, but naive and innocent. The irony of a blind man at the helm of the ship is, frankly, a one-trick pony, in my opinion. But Geordi is more of an all-purpose away team member here. 
So it doesn't really show. The female characters are far less engaging. Uh, Tasha is much too aggressive to the point of being stupid. She and Worf spend the whole show trying to shoot at a godlike being. And Troy is the exact opposite. Demure and rather sappy. I understand she was overwhelmed by alien emotions, but it just impaired her performance here. And her past relationship with Riker is just copied straight from the motion picture, drawing a yawn out of me. As for Dr. Crusher, she has the potential to be a more complex character, but gets nothing more to do in the pilot than be the protective mother. Wesley is precocious, but thankfully not overly present, highlighting Picard's discomfort around children. As a minor aside, Kalmini makes an appearance here, so do you think he knew what he was in for? But no chief engineer? That's a twist. So when I look at all the superpowers represented in the crew, I have a feeling the creators may have written themselves into a, a bunch of corners. Will they really have the Enterprise jettison the saucer every time danger looms? Will Troy's empathy make it hard to use deceptive villains? Geordi's special perception, Data's super strength and mind? Those will limit the amount of jeopardy the crew might find itself in. No chief engineer in the cast could also pose problems. Cooler technological tricks include uh, faster transporters, ubiquitous communicators, and the holodeck. These are fine at this point, and give us a sense that technology has advanced since the movie era. So about half the characters have real promise, and the new environment looks glossy, but... Are they plugged into a good plot? For a two-hour premiere, dividing the action between two dangers was quite a good idea. Q is immediately magnetic, played much more dangerously than his obvious ancestor, Trelane. I've always found the Q-net impressive, and the court scenes, in addition to adding to the Star Trek universe's history, show off Picard as quite a good negotiator and lawyer. Q may be a little too helpful at the end, but his heckling of Picard is a highlight nonetheless. As for the Farpoint element, it's not as engaging, but features fair to good design, and its resolution is pretty and lyrical. And check it out, the Ferengi get mentioned for the first time. With Admiral McCoy's little cameo charmingly played, though rather fortuitous, we get an obvious passing of the torch, a nice moment. The rest of the show works a little too hard to herald a new era in Star Trek, with Picard telling Riker most adventures would be much more interesting than this one, for example. Hmm. Or Riker saying that Data will make an interesting companion. Not to mention Q's tests, which are a metaphor for the audience's judgment. These seem quite self-serving and self-conscious. There is the sense that the show is uh, hopeful, that it will be able to recapture the magic of Star Trek, but at the same time, the script is a little nervous about that. Obviously, this will be, uh, we'll give this a high rewatchability uh, factor. We're using rewatchability because we've all seen these episodes countless times, or maybe at least once. So it's all about rewatching for us. This one, despite its missteps, is still vibrant with energy, and there's real joy in reinventing the format. New characters, new technologies, new effects, new relationships, a new enemy. Uh, Hey, it's true, he never says the test is over, by the way, so keep watch for that by the end of the series. They all start here, and the story is solid enough for that recommendation. I'm an old dog. How old do you think I am anyway? You know, I've seen these many times. What about a newbie? What about someone coming to the series fresh today? And that's Ryan Daly. Uh, let's hear what he thought in this, his first real contact with 
Star Trek The Next Generation, the TV series. This new series premiered just days after my sixth birthday, and yet I am only watching it for the first time in order to do this review. That's right, my experience with TNG is limited to the movie First Contact and a handful of scattered clips and episode fragments picked up in the wild over the last 30 years. So I asked Siskoid to let me, a lover of the original series as well as the Kelvin timeline films, basically a Kirk and Company fan, to offer a brief Neophytes review of the Next Generation pilot episode. And I'll be honest, coming into this episode cold, there were a lot of moments in the first 10-15 minutes where I wanted to declare hashtag not my Star Trek, mostly centered on the aesthetic design of both the main and battle bridges, as well as the demeanor of our new captain, Jean-Luc Picard. I know this is a beloved character, and with several hundred more episodes in the series, I have no doubt that Picard has room for growth. But after just this first episode, he's possibly my least favorite of the new ensemble. His arrogance seems unfounded, and his hostility toward children, especially precocious Wesley Crusher, it's just off-putting. And seriously, who decided the bridge should be a drab beige color with brown faux leather seats? Is this a futuristic spaceship or a Buickless saber? I don't have much more time, so I'll give quick hits of the things that I did like. First and foremost, new types of crew members. From the android Data, to the empath Deanna Troy, to the uh, whatever the hell LeVar Burton is with his electromagnetic spectrum shades, these are all great new character classes, for lack of a better term, that feel like authentic upgrades or offshoots of what we had in the original series. I also found myself liking Commander Riker a lot more than I expected, and my god does he look young in this episode. As the ship's new first officer brought onto the Enterprise mid-episode, he definitely feels like an anchor for the audience to experience this new brand of Trek with its new rules. And it doesn't hurt that his swagger, his good looks, and his man-of-action style, they feel more Kirk-like than Picard in this one. As for the episode's three guest stars, I can't hear Michael Bell speak without thinking of some of the characters he voiced on my beloved G.I. Joe and Transformers cartoons when I was growing up. That's a good thing. John DeLancey, my god, this guy is so good at being so insufferably annoying. I have seen him in half a dozen shows or movies, and I always just want to punch him in the chest. And bizarrely, that is a positive for the show, too. And finally, wow, the special guest appearance by the 137-year-old Admiral Leonard McCoy, played to perfection by DeForest Kelly. His scene with Data was worth the price of the episode, and I would venture that it's worth the entire series. There is a lot of good in this episode, but I'm not on board with the new Captain yet. Oh, not crazy about the new music yet, either. Next is The Naked Now. Now, two major mistakes make short work of this episode. The first is that it copies much too closely the plot of The Naked Time, but it manages to make it less interesting somehow. The second is that it's way too early in the game to remove the character's inhibitions to reveal something about them. Point of fact, not a lot is revealed, as the actors and writers are still looking for who these people are. Oh, Jordy always wanted sight? Not a big surprise. Where the original series had very different behaviors assigned to each infected character, this cast gets little more than amorous feelings to play. Troy wants Riker, Beverly and Picard want each other, Tasha wants Data. You are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? I am programmed in multiple techniques. A broad 
variety of pleasuring. Oh, you jewel. That's exactly what I hoped. Yeah, yeah, they're going for sexy, but they most often achieve dirty. On the top of that, Data gets drunk, bad characterization, even if it leads to an amusing moment or two. Wesley is not yet intolerable, but his saving the ship with a trick Scotty once used without problems weakens the entire crew. I like McDougal as chief engineer, but her appearance just shows that there should have been a cast member with that job from day one. Uh, Troy's new costume? No, I yeah, I don't like it. On a positive note, the potential relationship between Beverly and Picard is first hinted at here. And watching these early episodes, you almost get the idea Wesley is really Jean-Luc's son. He looks at him much like Kirk first looks at David, if I didn't know any better. Mm. Though the plot is a copy of an earlier episode, I'm glad they at least acknowledge it in the script. More subtly, the same rattling sound accompanies each infection, but it's way more subtle than in The Naked Time. You know, I wish it had been a little clearer, even. Once they were past the point of the simple homage, they might as well have gone for it entirely. So this is a low or a medium. I'd say low for plot and style. There's even some subpar editing. As I was rarely anything but annoyed at this. The only tolerable characters are Beverly and maybe Data and Riker. If I'll concede to a medium, it's because so many things in here are going to pay off later. Picard Crusher, Data Tasha, uh, Data's functionality even. So it is an important episode. Code of Honor. Well, a rather ordinary adventure, but it starts off well enough. As we meet the Ligonians, an honor-based culture that seems to resemble those of China, India, Africa, and North American natives. There are plenty of fun quirks to remind us that these are aliens even if no prosthetic has been applied to their faces, and I find they are well played by the actors involved. It's also refreshing to see a humanoid race of black people, when so many aliens are typically either white or some odd color like green or blue. Picard fares rather well, figuring out the subtext of Lutan's ploy and playing into his psychology. The joke subplot keep Geordi and Data busy, and this is something that will return again and again. Though I doubt Data would ever have a slip of the tongue, it's it's a fun moment nonetheless. I find the Wesley subplot more worrisome, but it's still not a point where I want to tear my hair out. Unfortunately, these are all minor moments. The central character here is Tasha, and I haven't warmed up to this character yet. It doesn't help that Denise Crosby seems outmatched by the material, or perhaps no one can act the line, Troy, I'm your friend and you tricked me. The character is over-aggressive to begin with, and in this back and forth with the Prime Directive, it does nothing to endear herself to the audience. Everything surrounding her place in the plot is dodgy. From Riker's sudden jealousy when Lutan asks her to show him the holodeck, to Troy's so-called trickery. I'm still giving this a medium, worth watching for the interesting alien culture and the various subplots that take root in this episode. The plot isn't bad, but if you can't stand Tasha, you'll probably have problems stomaching much of the story. Let's talk to them. It's been tried. No response. But did we tell them anything they wanted to hear? The last outpost introduces a new enemy for the Federation, but the Ferengi really don't have the same impact the Romulans and Klingons did. They don't let us see them for the first half of the episode, which which I think works to their advantage. To that point, they're fairly impressive. Their ships look cool, they have an unusual weapon, strangely it's not shown with an outside view, and their video communication style is dramatic and fearsome. And at this point, they are attributed various effects actually accomplished by the Takan planet. But still, once you see them in the flesh, 
The expression that comes to mind is, eesh, to quote one of their, their, their species. Uh, the creators just went too far in trying to make them alien, I think. The energy whips are an interesting idea, and basing their culture on capitalism run rampant is certainly worthy, but the extreme pantomime gestures are ridiculous, and much of their attitude just makes them seem stupid. The fact they don't clothe their females is revealed here, again, to make them different, but the idea has never really worked for me. I don't mind that they have a sexist society so much as the idea that they would be surprised and repulsed at clothed females. Have they never conducted trade with any other species at this point? Humans are far from the only well-dressed species. Well, actually, we dress abominably in the future. Watching this with an eye towards marrying this portrayal with later DS9-era material, there's no real contradiction, even if they are so different. At this point, the Ferengi have been avoiding the Federation as a uh, moneyless, dangerous power. The list of crimes spouted off at, to the portal at the end is entirely from the Ferengi perspective and is one of the few scenes with them that works. They make a show of force... They talk about dishonor, say it's not their custom to communicate visually, etc., because they still want to keep the Federation at bay. There's also the disparity between the businessmen seen on DS9 and the privateers seen on TNG. The Ferengi fleet has other methods, it seems, which explains a lot of the differences. Anyway, back to the plot for what it is. Uh, so we have a first half that has some tension, then the letdown of the Ferengi. I also don't care much for the Takan stuff. The planet is sometimes impressive, sometimes on par with what we see in the original series. The portal has some of the worst makeup seen on the series, and its uh, speeded-up battle moves are dreadfully silly. It all ends abruptly after unnecessary grandstanding. If the portal has read all the Enterprise files, why did it even need to test Riker? One point to make is that at this point, the creators really see Riker as the hero of the series, keeping Picard more of a as a, a father figure for the crew. There are a lot of character moments in the last outpost for the rest of the crew, almost all of them bad, apparently because all involved are still feeling their way, I guess. For example, Data's fascination with the Chinese finger puzzle almost comes out of nowhere, even if it makes for an amusing finale. Geordi's jive talking is iffy at best, and here we see him in engineering, coming up with solutions, highlighting once again that a cast member really should be at that post. Beverly calls Picard simply Jean. <laughs> we don't see that a lot. Worf and Tasha are once again bloodthirsty and grating. Saving graces, Wesley is unseen, and Troy has a good showing, though it does seem to weaken Picard as a negotiator. Medium rewatchability on this one, and if it achieves it, it's because of the landmark appearance of the Ferengi. Otherwise, the script is a bit of a mess on multiple levels. Up next, where no one has gone before. It's the best Wesley episode for a couple of reasons. One of which is that it explains why he's such a wonderkind, that he's not just precocious, but he's an actual genius. Though he still remains one of Roddenberry's indulgences, we can now sort of respect his presence. The reason I find it a better episode than most for him, however, is that Will Wheaton underplays it. Aside from some gushing at the end there uh, and a little whining in sickbay, he's mostly concentrating on the mathematical work at hand and seems to be a regular kid watching an adult, the Traveler, do his job. The Traveler himself is a bit ethereal for me, but works fine as an advanced alien. I find great delight in Kaczynski's arrogance and pretentiousness, but once he learns the truth, he sadly becomes the opposite, meek and grateful. You need me? Ugh, it flattens out the character totally. It doesn't at all feel like something the character would do. The crew gets 
Short change with this focus on the boy and his two pals, but that's okay. Note once again the absence of a starring chief engineer. Argyle, one of our chief engineers, uh, is fine, but Riker has to be put in charge of engineering, just so there's someone we know there. Now, the first jump to Galaxy M33 is cool, with lots of known galaxies spinning around, and the space there is gorgeous. It's too bad the ordinary black starfields are less costly, because space could really have been interesting throughout modern Trek. Uh, the edge of the universe, however, makes no real sense. It's weird, but that's all about all it is. I prefer to think they're inside some kind of wormhole, but didn't know where they were, so they never tried to come out, compared to the Bajoran wormhole, for example. Things really start to dribble out for me when the crew starts to let their imaginations take over. For one thing, seeing the dreams of unnamed crew members is just so much padding, and the illusions experienced by the crew aren't all that interesting, except the dramatic scene where Picard almost steps out into space. It's not even consistent. Sometimes the illusions are shared, sometimes they're not, sometimes you're you're totally in your head, whatever. And while Picard giving Wesley encouragement is a well-done scene and logical within the framework of the story, it will lead to more exposure for the character, more chances to get the ship into and out of trouble. It's just that I don't think young Wheaton is up to the task at this point. Medium rewatchability, cool visuals, memorable guest stars, and a destiny for Wesley. But there's a lot of padding with the imagination sequences, and it ends in a sappy way with the crew sending their good vibrations to the traveler. Then there's Lonely Among Us. The entire plot, with the energy alien jumping from body to body, finally settling in Picard and beaming the good captain out for a stroll, is, well, terrible. Uh, though it gives something to do to Troy, hypnosis, and uh, possess Picard unloading on his officers holds some entertainment value, but the whole thing comes off as repetitive and boring. Part of it is that the antagonist is unseen and ends up not being a villain at all. Another reason is that it makes no sense for Starship officers not to have more recourse than that when their captain is clearly possessed. They wait and wait and wait and wait and are totally ineffective. Never mind that the ending requires extreme suspension of disbelief and some technobabble to boot. Now the B-plot with the alien delegates is more entertaining, despite some iffy makeup, but I don't think the light touch given those scenes is appropriate. The ending where Picard shrugs off all responsibility when he learns that a delegate has murdered and cannibalized another is almost as unforgivable as the jokey music that plays over it. The episode reveals Picard's interest in detective fiction, soon to be explored, giving us some, at first, amusing, but ultimately annoying humor derived from Data's emulation of Sherlock Holmes. Well, at least you got rid of the damn pipe. So this is low. Not even the Antikins and Soleil can save this one. It's total rubbish. One of my readers, Matthew Turnage, had this to say, uh, that the episode includes another of Roddenberry's evolved humanity statements that always generates an eye roll from him. Tasha's surprise and disgust that sentient beings would eat fresh meat. I guess Tasha never shared a meal with Worf. Yeah, I mean, she comes from a ghetto planet, uh, so surely she had to scrounge for food, and uh, somehow she's so fussy. We'll have to see if there's actually anything to like about Tasha. Captain's log, stardate 41255.6. Justice. An episode that examines the Prime Directive you know, isn't a bad thing, and you could compare the Edo God to the Bajoran Prophets, if you were so inclined. But aside from an interesting location shoot, a couple of early jokes, thanks to Worf mostly, Picard's discussions with Data, and the well-intentioned motherly feelings coming from Gates McFadden uh, as Dr. Crusher, 
there's little to enliven this episode. Again, there's a sexuality that seems to be pushing it as if the creators are trying to say, this isn't your father's Star Trek. Except the costumes here seem right out of the original series. Pretty embarrassing diapers, actually. There's also something about utopias that just doesn't have the ring of truth. It's all so contrived that on the whole planet, only one area has its laws active and Wesley just happens to stumble into it just as the crew learns that fact. It reflects very poorly on Tasha's legwork, if you ask me. And while the questions about the Prime Directive are interesting, it does seem ridiculous that they should let Wesley be killed over a broken pane of glass, and the whole thing is resolved with one very brief speech. It continues to build Picard the lawyer, something I like, but is all too brief, and I'd even say it's rushed. Centering the whole thing on Wesley also makes some pretty hairy dialogue delivery, as if anyone could deliver his lines believably. Perfectly forgettable fair, I give it a low. I refuse to let arithmetic decide questions like that. Uh, I have a roommate who became a big fan of the space hippies in The Way to Eden, so she rates all the hippie episodes as high. This was thus a high. To anyone else, this would not be a positive comparison. Dull, and some may even find the speechifying about religion and capital punishment condescending. In the battle, the Ferengi are back uh, without all the pantomiming, and that's a good thing. What's good about them remains. Their ships, their worship of the almighty dollar, or equivalent, and their ears. The battle offers no real mystery, with Bach showing a control of Picard's headache from the first, so it tends to get a little tedious at times. But the look into Picard's past is rather fun. Thanks to the Picard maneuver, it seems the crew is working under a legendary captain, and it makes sense that his being an older man, he would have captained other ships before the Enterprise. This differentiates him from Kirk in an interesting way. Too bad none of his old crew came to visit after this. We'd have to wait for the reunion novel from Pocket Books for that, which was a decent story. The nightmare sequences are interestingly directed, I guess, and a Bach's defeat at the hands of his own crew is a good moment. His first officer has confined him for engaging in this unprofitable adventure. What lets the battle down is the rest of that ending. There are so many ways to counter the Picard maneuver, and yet Data's makes no apparent sense. He even contradicts what the maneuver is. Truly messy script writing and a non-dilemma. Never mind that Picard has been under alien influence twice in the last three episodes now. Medium rewatchability? Still worth a look for Tamer Ferengi, and a peek into Picard's first command, but the story's a bit obvious and the ending doesn't quite work. Hide and Q. I'm actually a bit surprised I like Hide and Q as much as I did. My memory of its flaws was greater than that of its strengths, I guess. But those flaws remain, of course. For one thing, Q is settling into more of a prankster role and lacks the dangerous edge of his first appearance. The dialogue informs us he's nothing if not imaginative, but imagination is rather sparse. The Napoleonic setting, for example, is strictly TOS-style surrealism, and the pig masks don't work any better than uh, in Journey to Babel. A couple of nice ideas, though, like uh, taking Data's place and the penalty box. Unfortunately, that penalty box leads to one of the worst scenes in all of TNG, with Tasha blubbering and then making an awkward pass at Picard. Uh, when I say awkward, I don't mean the character is awkward, but rather that the actress is. At this point, I really think she couldn't have done anything with the character, even if she had stayed all seven years. Uh, Wesley's also a simpering character, but at least non-fans can cheer at his getting a bayonet in the back. Troy is out of the picture, you'll note, possibly to remove any emotional baggage she might have brought Riker. And for all that, I thought Riker's dilemma was an interesting one. 
and the way Picard let him demonstrate his powers to the crew. A brilliant use of the captain's lawyerly skills. Again, possibly for the first time, Patrick Stewart is in total control of the character. It's great how each character refuses their gift, showing incredible integrity. Data's refusal is actually moving and very well acted. Jordy also comes out a winner. The adult Wesley with the teenage voice, well, rather silly, but Beverly's reaction to it is all good. And have you noticed how you and I are now on a first name basis? Indeed. The episode is put over the top by my noticing something new and totally personal about it. As many of you know, I'm a Shakespeare nut, so I'm not commending the the ripping of entire speeches in this episode. They go a bit far. What I just realized is that Picard's big collected edition is the same as mine. I've got the same globe illustrated on display uh, in my room. And maybe it's the same one. Mine's just not an antique yet. I give this high rewatchability. It might prove that Q episodes are always watchable, and certainly John Delancey is pretty entertaining. This isn't the best of the lot by far, but the characters are really starting to gel, and there's a good payoff. Haven. Oh, man, the first season hasn't exactly been solid, but this may be the first real turkey in TNG. Maybe not, maybe, but it's a strong contender. The direction is stagey, the music is schmaltzy, and the Wyatt character is absolutely lame and dreadful. I'm not just talking about his clothes and haircut either. Add to that some truly ludicrous technology, the gift box, the chameleon rose, and the Torellian ship. The TNG FX creators are happy on bubbles, and uh, this ship design joins the Edo probe and cues Aldebrand Serpent in the recent appearances of this kitschy effect. And the fact no real reason is given for why it's telepathic connection, except Luxana's pseudo-Jedi explanation. There are some bright moments, like Deanna knocking over the dinner gong and Mr. Hom's shenanigans in general, and Deanna comes across as a warm person, but otherwise, not to say Luxana is an annoying character, or at least not yet anyway, but that kind of humor only goes so far, and while it may be entertaining to see her torture Picard, her vanity and bickering with the Millers quickly becomes repetitive. Troy has zero chemistry with Wyatt Miller, which is just as well, not that he seems capable of that with anyone. And then there's how boring the supposed interpersonal dilemma between Bill and Diana is. As for the Torellian plot, it is incredibly contrived. People are all drawn to this location for no explainable reason. No one questions Wyatt's final decision or even if he was manipulated into it somehow. Not too surprising for Picard, who just before took the loss of his counselor with too much geniality. No one seems to care Deanna would be leaving, so should we? And the actor's blocking goes perfectly with the plot, with characters appearing out of nowhere just to be in a scene or whatnot. Why is Adriana in front of the view screen if she's not the one who's going to be doing the talking? When did Luxana get to the bridge during that final scene? Oh yeah, and there's the worst staff meeting ever with everyone telling everyone else something everyone knows except us, the audience, of course. I give this one a low, though there are some sweet and amusing moments, and the first appearance of Luaxana should be considered historic. That's not enough to recommend this pointless episode. Truly a challenge to decide which of the A plot and B plot is the worst piece of drivel. It's not that bad. Okay, okay, I'm being too harsh on it. Because of the historic appearance of Luaxana, it's at least a medium low. The Big Goodbye. Well, this is the first episode to spend a considerable amount of time on the holodeck, and the first to feature speaking parts for the holograms. So we should be generous when watching The Big Goodbye. It does contradict a lot of what we learn about holodeck technology later, but in 
relatively minor ways, which could be attributed to the Binars upgrade seen later. Speaking of Binars, this episode should really have been run after 11001001. It would have made Picard's glee and surprise at how real it all was much better. I know they mention an upgrade here, but everyone seems a little too enthusiastic. Regardless, the absence of a work crew outside the door at the end is messy directing. There's no real plot to the Dixon Hill scenario, but it's well produced. Great period musical cues, fairly good noir costumes and lighting, Crusher looks great, and Data's a lot of fun too. I don't care much for Felix Leach, who's a terrible one-note character, but Lawrence Tierney does a great Cyrus Redblock. Totally hard as nails, but refined at the same time. Other characters are cliches in the leech mold, though McNary is quite sympathetic at the end with his questions. You've gone. Will this world still exist? Will my wife and kids still be waiting for me at home? That ending alone makes the episode worth watching. As for the B-plot, I wish it had the technology and budget to eventually show us the Harada. I did enjoy the novel that showcased them in balance, and that language was loads of fun to deliver, I bet. But though I don't judge the holodeck physics too harshly, characters' behavior while in the holodeck are fair game. TNG had this annoying habit of telling us this was the future by making the characters... One, bash the 20th century, and two, have them not recognize 20th century concepts and colloquialisms. Data, Yar, and Worf are usually the ones to do the, the dumb look and repeat the unknown word routine, but here even Picard doesn't know what Halloween is, among other things. Even if I believe that Pulp Fiction of Dixon Hill's quality, poor from what we saw, survived 400 years to become a classic, and even if I believe that a man like Picard would have loved this stuff, and read the entire canon, could I really believe he would be so clueless about the language of the era? Same goes for Data, who's read the whole thing and more, and can do a fair bogey and explain the automobile, but doesn't figure out a lamp needs to be plugged in. Cute moment, just like Crusher with a piece of gum or the South American android jokes, but as hard to swallow as that gum. I also have objections about the heavy flirtation between Crusher and Picard in this one, since it doesn't really jibe with their usual attitude. What happens on the holodeck stays on the holodeck, I guess. Medium rewatchability, certainly enough to recommend. But the out-of-character exuberance of the regulars in the first half can be annoying. But here's a second opinion from uh, our friend Mark Baker-Wright. The Big Goodbye is a significant episode for several reasons. It won a Peabody Award, the only episode of any version of Star Trek ever to do so, as well as an Emmy for William Werthys's costume design, giving the new series an early shot of praise and notoriety. It is also the first of what would eventually be called Holodeck Malfunction Episodes. A lot of fans are ambivalent about the role of the holodeck, believing it a distraction from Trek's stated goals of seeking out new life and new civilizations among the stars. And it's certainly true that this episode is a marked departure from usual Trek fare. On the other hand, it is very much the unusual nature of this episode that makes it so memorable, and it is clear that the cast enjoyed themselves immensely during filming. Fans of old-time detective stories will recognize the combination of such legendary characters as Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade in Picard's hero, Dixon Hill. And the name of the episode itself is a clear homage to such stories as The Long Goodbye and The Big Sleep. One hardly needs to squint to see a bit of Sidney Greenstreet's Casper Gutman in Bad Guy Cyrus Redblock. And these are just some of the many nods to detective fiction that writer Tracy Torme sprinkled into the episode. The episode does show some signs of its early place in next-generation history. 
Picard's awe at just how realistic the holodeck is threatens to bludgeon the viewer over the head with the idea that the technology is brand new, even to the characters themselves, and this fact must be glossed over in light of both future episodes that take place earlier in the Trek timeline and real-world developments that suggest virtual reality is probably a bit closer to us today than we'd apparently imagined in the 1980s. The storytelling device of the holotech's mortality failsafe apparently hasn't even been invented yet, given the wounded officer's comment that suggests amazement that a life-threatening accident is even possible on the holodeck in the first place. We also get to see Geordi LaForge begin to act like an engineer, despite not officially taking on that role until the beginning of the next season. All in all, The Big Goodbye is hardly a perfect episode, but it nonetheless stands out as a highlight among Next Generation's first year. I have decided to visit Data's home planet for a few hours in the hopes of unraveling some of the mystery of his beginnings. In Data lore, we finally get some backstory on Data, and he ends up with an evil twin to boot. Now, I do have reservations about the way all of this was revealed. Like the fact that Data has to learn all of it at the same time as we do. He never made the connection between the well-known Sung's work and his positronic brain. And that no one ever went back to Omicron Theta in the past 26 years. But these revelations nonetheless paved the way for a number of stories about Data. And then there's Lore. He's deliciously evil. And I can almost forgive the fact that he's conspiring with the crystalline entity for no reason other than to cause harm. The entity's a cool effect too. You're perhaps let in on this deviousness too soon, but he at least acts genial in the opening acts so that the naive Data can accept him. And as an android, he really does have the power to destroy the Enterprise. Unfortunately, the writers decided to make his task easier by having the crew act stupidly throughout. It lessens him as a villain in addition to weakening the regulars. The plot hinges, but doesn't need to, on the bridge crew never listening to Wesley. I'm getting tired not only of this, but of his being always right in the first place. Then, not recognizing Lore has taken Data's place, or really taking the proper precautions once they find out he has. Worf lets himself be soundly beaten, Tasha is her usual useless self, and both Picard and Riker are immensely dense. Troy's missing because she could too easily have read Lore's emotions, so it's all about Data and the Crushers then. And the nitpicker in me can't help but be bothered by such things as the confused timeline with the Omicron Theta colony being destroyed, the kids had time to draw the entity, the idea that Lore is transported out but the entity doesn't then attack, as we'll see he wasn't beamed as energy only either, so why no mention of his being adrift, etc. And Data's use of contractions not only since the series started, but in this very episode! This doesn't make sense. At the end there, when he says, I'm fine, and then twitches, I would have locked him up. Or will we be watching Lore at Ops until the episode Brothers, when they're switched back finally? Anyway, it's a good thing the interplay between the brothers is as interesting as it is, because this might easily have been a turkey. I give it a medium, an important episode for Data and all things related to androids, but the plot is on autopilot, and the revelations are clumsily written in. Still a must for any fans of Lore, and Brent Spiner shines in the dual role. Maybe you could teach our males a thing or two. With Angel 1, Star Trek isn't afraid to examine some hard-hitting issues. But is this one of them? Angel 1, what a boring title, tries to be classic, relevant Trek and fails dismally. First and foremost, it's all too obviously trying to attack sexist attitudes of the day, but Angel 1's women are so fascist, I just can't recognize the sexism the show is trying to explore through SF allegory. It might have been more relevant before women got the vote, but in 1987, if this was meant to make us question our society's attitudes about women, 
it does the opposite. It actually bashes women by making them extreme and reactionary and then swayed by the first men that know what they want, the meat, Riker and the Odin crew. Just awful. Speaking of sexism, how is it appropriate for Troy and Tasha to titter and make suggestive comments at Riker when he dresses as an Angel One male? Then again, who am I to criticize? I do host a show called Ohat More Not where there's a lot of tittering. But the plot is obvious at best and offensive at worst. So maybe if we turn to the B-plot? Mm, no, no help there. The virus that overtakes the ship has been done before, but here the effects aren't even interesting. And the solution is rather obvious to the audience. It does show Crusher's competence and fortitude. She doesn't get sick even after smelling the viral agent. But it seems to have been concocted basically to build Geordi's character with a little command experience. It's also very boring and not a particularly good way to inject some urgency into Riker's situation. Low rewatchability, this might have been at home in the original series, but the ideas are outmoded even for 1987. And besides, it'd still be boring even if it were relevant. Next... And next is 11001001, a real winner. By showing us what the crew does for rest and relaxation, we learn a lot more about their characters than something like The Naked Now, where their wildest dreams take over. The various character moments really work, such as Data learning to paint, taught by a blind man, uh, Yar, surprisingly bearable here, and Worf going for sports. Uh, Worf is finding his sense of humor. Crushers indulging a schoolgirl crush. Is it me or is she desperately lonely? And of course, Riker's love of jazz and trombone playing. This is the kind of stuff that stays with the characters for the run of the show. But you need a plot. This one's pretty good, despite the absence of an actual villain, or perhaps because of it. The Binar's plan is fairly ingenious, and you get a sense that they did outwit the crew. Not that the crew was dumbed down to allow it to happen. The Binar predicament is fairly original, at least for the time, even if their duplicity doesn't really need Troy to be detected. Their greatest achievement, however, is Minuet. Wow, that's a stellar performance by Carolyn McCormick, very sexy and surprisingly natural. She does a good job of having us fall for her as much as Riker does. Mangled French aside, it's too bad she could never be a recurring character. A dream? That I am. The episode also features some movie-quality visuals of the docking at the space station, and the direction has flair, such as during the sequence in the empty halls of the Enterprise. The self-destruct sequence isn't played for much tension, but more procedural in function. I'm fine with that, though the verbal codes from the original series and movies were more involving. I give this a high, totally memorable. In my opinion, this is where the actors really get into their groove, with the characters finally emerging as fully realized people. A turning point. But if 11001001 was memorable, too short a season. The next one in the pipeline is completely the opposite. I guess the problem is that we're supposed to care for Admiral Jameson, someone outside the TNG family that pretty much acts as the incompetent Admiral Ambassador Commodore of the week. And here I thought those days were gone with the 60s. Another key point that reminds one of the original series' worst moments is the magical nature of Jameson's Fountain of Youth. The herbs and chemicals he's taken do something that's totally unreasonable scientifically. All I can tell you is that he's ingested something that's strongly affecting his body. Don't ask me how, but he even looks younger. Well, whatever these substances are doing to his body, at least they've done that for him. And it all ends in irony. Unfortunate that this fable is so dull then. The rest of the plot is equally forgettable because we don't care about Jameson, nor is it plausible that no one feels able to remove him from command despite showing signs of instability and ill health. Other than that point, the crew is quite competent in this one, even Worf and Tasha, who are usually 
bad shots just to keep the action going a little longer. I like Picard's reaction to Jameson's violation of the Prime Directive and his later takeover of the situation. Data uses his physical prowess, Geordi uses his visor to good effect, etc. I wish they'd be that on the ball in better episodes. It's all wasted on this Snorefest. Did I mention that the aging makeup is thoroughly unconvincing and stiff? But do I really need to? Low rewatchability, though the regulars do their best. Putting the focus on a third party serves them badly, and life is too short to watch this one again anytime soon. I'm going to be sorry about <laughs> saying an episode was a turning point, aren't I? Uh, when the bow breaks is next. If the original series was about friendship, you know, the next generation has to be about family. And perhaps it's a byproduct of using an ensemble cast, but certainly having families, that is to say kids aboard the ship, will tend to do that. I think there will be some wonderful family episodes, but when the bow breaks isn't one of them. It can be touching, sure, but its weaknesses far outweigh its strengths. It does have strengths. I should acknowledge them. For one thing, Wesley is well used for once, presented as the sound leader for the children and being smart about what he's doing to get them all back home. Second, the production values are high, with the custodian room being rather remarkable, for example. Unfortunately, Wesley isn't really the guy you tune in to watch at this point, or any point, and the focus on him and the number of children we've never met before saps the episode of any real interest. The plot and its reversals are all too obvious, and the happy ending seems manufactured, with Radu having a sudden and uncharacteristic change of heart. The kids aren't too bad to watch, though they tend to make the episode cloying and sappy overall. I guess Alexandra is supposed to be too cute for words. But let me tell you, a little Alexandra goes a long way. And if Picard's stiffness around children is supposed to be endearing, I'm with Ryan. I don't really get it. I'm more annoyed than anything with everyone's chuckling when it happens. Annoyed and very bored, which is often the same thing for me. So another low. Overall, while I think the episode has its heart in the right place, you can't ignore the main cast too much in this series without disconnecting from the audience. The next time someone asks, what about all the families on the ship? I know what my answer will be. It's called passive resistance. This may just be a review from an ugly bag of mostly water, but here we go. Home soil. While the character-driven stories are always better. Home Soil still provides an okay murder mystery followed by a good scientific mystery. I found myself enjoying the procedural take on identifying the microbrain as a life form and subsequent efforts to communicate with it, then appease it. Of course, the episode is constantly in danger of having our attention wander as talking scenes follow one another, and when your antagonist is a tiny light in a jar, well, there's not a lot of charisma on screen. Speaking of lacking charisma, the guest stars range from okay speechmakers, like Mandel, to just horrible, like Louisa Kim. I couldn't really get interested in their, in their problems, and they were little more than red herrings at first, and exposition machines later. Oh yeah, and we need Mandel to reveal the final irony. Uh, no we don't. The microbrain is at least an interesting life form, but I've had to turn the subtitles on in spots, which is always annoying. I do think that if you're going to riff off the old series, well, this is strongly indebted to the devil in the dark, don't ignore that series. Here they ignore the many inorganic life forms the original crew encountered, not to mention the ones they themselves found. Can anybody say crystalline entity? So, still a medium. Home Soil is different enough from Devil in the Dark to merit its own viewing, though I, it doesn't quite reach that level. A good set piece for the exploration aspect of the show, though it can be slow, especially when you know the answer to the big mystery. Next up, Coming of Age. Two episodes so close together focusing on Wesley? Not a good idea, especially when Coming of Age's Wesley plot is so pointless. I just don't understand how the Academy entrance exams work. 
After all, if Mordock is so, so qualified and Wesley had almost the same score, wouldn't Starfleet come out a winner accepting both? Why is there a competition between these four? They have nothing in common, so we can't say they're only taking one person from each member planet or whatever. It's unfair to Wesley and it's unfair to the audience. Maybe if the collection of set pieces had been more interesting, but half of them just blab on while people are looking at screens. And the two female applicants are as dull as wood and act about as well. The B-plot is more interesting, even if it is left dangling. This sets up conspiracy, though I do wish they'd done more with the story arc, developed it over a greater number of shows, or later had it pay off more. Oh well. We're left with some good interrogation scenes wonderfully edited together. The sense of family and loyalty comes out, and Picard proves himself a fine patriarch in both his epilogues, with Jake and then with Wesley. I think Remick's This is where I'd like to serve, sir. is a bit over the top, however, and self-serving on the writer's parts. Now, I'm not sure how this episode really connects with Conspiracy. Is the Parasite Queen already in Remick? But if there's a reason to watch this episode, it's to be found in this half of it. Unfortunately, this half also contains the fabricated dilemma of Jake's escape by shuttle, which makes no sense. The planet's in transporter range, but the shuttle between the ship and the planet isn't, and it adds little to the story. So let's call it a watchable third or quarter. I give it a medium. Uh, the scenes aboard ship are worth the price of admission, but anything on the planet or close to the atmosphere is largely padding that doesn't amount to anything that matters. Our friend D. Bash uh, had uh, these little nuggets to, to offer. Uh, he said he met the writer of the episode, Sandy Freeze, and he pretty much treated it as a lark. The writer, that is, not D. Uh, he originally wanted to have a bathroom scene where Wesley and Jake changed the instruction signs for the toilets designated for various races, but it was nixed in the very first draft. Also, Mordock was supposed to wear a system of tubes containing his planet's life-giving nutrients, and Sandy was a bit dismayed to see the idea reduced to a box with a chip of dry ice. And uh, Bully, the little stuffed bull, had this insight. Uh, the thing that bothered me, says, about the testing program in this episode was that it should have rewarded teamwork, not penalized students for relying on each other's help. Starfleet is a team, not an army of one, and the whole point of the test should have been that one of them alone could not solve it, but together they should. Sort of a Kobayashi Maru with a solution and a lesson. So that's a massive fail on Coming of Ages part. Let's now look at Heart of Glory. Uh, the appearance of a couple of Klingon renegades gives Worf a chance to tell his story and shine in this one. And it's nice to finally see the Klingons appear on Next Generation, period. A real fanatic, Chorus is a typical charismatic whose words are poetry, which makes the temptation of Worf more credible. And in fact, there's a religious tone to these scenes that works in the episode's favor. And if these guys were zealots, it helps explain why, for example, we never see very many death yells after this. But those death yells are part of the real appeal of the episode. Worf makes a good showing throughout, finally resolving the situation and telling us what it means to be a warrior in a pacifist society. A lot of his personal history comes out, only briefly, but it sets up a lot of future episodes. The other Klingons also do well, uh, with their hidden weapon a perfect moment for the warrior race. Canera's reaction to their deaths tells us a lot about these next-gen Klingons as well, though the character is dully acted. I must also commend the direction in Heart of Glory. It has some real flair. The scenes on the Batris are atmospheric, there's a real hairy moment as they're about to transport back. Chorus's fall in engineering is really cool, if unrealistic, and breakaway glass for a floor. And the last death yell beats out the first one easily.
Another thumbs up for the musical cues. Jordy's point of view makes for a nice aside, though it's totally in the first season's tradition of introducing an element that makes sense, but is then never seen again, or is seen irregularly, like Saucer Separation or Riker forbidding Picard to get into scrapes. Troy and Wesley are once again missing, but the other regulars all get a little to do and then do it well. The exception is Tasha, who seems about to be phased out in favor of the much more interesting Worf. She's incredibly incompetent in this episode, not securing Deck 17 in any way and allowing a hostage situation to present itself, almost screwing up a critical transport, uh, and on top of that, delivering her lines very badly. <laughs> but I give this one a high. I was surprised how good this episode was. Generally well-acted and superlatively directed. It's a great early showcase for Worf. We need more of this. The Arsenal of Freedom. Well, there are some nice moments in this episode, including the lines Riker feeds to Paul Rice. The name of my ship is the Lollipop. It's a good ship. The look of the alien weapons, and what little we learn of Beverly's past. But the real reason to watch the episode is Geordi's command of the Enterprise. It's quite normal that he'd be nervous after his first real command decisions, but there are some moments in that plot I could have done away with. Troy's little pep talk, for example, didn't seem necessary. But on the whole, Geordi succeeds without making it look easy, and the conflict with Logan adds some power to that success. However, the structure of the piece is severely flawed and doesn't make Geordi's part in it memorable. For one thing, the crew is split up in three, which appears to be too much. The stuff with Riker, Data, and Tasha in particular has no tension whatsoever, with these supposed super weapons never hitting anything except for the stasis field early on. This kills any urgency we're supposed to feel when Picard finally turns the weapon off. And what's with the order of sequences? Picard turns it all off and then Geordi destroys the orbital weapon, but shouldn't it be off by then? These resolutions were apparently reversed. Speaking of resolutions, it would have been a much stronger ending if Picard had thought of buying the weapon before being prompted by the hologram. Felt like a role-playing session where the players are a little dense about how to resolve the danger with the Game Master having to put the solution in an NPC's mouth. Were I to remake the episode, I'd have Picard be more proactive, spend more time with Crusher, though perhaps not play so much with hints of her attraction to Picard, and have Tasha get shot by the Echo Papa. I probably should be patient. I give this a medium. What works here is worthy, but don't look for much suspense from the planet-side material. Even the Geordi stuff gets a little cloying at times, so diabetics need not apply at all. But this episode was quite striking to a young and perhaps not yet irredeemable shag. Let's hear what he has to say. The big picture plot here is that age-old story where a person or a race designs the ultimate weapon, and that weapon then turns around and destroys its own creator. It makes for a fun story, and this is a nice little episode, even if Genesis of the Daleks did do it with more style about 15 years before this. Some things you might remember about this episode is that clearly they were getting to the end of the first season, and they were trying to stretch their dollars. I mean, folks, this thing was done on the cheap. It's got some shaky camera work. The sets are barely decorated. It's got, like, I don't know, like four ferns and one tree. It looks pretty bare. There's only a handful of guest stars, which does include the ever-rotating character of the chief engineer. I always found that fascinating in the first season. And also, the bad guy is a legs pantyhose container glued to an old shampoo bottle. I'm not kidding. Look it up. The episode also featured this contrived reason for Captain Picard beaming down to the planet and leaving Geordi in charge of the ship. And it was supposed to feature this whole scene with Picard and Beverly sharing their feelings for each other, but Roddenberry cut it because he doesn't like nice things. Probably one of the more fun things in this episode is the scene where Data grabs Lieutenant Yar and throws her across the set to avoid an explosion cracks me up. But the real stars of this episode are the phasers. Yeah, I'm serious. You know, when you think about Star Trek phasers, especially in the first part of the season, people are constantly using them like bullets and guns or Star Wars blasters like pew, pew, pew. That's not how a phaser should work. It's supposed to be a continuous laser beam, you know, 
a solid beam of light. And in this episode, they actually use them properly. They activate their phasers, they leave it as a constant beam of light, and they sweep it around aiming at their moving target. That's how you're supposed to use a phaser. But even cooler was that this was the very first episode where we saw the Enterprise D fire its ship's phasers. Seriously, 21 episodes into the season, and this was the first time we ever saw the ship phasers. And no, I'm not counting that little nutrient beam thing they did in Encounter Farpoint. No, we're talking about phasers and stuff blowing up. Now, we are so spoiled in this era of reruns of Netflix that most people can't even remember that this was the first jaw-dropping time that they saw those little orange lights circle around the saucer section and meet and coalesce into one badass phaser beam from the ship's saucer. So cool. Remember that. Arsenal of Freedom, the real star, was the ship's phasers. Symbiosis. Drug addiction is a worthy subject to tackle in the science fiction format, and the ideas behind these two symbiotic planets were well-conceived and thought out, though I could have done without the electrical powers. Uh, the creators get extra points for turning it, this into a prime directive issue, and Picard is very smart here, despite what Dr. Crusher may think. Not to say that she isn't competent in symbiosis, she is, but she does get a little crazy uh, by the end, even strident. But speaking of Strident, the creators lose all their points again with their that moralizing speech about drugs given by Tasha to young Wesley Crusher. The two underpar actors on the show can't possibly make this scene work, if anyone could. Wesley is too naive for words, and Tasha is spewing politically correct material at quite a clip. Wesley, no one wants to become dependent. That happens later. But it does happen. So why do people start? On my home planet, there was so much poverty and violence that for some, the only escape is through drugs. How can a chemical substance provide an escape? It doesn't. But it makes you think it does. I agree with everything she says. It's just delivered as I, as if I was suddenly watching an educational video about something I knew all about. Now, this scene is still worth watching because it seems to reveal that Tasha was once a drug addict herself. Denise Crosby's unnuanced performance doesn't really bear it out, but look at data during this exchange. Brett Spiner is more than equal to the task of showing us the android processing and at least suspecting what's behind Tasha's words. It's otherwise horrible, though. The show also has its share of longers with repetitive dialogue throughout and exchanges made through static. It feels really rather padded at times. Still, I commend the guest stars, in particular Merritt Buttrick, in one of his last performances. He died not long after this, which is a great loss. We feel a lot of sympathy for him here, especially when he believes Picard has doomed them all. I do give it a medium. The plot and guest performances stand up well, and Picard is smartly written, as opposed to the arsenal of freedom. But uh, the anti-drug message is way overplayed. It's a real flaw of this relevant episode. Skin of Evil. So this is it. The episode I've been waiting for since Encounter at Farpoint, the one where Tasha Yar is killed. I'm not really kidding. Uh, Whether the character was badly conceived, badly written, badly utilized, badly acted, or all four, Tasha Yar never worked. Her best showcase was Code of Honor, and that wasn't very strong either. And she dies as she lived, pointlessly. Usually, when a main character is killed, there's a build-up throughout the episode, and if you didn't like them before, you often do by the time they're dead. Not so here. Tasha is killed a little over 11 minutes into the episode, with barely a moment with Worf at the beginning to prefigure her demise. 
The way she dies, then, is all the more of a shocker. We've seen this sort of stuff before, of course, but the standard way to go is to somehow resurrect the person before the end. No reset button here, though. And I must admire how gutsy that was. You do this to anyone else, and I'd be rightly peeved. She was looking for it, though, making her usual mistake of aggressively moving on a super powerful enemy, and Armis keeps dishing out the hits. He's a well-realized monster, whether just a pond or a creature, though the black animation doesn't quite get us there. And his various cruelties work well. Riker getting smothered, Data used as a Russian roulette, it's all pretty wicked stuff. Better yet, the main cast is wonderfully defiant, and you can't believe Armis can't get his groove on as a result. Picard and Troy are especially effective, pushing Armis to the breaking point. There are weaker points, such as the magical nature of Armis' existence, what kind of people did he spring from exactly, and the terrible planet set. And then there's the funeral scene. If I was touched, and I was, it was because the actors played their grief so well. Each in their own way. Tasha's little speech is only the necessary catalyst. It's a schmaltzy, self-congratulating speech that creates relationships where none existed on screen. Oh, Tasha had that relationship with that crew member. Ah, well, had they ever explored it? She might have been more interesting. Simply put, it says things about her or the target character instead of showing us things. Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I wish I could say you've been like a father to me. But I've never had one, so I don't know what it feels like. But the reaction shots, those those are great. I give it a high. Historically important, sure. But the horror actually works rather well, despite the lack of atmosphere on that planet. The characters make a strong showing for the most part, and the ending does pack an emotional punch. Now here's Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes with his own take on the episode. Skin of Evil. And I know what you're thinking as soon as I said that name. Oh, the one where Tasha dies. Yes, exactly. In fact, except for Tasha dying, and pretty much like a red shirt, uh, senseless in the middle of a mission, couldn't be revived, etc. That's all that's really important about this episode. This is one of those episodes that I consider to be a warning buoy episode. And there were a lot of those on the original series. It's one of those that the Enterprise comes across a planet or a section of space or what have you, and they find this super powerful being there, uh, Armus in this case. Uh, quick aside... Armis is also the name of one of the detectives in Superman the movie. But Armis is evil, and the way he is literally the evil of a race of beings congealed into a tar pit. And he completely behaves like that. But the Enterprise is not able to actually defeat him. They outmaneuver him, they get Troy back from the crash shuttlecraft, but they just leave. Uh, it's one of those where... They can't beat this thing, so they drop a warning buoy and say, nobody come over here. Now, back to the main thrust of this, which is Denise Crosby leaving the series with this episode. And to be honest, it was one of those that when I first saw it, it did kind of shock me, but it also made sense. I mean, yeah, she's wearing gold, but essentially Tasha is a red shirt, and she went out the exact way that you would think. She was on duty, trying to get the mission done, and much like Scotty going up against Apollo, she got zapped for it. But whereas Apollo was able to bring Scotty back, Armis didn't feel like doing that because he's evil. Capital E there. So 
while it's an enjoyable episode to watch, it's kind of middle of the road, really. In fact, it's pretty unmemorable, and that unfortunately is like a lot of the first season next-gen episodes. But it does make the history books, not just for Tasha, but also for uh, Jonathan Frakes being dragged into the tar pit and having his preformed face cast shoved up into it. That that was a disturbing image with the tar in his mouth and everything. But if you're going to rewatch this, it's best to just keep in mind that you shouldn't set your expectations too high, all right? The first Tasha Less episode is We'll Always Have Paris. Well, a real miss with this one. Uh, in trying to flesh out Picard's past and character, they throw an old flame at him and the sparks fly! Almost! Patrick Stewart is spot on, playing the anxiety that comes with seeing a former lover, especially when he's hurt, and her current love. And Michelle Phillips gives it her best. Though Janice is a bit of a tease, isn't she? But as long as she remains married to and in love with Mannheim, there's nothing that can happen here, and nothing does. If this was engineered to show us a jealous Dr. Crusher, well, I find that subplot rather distracting myself. We have yet to see any real motivation for Crusher's feelings, or anything approaching a resolution for them, though I do find it interesting that Crusher apparently has talked about this with Troy. But that's just the B-plot. The A-plot is a convoluted, fractured time story that makes no scientific sense and receives little explanation. The solutions are technobabble, just as the problems are. My interest was piqued when Mannheim talked about cracking the other dimension open in almost Lovecraftian terms. That's quickly forgotten. The plot allows for one interesting sequence with the turbo lift and some good effects, the, the three datas, but it's otherwise forgettable. Picard's fencing is introduced here, which is a nice point, and Paris in the future is an interesting sight, but the entire exercise comes off as pointless, whether you're looking at the romance or the adventure. I give it a low. Total Snorefest, Patrick Stewart and the other regulars are excellent to find, but they are badly served by the incomprehensible plot and dead-end romance. Bully, the little stuffed bull, fellow blogger, still had an uber-geekery moment to highlight in this episode. He says, note how our point of view changes from the characters of the present to the characters slightly out of time sync during the scene with the turbo lift. For the rest of the show, we're following an out-of-sync timeline until the three Data's scene towards the end. And how did he know it was him who was the correct Data? Because the correct Data's not the Data we've been following, but the one behind him, the one left behind by the cameras after the turbo lift scene. It's so complicated to conceive, it might not even be intentional, and just might be the geek in me ascribing it to the story, but I like to think that's the way Data figured it out. You know, Bully, you might just have nudged this one from a low to a medium low. Conspiracy. Well, I seem to remember liking this one a lot more than I just did. Maybe I'm not as interested or shocked by the gore. Actually, I'm quite shocked at how graphic it is, even if I'm not actually disgusted by it. And also at how choppy the stop motion effects are. Or maybe it's that while the concept of a conspiracy within Starfleet is both unthinkable and scary, it's not given an epic feel. Two episodes, since this follows coming of age, is scarcely enough to do the story justice. Starfleet is saved as quickly as it's taken over, and the consequences aren't addressed, especially with that magical ending where the parasites just disappear from their hosts. But while it's going on, it's pretty engrossing. The mysterious messages and meetings, never quite knowing if Quinn and later Riker are actually taken over or not. It's all well executed right up to the final beacon that feels like a season finale cliffhanger. That's another letdown of this episode. Nothing ever comes out of it, probably due to the backlash from the gore. In certain places, it was banned. 
The Bluegills, as they were later dubbed, never followed that beacon back to Earth. Maybe just as well, but it's an annoying loose end. I give it a medium. It could have been great, but shortchanged by the expeditive script and lack of vision. No long story arcs back in those days, and the effects don't exactly help it. Still, the paranoia it induces is excellent, and the main characters are dead on, though I could have done without Worf being knocked out while the mere humans could shrug off Quinn's blows. But let's see what the irredeemable Shag has to say about this. There's a conspiracy at the heart of Starfleet. Key officers have been replaced. This culminates in a scanners-level head explosion. Then Picard and Riker straight up murder the alien queen, thus ending the alien infestation. Now, the good stuff. Lots of intrigue in this episode. In fact, the first ten minutes are really, really well done. Really sets the mood. Very creepy. The music's dramatic. Really great. Then the bad stuff. Commander Riker has a ridiculous fight with this old man admiral. There's these <laughs> super silly, like, high kicks, which are laughable. Yes, very humorous indeed. <laughs> and then there's also a very early case of warfing. Oh, our poor Klingon ends up on the floor. And there's some wonky acting on the part of some of the alien controlled officers. And while they get a gold star for trying, there is some lame claymation in this episode. The writers apparently learned all the wrong lessons from the creepy little ear creatures in Star Trek II. Now, personally, my favorite bit about this episode is it's really the start of continuity. Now, in a show that pretty much resets back to start at the end of each episode, this one starts to build on some of the ongoing stories from earlier in the season. We get a return of Admiral Quinn and Remick. Now, Remick, that was a big thing for me, because I was a diehard next-gen fan for the first couple seasons. I watched every episode three times a week. I'm not kidding. And I was just so desperate for new characters to join the show. Maybe I was looking for the next-gen version of Chekhov. I don't know. But I wanted them to add new characters to the show, and I was convinced that Remick was going to be added as a regular cast member, and he would be kind of the, the unlikable one, the Dr. Smith on the crew. But obviously that was not to be. So, again, really liked how they picked up on threads from earlier in the season and continue those plots along. It was nice to get some continuity going. And I love the suspenseful ending where there's this homing beacon going out into the universe, telling these aliens to come from their home galaxy to Earth. And, of course, nothing ever came of that. But still, it was really cool at the time. <laughs> Next up, the neutral zone. What's wrong with the creators? Second season finale in a row. Because both the neutral zone and conspiracy end with the foreshadowing of a new menace. At least the Romulans will be back. And again, they've dropped the ball. This time, the problem lies in relegating the Romulans to the B-plot. Only the Romulans? No, because the episode also features the first hints of what will become the Borg. There's no real room here to get more than a slight glimpse of one and a mere mention of the other. So what's this big A-plot that has nothing to do with the neutral zone? The discovery of some frozen 20th century humans which are thought out and must now live among us. Oh yeah, and interfere with ship operations as much as possible. I, I'm being unkind, because it does lead to some okay moments, though sadly, all three are stereotypes without much depth. Only the homemaker draws any sympathy out of me, the financier is a total jerk, and the country singer is only supposed to offer comic relief, though the humor falls flat under a pile of quaint expressions. When the Romulans do appear, we've at least been prepared for it by an interesting report from Troy. And their warbirds sure have changed. Very impressive. We just don't see enough of them to really make this outstanding. Note the speech about humanity's evolution here, mirroring what will later come in First Contact. But I sure am tired of all the 20th century bashing that's been a recurring theme in the first season. Just who do they think is watching the show? I guess we live in the worst century ever. Or used to. There should be more 21st century bashing. Makes one wonder how our species survived the 21st century. 
I give this a medium, though my review is quite harsh. I, it's really about high expectations. It just doesn't feel like a season finale. And with that title, you'd think the Romulans would make a bigger splash. If you forget about all that, the main plot is amusing fluff, and you still get a peek at those revamped original series adversaries. I guess the Ferengi didn't work out. So that's it for the first season, full of missteps, trying to find their way, trying to reinvent the format. It took a while for the show to find its groove. We'll take a short break for a podcast promo, and we'll be back with season two. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Let's head into the next season. The Child begins a rather short season, actually, uh, affected negatively by the writer's strike going on at the time. And so the script is recycled from work done for Star Trek II, the television series that morphed into the motion picture. So imagine Ilya in the role of Troy and Decker in the role of Riker. And it's an okay plot with an interesting alien first contact and a good turn by the regulars. But it's all a little too contrived when the child turns out to be emitting radiation that makes the viruses unstable and must leave before his time. Big reset button. And makes little sense that the Enterprise can't destroy these viruses after jettisoning them. The plot is secondary anyway, though well enough handled by the regulars and guest stars. But it serves a purpose. It introduces us to the changes that have occurred between seasons. It gives something for both the chief engineer and the doctor to do, introducing new characters in these roles. Well, Jordy isn't a new character, but it's his new position. About time a regular took that post. And for Pulaski, I think she drew a lot of ire from the fan base, and I can see why. For one thing, people were sad to see Beverly go. The character was engaging, and her potential seems wasted at this time. There's also the fact that Pulaski is derivative of Dr. McCoy, as if the creators were trying to recreate the bones Spock in fighting with her dismissive attitude towards Data. Yes, she rubs many people on the ship the wrong way, and because we care for them and not yet for her, that makes us dislike her. However, with uh, hindsight telling us that she'll only be on board for a year, even back then she was only ever a special guest star, I don't dislike her at all. She's tough and no-nonsense, but has a good bedside manner too, and scenes like the one where she mispronounces data are priceless and a necessary part of the android's development towards humanity. He's perhaps a little too emotional for my taste in this one, though. Data, look at this. Data. What? My name. It is pronounced Data. Oh? Well, what's the difference? One is my name. The other is not. Another new character aboard is Guinan, who commits her greatest sin in the series by advising Wesley to stay aboard. Uh, a bit unkind of me, as Will Wheaton is fine here, and it's not like I didn't notice his name in the credits, you know. Whoopi Goldberg plays a character unlike any she's ever played, either before or after this, and it frankly works. This mysterious and wise character even has a distinctive exotic or even alien look to her, and Ten Forward is a nice idea the first season never really showing a rec room per se. Other changes are more minor, but include distinct improvements in dress and hair design. Uh, Worf looks less like a pinhead and has fully replaced Tasha Yar. Riker's beard gives him a little more presence. 
Wesley's a new uniform, much better, less silly, and Troy looks gorgeous with her hair loose like that, though they go a bit heavy on her lipstick, in my opinion. One thing I should note, uh, because it really elevates the experience of watching The Child, is the direction. Unlike the script, this is a very fresh approach. The season starts with a dolly shot showing, in turn, all the aforementioned changes, beautifully executed. The camera moves show off a number of times, sometimes using special effects, such as moving in from outside the ship into 10 forward or showing us the bar's eye view of uh, going to warp or a shot of a shuttle leaving the shuttle bay or even the beam out sequence with a character staying behind after interacting with the transporting character. There's lots of cool moments like that. I give it a medium, a by the numbers story, but with interesting direction, good acting and a couple of important introductions. Next up, Where Silence Has Lease. I find myself constantly frustrated by this one from the teaser on. In that teaser, we have Worf and Riker in apparent danger on a planet's surface, but it turns out it's all a holodeck fantasy. While on repeat viewings, you would know this is Worf's calisthenics program, you know, it's still a red herring. One of many will have to get through watching this episode. And when you see it again, it's an extended fight scene that takes too long to make its point, Worf's bloodlust, and has no relation to the subsequent story. That story features an intriguing villain, one of many Star Trek godlike entities, but this one interested on running experiments on the crew. Unfortunately, it takes a very long time for Nagilam to make his actual presence known, running us through various illusions before doing so. A second appearance for the Romulans on TNG turns out to be nothing at all. And then we have a couple of characters running around on a mixed-up Yamato. It's one inconsequential set piece after another. Meanwhile, we have Pulaski treating Data like equipment in her most forced confrontation with the android. The dislike many fans feel for her stem from this very scene, in my opinion. Nagilam should have showed up sooner, because once he's there, the episode gets a bit better. He's interesting to look at, and Picard's solution to save his crew from suffering leads to a couple of pretty harrowing scenes. The captain wasn't bluffing either. Unfortunate that Nagilam appears a bit more stupid than necessary when sending illusions of Troy and Data to Picard's cabin, but those illusions make good points. Saving Grace... Riker's empathic agreement to cancel auto-destruct. Still, it takes much too long for where silence has least to get interesting, and once it does, it's pretty much all over. I give it a low rewatchability, actually. The concept, uh, while a bit derivative, had potential, but I don't like being toyed with any more than Picard does. Medium-low at best. Captain, sensors show nothing out there. Absolutely nothing. Elementary Deer Data is next. Where I found Picard's interest in Dixon Hill to come out of nowhere, Data has been into Sherlock Holmes ever since Lonely Among Us. In both this and The Big Goodbye, the plot centers around holograms realizing they are on the Enterprise. But in this case, Moriarty exceeds his programming and genre conventions to become truly aware. And Daniel Davis makes that character quite noble and endearing to boot. We're sorry to see him go at the end. Of course, there's the matter of accepting that the Enterprise computer is capable of creating a sentient hologram without being sentient itself, but once you do, and later evidence will show that such programs can become alive, you get a well-designed, well-acted, well-plotted-out story. In fact, there's no need for a B-plot unless you count Geordi's ho-hum model ship as that plot. Data does a good turn as Sherlock Holmes, deducing things in an entertaining way once he's no longer solving established uh, mysteries. I'm more of a Father Brown reader myself, but the tone of the Sherlock Holmes stories seem well presented and are fun to watch. Pulaski isn't as unpleasant as in the last episode here, even if she does challenge Data's sentience. Lamar Burton's cold is a little distracting to me, but he's having a lot of fun with the Watson character at times, and Picard is up to the challenge of meeting Moriarty, and 
and makes a difficult decision. This is good stuff. I give it a high. If you buy the premise, you're in for possibly the best holodeck malfunction story ever made. Here's Andy Capellish with his take on the episode. Elementary My Dear Data is about Data trying to be challenged by a holodeck program when Jordi LaForge and he realize that he will not be challenged enough by simply rerunning through Sherlock Holmes's uh, adventures. They challenge the holodeck to create a enemy worthy of Data, and in doing so, they uh, generate the butler from the Fran Drescher TV show, The Nanny, uh, who in this is playing Moriarty, but the Moriarty uh, becomes sentient, more sentient than he should be, and uh, starts to slowly take over control of the uh, Enterprise. Uh, there's a female crew member that is kidnapped, um, who I'm not familiar with. Dr. Pulaski. And uh, yes, they uh, the, the, over the course of the episode, you find out that Moriarty, uh, you know, has gained sentience. But, you know, after charming uh, Patrick Stewart with an impassioned plea to stay alive, Captain Picard uh, allows the rogue program to uh, be saved in the computer banks of the uh, Enterprise. So um, one day they can extract him. Where are we? Oh, yes. The outrageous Okona. A dismal failure, guys. The main plot deals with Captain Okona and his being wanted by two different worlds for different but related reasons. It's standard stuff, but made particularly unmemorable by not one of the main characters being the instrument of the plot's resolution. The episode is much more concerned with repeatedly telling us that Okona is a charming, appealing, and lovable rogue. You know, it can say that all it wants. I'm not buying it. I'm afraid this Han Solo knockoff is rather lacking in charm. Oh, the girls fall for him, including Terry Hatcher's small but well-remembered part, and the boys laugh at his jokes, but it's because the plot demands it. I'm afraid William Campbell doesn't quite have the charisma the script pretends he has. And if Data doesn't get his jokes, it may be because they really aren't funny. And then the, the whole story devolves into an Elizabethan misunderstanding that's very poorly acted with Okona coming up on top. Give him his own show, why don't you? I dare you. It's, is this a backdoor pilot? The subplot about Data exploring the concept of humor should have been more entertaining, but it isn't. Just like the rest of the episode, it is not funny. Joe Piscopo doing Jerry Lewis impressions, jokes about various ethnicities walking into a bar, an 80s audience. What were they thinking? Data chose his comic poorly, it seems. From zooming in on the list of available comics uh, in the holodeck, all of them are people that work on the production. So this guy's name was Ronald D. Moore. Poor Ron. That was a joke I just told you. I do not understand. Really, very, very few jokes work in this episode. My timing is digital, for example, which is sad considering the comic talent of many of the people involved, Whoopi Goldberg and Brent Spiner especially. I give it a low. Humor doesn't always work on Star Trek, but I've never seen it work just so badly. For a second opinion and a real tribute to William Campbell, straight from Argentina, here's Carlos Mucha. Why the original Ocona is one of my favorite episodes? Because he introduced Capitan... Tadius Ocona, played by Bill Campbell. Campbell is, of course, famous for being the star of one of my favorite movies, The Rocketeer. Tadius Ocona is the captain of a small cargo ship, charming, handsome, ladies' man, flying solo around the galaxy. Speaking of solo, he is like the Han Solo of the Star Trek universe, with all his freedom and rogue attitude. In the episode, the Enterprise finds Captain Ocona's ship with some minor propulsion damage and Captain Picard offer technical help and let Captain O'Connor be a guest on the Enterprise in the meantime. As soon as Captain O'Connor is transported inside the Enterprise, O'Connor begins to seduce the females of the crew, starting with the transported operation ship 
a very attractive Terry Hatcher, who of course is known for playing Lois Lane on the TV show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Captain O'Connor gets to sleep with three Enterprise female crew members. Take that, Riker. Speaking of Riker, of course, something very important to mention is that William Campbell, who played Captain O'Connor on this episode, was very close to play William T. Riker on the show. Yes, Bill Campbell was one of the last few actors who almost got the part of Riker. How different would have been Riker played by Bill Campbell? I think it would have been awesome. We will never know. My last note is that when I invented at Create a Star Trek role-playing game back in the 90s in Argentina, one of the few times that I was not the master and I get to play a character, of course I choose to play Captain O'Connor. Up next, loud as a whisper. Here's the thing. While the idea that in the future handicaps will be seen in a positive light is a worthy idea, the episode sort of works against its own argument. After all, Jordy has a visor, and Riva has a chorus. And in Jordy's case, it's not that I found it unlikely that he wouldn't give up the bulky and painful prosthetic for more normal vision, though go back and watch The Naked Now for another point of view, but that we never get closure on the subplot. It's disappointing. Of course, it is Riva's show, and on that character, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I quite respect the decision to cast a deaf-mute actor in the part. On the other, as with Okona, the script would have us believe he's this incredible charismatic. Sorry, but once again, I had trouble with this. The character is less than expressive, a little creepy in the romantic scenes, much too overbearing, for example, and so arrogant and picky that I couldn't see him in a mediation role. The chorus didn't really work for me either, and as with all of Troy's romances to date, there's no chemistry on screen. That said, I did like that Troy was a useful member of the crew, and how she forced Riva to turn his disadvantage into an advantage, an elegant solution. Also cool are the X-ray lasers used by the Solari to disintegrate the chorus. I'm giving this a medium, very close to medium-low, as it is let down not so much by the casting, but by how the script relates to that casting. It's really too bad that most Troy-heavy scripts are on the dull side. You read me well enough to sense how I feel about you, but I just wanted to say the words, thank you. The Schizoid Man, an episode that starts well enough, with a funny but abandoned bit about Data's beard, and a show-off shot of Pulaski boarding a turbo lift and arriving on the bridge without a camera cut. Nothing much to do with the plot, though. Uh, then we have the ridiculous near-warp transport that makes no sense at all when you examine it, even at a distance. So let's let's just gloss over that. And ah, we meet Dr. Salar, Susie Plaxon's first Star Trek character, and she's so memorable, fans frequently clamored for more, and she even became a regular on Peter David's Excalibur series in the pocket books. The cool Vulcan doctor probably has little bedside manner, but uh, this short appearance has remained intriguing and engaging. Ah, no offense, but I don't want you touching me in any way. It's no secret that I don't like people much, and I like doctors even less. Though, uh, I will admit for a doctor, you're not a bad-looking woman. Were they just trying to keep Pulaski off the transporter pad for the next episode, or what? Can't say I like sappy Kareel Bryanin as a character, uh, but uh, W. Morgan Shepard, Zyra Graves, is excellent. Arrogant, yes, but also philosophical and quirky. His scenes with Data are top-notch, full of great lines, and a high acting level. It's extremely disappointing, then, that he has to die to be replaced by 
A, a dummy corpse that doesn't really look like him, and B, a graves-possessed data that doesn't really act like him. I mean, Brent Spiner does another take on evil data that's fine in a vacuum, but I don't see how it truly relates to the Ira Graves we previously met. So the rest of the episode's a little slow-going, as Data-Graves piles insubordination atop insubordination and partakes in a dull little romance with Kirill. It's a big yawner that ends like you expect it to, and what should we think of scenes like the funeral? I could believe Data would say stuff like this in a failed attempt at poetry, but a genius like Graves is very badly written. Giving it a medium, great performances in the first half of the show are led down by the predictable possession plot that's not very well written at all in the second. Still, this is your only stop for live-action Dr. Salar. Doctors never used our transporter. Never. Oh, she's a woman of very strongly held opinions, sir. Unnatural selection. Well, I must admit, it was better than I expected. After all, what you remember from this is the rubber aging makeup that reminds one entirely too much of the deadly years, but with less quality, if you can believe it. It has other problems, of course, but some redeeming elements as well. For example, after making us dislike Pulaski intently in the last few episodes, and the damage was irreversible for many, she's entirely too brave and competent here not to redeem her somewhat. Yes, she's still fighting with Picard, but we learned that she quite admires the man, and both of them address the clash of personalities that neither had intended. She also collaborates with Data, to whom she's been pretty harsh in the past. Another character of note in this episode is Chief O'Brien. He's been on the show on and off since Encounter at Farpoint and regularly in the transporter room since the start of the second season. But in natural selection, he becomes the character we will later watch every week on Deep Space Nine. He's as smart and inventive as the bridge crew regulars here and a brilliant engineer that can patch anything together. This is the first time he's been so competent and active. It will be interesting to see him grow further. But while the characters are fine, the plot is not. For one thing, it makes problematic use of experiments on human DNA, which are illegal according to future shows. Uh, The genetically engineered children are creepy supermen that are adults at 12 years old and have antibodies that attack our own fragile immune systems. Uh, There's a reason this stuff is illegal, people. I do like the scientific investigation elements, and the final answer is interesting as well. So it's not all a wash, but while I think O'Brien comes into his own, the reset button he provides is uninspired and gratuitous. Just another magical cure thanks to the transporter, despite the almost contrived obstacle of finding Pulaski's DNA on file. That's why we can never see her on a transporter pad before this point. But all her life, I give this a medium. Watch it for the characters and the true introduction of Chief O'Brien. The plot is best forgotten, however. Captain's log, Stardate 42506.5. We have departed from Starbase 179 and are headed for a rendezvous with the Klingon vessel Park. I have informed the staff of Commander Riker's temporary assignment. A matter of honor. The second season is pretty ropey, but there are a couple of gems in the middle of it, and this is one of them. A fine episode. Okay, I can't say I'm a big fan of Mendon, but he has at least given us a chance to compare how different cultures might have different protocols. If he was there to learn, he certainly has something to bring home to Benzar. His scenes are all tied up with the microbiotic colony B-plot, which is just a MacGuffin, but works fairly well, especially Worf's part in all this. As long as we don't stay on this story too much. Because the Klingon side of this episode is the bomb. Now, when I'm asked who my favorite TNG character is, I always say Riker. My guess is that the opinion was first formed after seeing a matter of honor. What a great showcase for this character. Riker is able to gulp down a Klingon feast with relish and later live gach. 
uh, maneuver himself politically and in matters of honor aboard the Pa, create a camaraderie with his new crewmates, and kick some serious butt in the physical department. Excellent scenes, great dialogue, and a lot of insight into the Klingon psyche, Riker never misses a beat and comes out on top. If I have a problem with a matter of honor, it's that Cargan isn't made interesting or even intelligent. I'd rather spend more time with Clog, Dukath, and the females than go back on the bridge to suffer that single-minded fool again. I hope Clag did his duty not long after this. There's even something wrong with Cargan's makeup. I don't know if it was designed to stay under red lights, but when beamed aboard the Enterprise, it just looks awful. On a small note, since I mentioned O'Brien in, in the previous episode's review, here he's given a healthy sense of humor. Not big moments, but character building nonetheless. Easily a high. A matter of honor manages to make both Riker and the Klingons very cool indeed. When they're not on screen, it's not as interesting, but it's still not boring. For more on this episode, here is from Fanhole's podcast, Derek William Crabb, who has some personal connections to the episode. A Matter of Honor is probably the first episode I thought of when Siskoid said he was going to be doing a Next Generation retrospective. I love William Riker. I think this is one of the great standout spotlight episodes for him, and he's on a Klingon exchange program where he goes aboard the Klingon vessel the Pa, which is pretty awesome and it kind of exemplifies the actual mandate of Star Trek. He's exploring the unknown, he's doing something that no Starfleet officer has ever done and he's he's giddy and enthusiastic about it and he's also kind of cocky about the whole thing as well and he kind of gets in a little over his head but kind of like the whole re-Kirk Captain Kirk vibe that Riker tends to have he he does definitely turn the tables on any adversity that he faces and and kind of gets away scot-free for the most part it turns out to be a pretty cool episode all around I remember the scuttlebutt around the water cooler at my mom's work, my mom was a substitute teacher, was that our science teacher, his name was Mr. Hate, and if you look at the story by credits on A Matter of Honor, one of the story by credits is to a Wanda M. Hate, and that was actually Mr. Hate's wife. So I remember that was another reason why this episode always sort of stood out in my mind, because I guess way back when, when I was a seventh grader, I had this tertiary connection to a person who had written a screenplay for Star Trek, and I thought that was really, really cool. And Ironically, it turned out that that was one of my favorite episodes of Next Generation. I think another reason why this is pretty awesome is because of all the supporting cast involved. I mean, you've got Brian Thompson as one of the second officers, Officer Clagg, and Brian Thompson is probably best known as either the alien bounty hunter in the X-Files or as the judge on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I, I think he's, he's excellent in this, and sometimes he probably was typed cast as just kind of a big, lumbering, menacing person that, you know, was an adversary for various heroes in science fiction fantasy genres. But I think here it really gives him an opportunity to act and, and have multiple layers to his character because he is an intimidating force when Riker comes aboard the PA, but he also has layers to his performance where he becomes essentially an ally and a friend of Riker by the end of the episode. So I, I really think that performance is great from Brian Thompson. And then, of course, we all know that I'm a big Transformer 
Transformers fan and any Transformers fan that is worth their salt will know that Christopher Collins is actually the... I guess it's his SAG name, or, or he changed it, but basically he is credited in Transformers and G.I. Joe as Chris Lotta. And Chris Lotta, of course, is famous for, or maybe infamous, for playing Starscream and Cobra Commander. Although in this, he sounds quite a bit more like Sparkplug, the dad for the Transformers ally Spike. And if you, you listen really closely for the most part he kind of sounds like an angry spark plug the whole time he's playing captain cargon but every once in a while when he kind of raises his voice and starts screaming you can kind of hear a little bit of Starscream and Cobra Commander in his performance. But yeah, I, I think this episode is is awesome and I actually rewatched it just so I could do a little blurb for the show and I think it holds up and it's still really, really good and I, I was kind of really excited to be talking about it. Thanks, guys. The Measure of a Man. Well, that's two in a row now and I dare say this episode is better than the last. In fact, I think it rightfully has its place in TNG's top 10. The earliest episode to merit that position, in my opinion. Data's sentience is addressed in a courtroom episode that transcends that genre and manages to touch me and many fans profoundly. There are two big moments for me. One is when Riker goes up against Data and uses the Pinocchio metaphor he came up with back in Encounter at Farpoint when he first took to the android to nail the case shut. The commander is a physical representation of a dream, an idea conceived of by the mind of a man. Its responses dictated by an elaborate software written by a man. Its hardware built by a man. And now a man will shut it off. Pinocchio is broken. Its strings have been cut. Not only is that a great oratory, but the what-have-I-done look on his face after that is priceless. Right after it, we get a scene between Picard and Guinan where she makes Picard see the truth behind the case, that treating data as property is tantamount to signing off on slavery. The way she does this... Well, consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. They do the dirty work. They do the work that no one else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of data is all disposable. You don't have to think about their welfare. You don't think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. He's talking about slavery. I think that's a little harsh. It's brilliant and comes from just the right actress, too. It has real weight and sends Picard into his own great oratory. Face it, we don't know anything about 24th century law, so oratory is what good TV lawyering is all about. Picard has always been great at this. Anyway, I don't mind telling you those two scenes make me sob. The episode also scores points by making Maddox somewhat sympathetic and Data extremely gracious to both the cyberneticists and Riker. Captain Louvois is a bit of an odd character, but I think the characterization is consistent, even if her moods are not. She seems to be someone with a big mouth, who nonetheless has trouble with confrontation. She wants to be sassy and say what she thinks, but at the same time regrets it when there are consequences to her words. 
I know the feeling well. I can definitely see how Picard developed a grudge against her, and that's well played too, since it seems undeserved. But life is like that. Nice touches throughout. I give it a high. One of my all-time favorites. It's in my personal top three, I would imagine. And it starts off with an interesting question about Android sentience and becomes so much more. For even more praise, here's uh, our very own Rob Kelly. While I watched Star Trek The Next Generation regularly uh, during its original run, I didn't catch every single episode. And so later in the uh, early 90s, when I worked at a video store, Movies Unlimited, I went back and started to fill in the gaps of all the episodes I had missed since we had the entire run of the series on videotape. I started uh, from episode one and I would rewatch the ones I'd already seen, but then I would catch the ones that I had missed the first time around. And one of the ones that I had missed that I fell in love with instantly was Measure of a Man. When Data resigns his commission rather than be dismantled for examination by an inadequately skilled scientist. A formal hearing is convened to determine whether Data is considered property without rights or is a sentient being. Of course, and the big hook of this episode is that Riker, Commander Riker, is pressed into service as the prosecution, which is, of course, a job he does not want because Data is his friend. I'm a sucker for great uh, trial stories. Uh, some of my favorite movies are trial movies, whether it's To Kill a Mockingbird, Witness for the Prosecution, or The Verdict, or Inherit the Wind, which kind of plays into this episode later on. Uh, I love trial stories. And while, you know, I love Star Trek for space battles and aliens and all sorts of crazy foo I liked the small scale of this, that it's just a trial episode and it's it's a think piece. Some of the um, my favorite episodes of the original series are just sort of think pieces about, you know, is Data a real life boy or is he merely proper? And I just thought the whole episode was handled very, very well. It was written by Melinda Snodgrass, who was an attorney in real life. And this was her first attempt at writing a television script. And I think it's that verisimilitude that she brings to it, which makes the episode uh, so great. And the act five, when Picard puts Maddox on the stand, and Maddox, of course, is the one who's advocating for Data to be turned into basically just property. Uh, it recalls Inherit the Wind, which is one of my all-time favorite movies where Spencer Tracy calls Frederick March on the stand to serve as a witness against his own case. So I thought that was a great turn of events. It's a really, really fine episode. A couple of uh, trivia details worth getting into. It features Clyde Kusatsu as Admiral Nakamura. Uh, he appeared on four different episodes of MASH. I had to get that in. This episode is the first appearance of the poker game, which of course would be something that we would see in Next Gen going on all the way through till the end of the series, including the final scene of the final episode. It was directed by Robert Shearer, who who also directed Ants, a.k.a. It Happened at Lakewood Manor, which is my all-time favorite TV movie. And that movie stars Robert Foxworth, who would chalk up appearances on DS9 and Enterprise. So, again, I just think this is a really terrific episode. It's got a lot to say. I love the idea that all the space stuff can take a, a break and just we're just going to focus on the basic humanity of one of our favorite characters, which is, of course, Data, which is, again, which is why Major of a Man, I think, is one of Star Trek's not only TNG's finest episodes is one of the finest episodes of the Star Trek franchise, period. That level of quality couldn't last. Next up is the Dauphin. After two spectacular episodes, we're given this turgid piece about love at first sight between a warp theory nerd and a shape-shifting blob of light. Oh, Sally has played well enough by Jamie Hubbard, but it's never a good idea to give too much emotional material for Will Wheaton to play. It's all a little ridiculous. And then you have the classic switch where he's angry at her for being an alien and then does the right thing. 
Spare me. To add to the problems, there's the Anya character. As a governess, she's mean and unreasonable, but worse, she's always saying stuff like, I'm more powerful than all of you, with extra grandstanding when Worf is nearby. I'm glad the Klingon doesn't let himself be intimidated, though those scenes go on too long. Worf is at least interesting in them. But Anya does have other forms. What's with the girl Salia's age? And what about the teddy bear form? Is she teacher, friend, guardian, and pet? It's needlessly confusing. The Trek canon is also extremely fond of creating mythical shapeshifter races. Never the same one, but everyone is always amazed creatures like this exist. Cameloids, changelings. Anyway, in this case, the effects are pretty awful. Between hairy rubber suits, about man trap caliber, claymation type morphs, and cheesy blue screen effects. If there's a saving grace, it is those scenes where Wesley seeks advice about love. Riker and Guinan make a fun double act, engrossed in their little improvisation, parodying flirting, but at the same time enjoying it. Guinan returns later with good advice, though there's there's nothing new here. Worf's discussion of Klingon mating rituals is so over the top, you have to wonder if he's not having a bit of fun with Wesley, but over the top in a good way. Still, it's hard going for the rest of the episode. I have to give it a low. Despite a couple of cute moments, I'm not including Wesley's kiss in there, this romance is dead on arrival like many, and the episode is further sunk by overreaching effects, an over-the-top performance by Patty Edwards as Anya, and the lack of a decent B-plot to take refuge in. Next up, Contagion. It had the potential to be a whole lot more interesting than it actually is. The Romulans are in it, for example, and though not imaginary like the last time in Where Silence Has Lease, they are impotent. Seems like TNG's having trouble creating formidable opponent races, what with the Klingons being on our side now and the Ferengi turning out to be silly. We should be able to count on the Romulans. Alas, we cannot. On the upside, the Iconians are an interesting ancient race, and the whole archaeological mystery aspect of the episode is quite good. Picard does well here, and we're introduced to his hobby, as well as hearing the classic Tea, Earl Grey, hot. For the first time. Uh, the malfunctions that rage across the Enterprise are mostly standard stuff, but I have to give props to Geordi's Turbolift tumble. Well done, amusing, scary, and informative about how the lifts work. Too bad that the rest of the problems are so ordinary. Of course, seeing the Yamato blow up was pretty cool too. It's all pretty watchable, but there's a couple of things that annoy me too much for this to be a classic. For some reason, characters are written as dumb in this story, and that always makes me frown. Nurses that have never heard of splints, uh, computer-proficient people that have never heard of computer viruses or of rebooting, and then it ends a little too easily with Picard punching a few buttons. But it looks great, and the story keeps you interested, even if the solutions let it down as too obvious. I'm giving it a medium. There are a number of good moments and a lot of episodes who build on what happens in Contagion. But if you're computer savvy in the least, you'll find the characters a bit dense here. Baby needs a new pair of shoes. The Royale. Uh, this is a holodeck malfunction episode without a holodeck in it, basically. I'm not sure if we're supposed to think the badly written novel that the Royale reality is based on is amusing, because it very rarely is. We just have to suffer through irrelevant scenes that don't interact with our characters at all. All the Mickey D stuff, for example. At least with the Texas subplot, you have the interaction with Data, though the characters are insufferably stupid. But the other stuff is just so much padding. A lot like the pointless format 
subplot aboard the Enterprise. It all starts well enough uh, with the discovery of NASA debris and the premise is an intriguing one, but once Colonel Ritchie is discovered, there's very little left to do. Riker's solution is fun, but I have to wonder what happened to the actual investors from the novel. They should have been in there somewhere, right? So it doesn't really work. Likewise, Data's winning at craps is very entertaining, but Data is out of character during those scenes. In the end, the bad novel is just an excuse not to write interesting guest characters and comes across as a cost-saving exercise with part of the set, a simple black studio floor. So I'm giving it a low. I thought I could enjoy it as a comedy, but aside from a few data moments, I rather feel like Colonel Ritchie waiting for the end. Captain's log supplemental. Part of the mystery has been solved. The reason there are two number five shuttlecrafts is because one of them is from the future. Six hours, to be exact. And so, presumably, is the facsimile of me. Time squared. Uh, temporal paradox episodes? Yeah, they can be immensely entertaining, but as with We'll Always Have Paris, TNG misses the mark here. Uh, the problem is that the story is too opaque, yielding too few answers. Uh, things happen just because they happen, and the characters aren't even shy about saying so. I've read that this was originally going to be a setup for Q Who, and that Q would appear at the end to reveal this was a test to see if Picard could solve a non-linear riddle, a test he will administer in all good things eventually. Well, those plans fell through, and so we're left without a clue as to what just happened. It's too bad, because the scientific mystery is intriguing, and Patrick Stewart plays his present self remarkably well. You know the show is acting-based when they allow for a scene where he just goes to the shuttle bay, stares at the future shuttle for a moment, then leaves wordlessly. Now, Picard confronts a future indecision in a considerably complex performance. I don't like that Troy and Pulaski have to reduce it to psychobabble, especially since Stewart manages to convey it, all without that unnecessary exposition. Release him. Do you know what you're doing? No, release him. It's a hair-raising ending, but it's hard to see how this is more than a leap of faith, really. Other things to like include some background on Riker, setting up the next episode, and his fondness for cooking. And then there's the seamless duplicated Picard scenes, which are well done. I have to give it a medium. Watch it for Patrick Stewart's acting and the science fiction questions the episode poses. Just don't expect a satisfying resolution. In the end, it just makes the episode forgettable. Well, the Icarus factor. I hate to give a character-building episode like this a bad review, but having just sat through it, I'm, I have to. Its goal is a noble one, a character-driven story or two, Without a villain, spatial anomaly, or what have you, I'm all for that. But the Icarus factor falls short of that goal. Just let's look at it plot by plot. The A-plot concerns Riker's reunion with his estranged father. Now, this is something I can definitely empathize with. And Jonathan Frakes plays all the emotional baggage very well. And you don't get a sense that it's all resolved for him, despite the non-reciprocal hugs at the end. No cliched, uh, we all love each other after all ending. What lets it down? The absurd Ambojitsu match, for one thing. The suits are silly, sapping some of the drama from the scenes, especially sold as the ultimate evolution in martial arts. More distracting, however, is all the, the cycle babble coming out of Troy and Pulaski in this one. Jeez, not only is it none of their business, it smacks of gossiping more than professional interest, but it's insipid. The two men's acting speaks louder than words, in my opinion, even if I somewhat enjoyed Cal Riker squaring off against Deanna. The B-plot concerns Worf's right of ascension, or more properly, Wesley's budding into the Klingon's business. 
It's an interesting side trip, though again, there's loads of psychobabble about family and friends and feeling isolated. Uh, uh, enough already. The peek into Klingon culture is appreciated, but everything leading up to it, somewhat dull. There's also a small subplot dealing with an anomaly in the engine systems that amounts to very, very little, and Pulaski's little backstory that's more than fortuitous. More interesting, but equally flawed, is Riker's decision whether or not to take command of the Ares. Some fair-to-good scenes between Riker and Picard, and Riker and Troy follow, but it creates a problem. This is the second command Riker has turned down now, and just makes his role as second-in-command more and more dubious as the years advance. If he wasn't on such a fast track, it wouldn't seem as strange. So yeah, Alo tries to keep too many balls in the air and drops them all. The regulars are good when the weight of the psychoanalytical babble-a-thon doesn't smother them. Captain's log, stardate 42741.3. We are entering into orbit of Drema 4, the planet from which data received the distress signal. Sensors indicate that the volcanic activity is increasing. Pen pals! This one continues the latterly tradition of adding character details to the main cast, like Picard's fondness for writing, Data's SETI-inspired hobby, and Worf's deadpan angry humor, and that's a good thing. But the buck stops there. If you're going to buy this story, you have to suspend disbelief in the worst possible way. By now, we know these characters too well to believe they would act this way. Data, the emotionless android with a spotless record, has his heart touched by a little girl's plight and goes on to knowingly break the Prime Directive over and over again? Ridiculous. And by the end, I was exasperated as he left her a singing stone. Picard isn't much better, although he acts angry and scores some major points when discussing the Prime Directive, he lets it all happen. He folds when he hears Sarjenka's voice. He lets Data walk all over him. As Riker glares at them both, might I add. It just doesn't work. Not at all. We're meant to think it's also very cute, but Sarjenka's makeup does not make her look cute. Nothing about that plot makes sense, except maybe O'Brien's quips. Actually, it makes the B-plot concerning Wesley's first command the more watchable element of Pen Pals. Well, that's a scary thought, but it's merely okay with the highlight being some of the advice he gets from Riker. Uh, Nogainen seems like she would have been a key player here. In the Icarus Factor too, come to think of it. In any case, this is played well enough by all involved and without malice on the Ensign's part. All the talk about leadership and decision-making just underscores Picard's lack of such in this episode. I'm giving it a low. When a Wesley subplot is the best thing about an episode... You know you're in trouble. Picard and Data are woefully out of character. It's inexcusable at this point, even though the discussion about the Prime Directive is an interesting one on the philosophical level. Q-Who. Whoa, Nelly. After a couple of stinkers, the show's back on track, bringing back an old enemy and creating a new one. Are there two opponents more emblematic of TNG than Q and the Borg? Uh, Q, for his part, is written much better than in his last appearance, Hide and Q, a mix of humor and foreboding. Maybe it's because he's sparingly used to make room for the other antagonists. But his scenes really sing. He creates a real dilemma for Picard, and the good captain is the bigger man, admitting defeat as a means of saving his ship. Q's little lesson is a hard-learned one, and you simply can't dismiss this one as fluff. It also helps that his flashes are particularly well executed. The pivoting chair, the various switches between characters, it's beautiful. As for the Borg, they're more a force of nature than a race here, and very intriguing. An original ship design, very powerful weapons, and that hive attitude that is totally unlike any other Trek enemy race. If they have a weakness, it's that they're not very good conversationalists, and giving them a face may prove difficult to do, and not necessarily satisfying. What we see of them is cool, though, including the interior mat shot, 
the Dune-style shields and the cutting beam, taking out a cross-section of the saucer. I was less enthused with the regeneration effect, which seemed more like the surface of a plastic model than that of a Borg cube, but the effects budget was certainly strained. Q not only brought the Enterprise to the Borg, but set things in motion for the Borg to come to Federation space. They will be coming. Indeed. Chilling cliffhanger, although they've already come by if we go by the neutral zone. Tying the two enemies together is Guinan who has had dealings with both. While this causes problems in later continuity, what kind of power does she have over Q? What is she really, if not what she appears? Why does the Federation not know about the Borg if the Elorians encountered them? There's a nice aura of mystery surrounding the character here. I like the claws coming out when Q appears, like some kind of protective spell. And of course, it's nice to finally have some backstory on her character. It's just too bad much of it would never really pay off. Another guest character I found fun to watch is Sonia Gomez, uh, who could definitely have stayed on board in the same capacity as Guinan or O'Brien, in my opinion. She's bubbly, she's clumsy, she's pretty, she's got a light comedic touch. Uh, how long was she going to keep rubbing Picard's chest there? And a lot more personality than a couple of regulars I won't name. Uh, she appears in a few scenes and is basically there as comic relief before heading into darker territories. She'll also be the star of a number of ebooks. Kyuhu even features music that's more on par with that of the movies than the regular TV show. So this is a home run on all elements. Uh, give it a high. The Borg start out with great potential. and But beyond that, the episode has great performances, effects, guest stars, and writing. It's a must-see. And here is the network's own Zoom Yukonori with another take on the episode. Episode Analytical Report Supplemental. Stardate 42761.3. Ensign Zoom Yukonori speaking. I had mentioned in episode 24 of Gimme That Star Trek that I had found the first two seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation difficult to rewatch, as both the characters and the program were noticeably working to set the course, as it were. But there were a handful of episodes that had stood out among the others during these formative and sometimes meandering early years, and my favorite episode among these is Q Who. And what made this a standout episode to me was the introduction of the Borg. This was all part of a lesson orchestrated by the extremely powerful and equally vexing Q to inform the Enterprise crew that they, and the Federation for that matter, were essentially a little fish in the larger pond of the universe, a universe with much bigger fish. The Borg was a formidable, not quite adversary. There was no malevolence behind their actions, but the Borg were downright scary, and not just because they looked like a Captain Power villain reimagined by H.R. Geiger. Essentially, they had vastly superior technology, and they had no emotions, nor logic, to which the Federation officers could appeal. So it was no wonder that the Enterprise and its crew did not stand a chance against them. Further, the haunting score by Ron Jones, as well as the sinisterly menacing tone of Q's narration, describing both the Borg and what the Borg would eventually do once it captured the Enterprise, which was wonderfully conveyed by the brilliant John DeLancey, by the way. These elements were able to further elevate the horror in this episode, even while the Borg were off-screen. Again, there was no way the Enterprise could triumph, or even retreat, from their battle with the Borg. It required the intervention of Q, and Picard admitting that he needed Q's help in order to escape. And that's what makes this episode brilliantly unique from the previous Q episodes from Season 1, in which Q was essentially proven wrong in his assessment of humanity and how humans would behave in certain situations. Actually, he was proven wrong here in that respect as well. 
because it seemed that Q was so sure that Picard possessed too much pride and arrogance to humble himself to ask, even beg, for Q's assistance. But Q was also proven right in the rest of his assessment that the Federation explorers, though they believed that they were essentially ready for anything, were actually not fully prepared for the dangers that lurked in the unknown recesses of space. In the epilogue, it was revealed that the Federation would have eventually encountered the Borg sometime in the future. But Q moved up the timetable, and now the Borg were sure to be coming for them. And the final line from Picard about them needing a kick in their complacency to prepare for what lay ahead, demonstrated that he had learned from Q's lesson. And despite the loss of 18 crewmen, Picard may have actually appreciated what Q had done. One other thing I had liked about Q who, and it would turn into a major quibble with the rest of the series later, was how this episode hinted at Guinan's backstory, and that she had abilities possibly on par with the omnipotent Q, as well as a potentially insidious mystery in her history. Unfortunately, these hints were never truly explored in the rest of the series, hence my major quibble. Yukonori out. Next up is Samaritan Snare, a well-remembered episode thanks to two things, really. One of these is the Packleds, the idiots of the galaxy, whose oversimple mode of speech makes them fairly funny. They're more cunning than they seem, however, using others' perceptions of their intelligence to their advantage, and yet... They're pretty dumb too. Dangerous but dumb. Or perhaps because they're dumb. This deflates Riker's strategic prowess somewhat, but I still enjoyed how out of the box he always is in his battle tactics. It's one of the reasons I enjoy the character so much. The other memorable moment is Picard's retelling of his encounter with some Nausikins and why he now has an artificial heart. Patrick Stewart knows how to handle a long speech, and it's all interesting backstory about Picard, but more than that, it'll be featured prominently in a future episode. I do have some difficulty with Wesley in these scenes, though, uh, with his over-obvious reaction shots of whining about how Picard doesn't like him and acting like some kind of interviewer for a high school paper. On a side note, is it me, or did anyone else get the feeling from Encounter at Farpoint till now that we were being prepared for the revelation that Wesley was actually Picard's son? Just a vibe I always get when they have these kinds of scenes together. But the real problem with Samaritan Snare is that it is badly written, ignoring a lot of what has gone before, and it hasn't even been two seasons yet, so the homework is pretty light. For example, Wesley reacts to Picard's story as if he's never seen a blade come out of his own torso in Hide and Q. Uh, Wesley says something about before the Klingons joined the Federation, and they never have. Riker doesn't believe Troy when she says the Packleds are up to no good, but she's never been wrong before. Wesley is getting Academy credits, but his application was refused in Coming of Age. And there's even a reuse of the Angel One matte painting. There's more sloppy writing, though, including a long shuttle trip the Enterprise could have handled in a few minutes only, uh, the Packleds' apparent tricking of Romulans, etc., that's all hard to believe. A lot of stupid moves on Riker's part, not listening to Worf or Troy, sending over one guy instead of a team, and the big battle of egos between Picard and Pulaski that scarcely makes sense at this point. Especially if you're going to blurt out your secret to a 16-year-old later that afternoon. I'm glad to see Gomez again, but sadly, they didn't keep her. That was really too bad. I'm giving it a medium. The Packleds are a hoot, though it wears pretty thin by the middle of the episode, and the insight into Picard's character is definitely worth watching. Unfortunately, the plot is on autopilot. Can you make our ship go? And really lets the rest down. Now let's hear from Adam Ackerman, in whose heart this episode has a special place. So Meriden Snares up there is one of my most mentioned episodes of The Next Generation. Not because of it being a good episode, or because of Geordi being kidnapped, 
to somehow upgrade the weapon system on the ship and then have to be rescued, but because of the packlets. Or, more to the point, their speech. After that episode aired, it has been a thing with the people I know, if we royally messed something, we would paraphrase the packlet line. Things to make us go, we need help. And then, after somehow fixing it, use, we are smart. And so, because of this, this is one of the episodes I recall the most. Up the long ladder. Hmm, the ideas behind this one have promise, but the execution, oof. Uh, the episode concerns two colonies, great-looking systems, by the way, uh, dropped from the same seed ship, but who have developed along very different lines. In the end, they'll have to realize the need to reunite for both their sakes. Typical SF irony. But it's not a bad story structure. Uh, furthermore, one of the societies is made up of the clones of only five people who are looking to clone the Enterprise crew to inject new DNA into their gene pool, a controversial subject today, and by the reactions of the crew... It seems humanity will reject this idea as fundamentally wrong. It's a one-sided debate, really, but the ideas are certainly worth thinking about. Beyond that, I'm afraid Up the Long Ladder just doesn't work, and is even annoying. Uh, the more primitive Bringloidi are especially offensive Irish stereotypes, causing havoc on the ship with their ancient ways, and more concerned with getting drunk than anything else. It's supposed to be funny, but it isn't. The Odell character is especially bad with his over-the-top accent, in particular when he makes those funny faces after drinking Worf's powerful cocktail. Nothing funny about it, or about his Send in the clones line at the end. The Irish jig music in the background is equally condescending. Brenna Odell is a stronger character, but is reduced to manhunting and or manhating, as if she couldn't make up her mind. And a highlight of her scenes with Riker remains his pickup line. And what are you staring at? you never seen a woman before. I thought I had. Oh, that Riker. But playing on the Irish stereotype is essentially racist. Uh, the Mariposans aren't as silly, but they are very badly written too. I'm sure there are synonyms that could have been used for repugnant. Or is their vocabulary cloned as well? They steal some DNA, the clones get destroyed. Uh, how are these clones educated if they're created full-grown? It's all pretty pointless in the end. The final solution is serendipitous and seems forced on all concerned by the Enterprise crew. Not as elegant as the show's creators would have us believe, I'm afraid. There's also an odd little subplot about Worf getting the Klingon measles and then sharing poisonous tea with Pulaski. Intriguing, but since it doesn't figure again, it's all padding. Definitely a low, it tries to be light-hearted and humorous, but falls flat on its face. Not one to make copies of and pass around to your friends. Speaking of friends, one of my readers, Andrew Gilbertson, had this to say. Besides making Riker a murderer when he shoots his own clone and being headache-inducing, this episode is bone-stupid and a personal quibble at the end. Either the characters or the writers are mathematical and statistical idiots. When it's stated that each woman will need to take three husbands, the Bringloidi leader immediately goes to pick out his three wives. And let's not forget Troy's absurd leap of logic to the most illogical conclusion based on a single word from Picard when proposing this solution. Makes Adam West Batman solving of the Riddler's riddles look positively sane. I loathe this episode more than any TNG. Yes, even more than Shades of Grey. Whoa! Oh, spoilers! I think we must not lose sight of the fact that we are talking about someone who has been granted ambassadorial rank, even though she may appear somewhat eccentric. Though Oksana Troy must be treated with the appropriate respect. Is that understood? Oksana Troy returns in Manhunt. This one has the Antidians, 
uh, one of them played by Mick Fleetwood. Uh, they're cool, but are they really the villains of the piece? Much like Picard's various holographic foes, they don't cause too many problems, being stopped in less than 10 seconds flat by a Deus Ex Machina, so the fishy aliens are fun, but don't amount to much. Basically, only a springboard for Luaxana's racist comments. Uh-oh. Uh, no, the real antagonist here is Luxana Troy herself, a pain in the butt in Haven. She was at least enjoyable there. Not so here. With her libido quadrupled or more, her characterization limits itself to two traits, lascivious and stupid. The former is expressed as the usual inferences that Picard is having naughty thoughts about her, something I've never really been fond of in the first place. But in this instance, it just gets incredibly repetitive. Once she's eyed Wesley, she's straight too far. On the stupidity front, we have her looking for her legs when beaming in, taking a hologram for a real person, never realizing that this was a simulated environment aboard the ship, not knowing how to work a computer, etc. Her attitude has always been a little anachronistic when compared to the Enterprise's professionals, but never more so than here. There are better moments, such as Data acting as a chaperone, and there's the smile on Picard's face when arriving at dinner that does betray a certain attraction for the middle-aged Betazoid, Riker's having fun throughout. Uh, the scenes on the holodeck where Picard tries to adjust the program's violence level are cute, as is Picard's inviting Madeline to the bar. But this is all padding, trying to cover up the fact that the script is pretty slim to begin with. Have to give it a low. Another attempt at a comedic episode fails miserably, and if fandom dislikes Luxana, I believe that attitude began with Manhunt. The Emissary. This is an important one. Uh, let's get this out of the way. Suspension of disbelief must be exercised in this episode to explain how the Klingons ever thought that having a crew come out of suspended animation 75 years in the future would give them a tactical advantage. Was this a suicide mission? It'd probably have made more sense to say the ship entered a temporal anomaly by accident, but it doesn't matter anyway. Once you buy the premise, the rest of the episode is outstanding. Uh, Susie Plaxon made a good impression as Dr. Solar back in The Schizoid Man, but as the half-Klingon Kaelair, she creates a strong, sexy, funny, and smart character that's more than a match for Worf. All her scenes sing, from her mysterious arrival to her bloodlust to her relationship with Worf. Kaelair is a very angry person that does not take well to being told what to do or to rejection, which causes sparks to fly often. As a result, we get a major character-building episode for Worf, planting the seeds for much to come, including his seasons on Deep Space Nine. The rather sadistic mating reminds us these are aliens with their alien attitudes and values, but does not detract from the romance. And Kaelair has enough good scenes with other members of the crew to make us wish she'd been a more regularly seen character. Worf's solution is a good one, and he looks great in a Klingon uniform. Though we know he's sat in it before, I love the line, Comfortable chair. Uh, the holodeck sequence has some fun aliens, though I can't decide if Skeletor's death is cool or cheesy. Uh, happy to see the poker game from The Measure of a Man return, but it goes on a bit too long or is too slowly paced, perhaps. On the musical side, the new Klingon love theme is a beautiful piece that adds a lot of value and poignancy to the emissary. I give it a high. Everything combines to make you long for Kaelair's return, as both the cast and the crew turn in one of the best Worf episodes ever. Next up is peak performance. I've always been rather fond of this one, which may be why I thought I, it lacked a certain something upon rewatching it. Because I'm a big fan of Riker's strategic prowess, and it's certainly fun to hear about his earlier successes and see how much he and his crew cheat uh, in preparation for the simulation. Discussions of his jovial command style help highlight how much the character has grown since his rather serious first season. 
I really like how and why he recruits his people, for example. And then there's Serna Rami, the uppity Zagdorn played with gusto by Roy Brocksmith. Very memorable. We can't really understand Stratagema, but the ease with which he beats Riker and Data is fun and makes his eventual defeat all the more enjoyable. It also seems that Pulaski has finally warmed up to Data here at the end of her tenure. But where the show loses points is in its use of the Ferengi, coming in late as they do. Uh, they're sort of a waste, and they steal attention away from the battle simulation. The way the episode was shaping up, we'd have been quite content with just seeing if Riker could defeat the Enterprise and Cyrna. Putting them in more jeopardy was an okay decision, and they did use the strategies they prepared for the sim, but it wasn't necessary, in my opinion. Additionally, the end of the battle is somewhat messy, with Worf somehow sending out false sensor information without any kind of Ferengi access code. So I'm going with medium, a great setup, uh, making a number of characters stand out, but an abrupt complication in Act 4 doesn't offer the same level of enjoyment. But let me get a friend on here. Fred Melanson uh, will give us some insight on this episode. I really like this episode because of the whole War Games uh, feel to it, like uh, Riker trying to poach some of the best uh, um, senior officers from uh, the Enterprise to get the USS Hathaway up and running, like this old derelict ship that has no chance in hell against the Enterprise, and he, he kind of goes around the, the Enterprise and poaches all the best, smartest minds, like Geordi and... and uh, um, Wesley and gets him on his ship uh, to try and get it up to speed even though he doesn't stand a chance in hell he kind of does that with the uh, game of Stratagema too like he doesn't stand a chance in hell but he just wants to give it his best and I think this is an episode where Riker really shines for that his his uh, ambition and um, his his willingness to fight and he never backs down he's like kind of cocky that way so it's great for that but to me this episode is really about uh, data and how data learns to be more human learns to make mistakes because that's something he doesn't do as an android he's always precise and correct and when he loses to a biological brain it kind of affects him because he feels he's malfunctioning and this is where we get the great line from picard it's possible to make no mistakes and still lose it's not a weakness it's life um this is one of the great life lessons that data learns and it's great for everyone to learn that too because i mean we all go through life and then it doesn't go our way and it's good to remind ourselves that sometimes we don't do anything wrong and bad stuff still happens. I, I really like this episode because it kind of mirrors the idea of the Kobayashi Maru from um, TOS in which uh, they're faced with a no-win scenario and they improvise and and find a way to win. Riker with his small warp jump to pretend that the, the Hathaway's blown up and uh, Data with his, his trying to tie instead of trying to win. Uh, they both find a way out of a scenario where they can't possibly win. And that, to me, is what peak performance is all about. It's about finding a way when you don't have one. We haven't got a prayer. Would you like to transfer back to the Enterprise, Mr. Crusher? And now, Shades of Grey, the one you've been waiting for. I understand that the writer's strike made it hard for the second season to get as many episodes as they wanted, so 22 instead of 26, a few of them using scripts from the pre-motion picture series development, but a clip show? A clip show? Uh, we get 15 minutes worth of new material, I counted, before Pulaski starts triggering the flashbacks, and less than 20 new minutes overall. 
in that period, we do get to see a couple of interesting things. Uh, Riker's good humor in the face of death, for example, makes the character even more endearing than before. The interstitial material shows Pulaski as very competent. After all, this is her swan song. Uh, but Troy is much too teary. Get a hold of yourself, girl. And though the clip show is given some kind of plot-driven reasoning, it's not even a good clip show. First, by filtering it through a single character, it can't possibly be a best of the first two seasons. Even within Riker's own experience, I'm afraid we're not getting the cream of the crop. I'd happily have given up material from Justice and Angel 1 to see scenes from The Measure of a Man and Q Who. I'm not sure we got the best scenes of A Matter of Honor either. Minuet's back, but that's about the only place I didn't fast-forward. Further, the episode sets a trap for itself, showing material that couldn't possibly have been in Riker's memory, such as bridge scenes where he's on the planet, or, for no apparent reason, part of the Genesis effect. Conveniently, there's nothing from before he joined the Enterprise crew. Bottom line, though, even if you accept the idea of a clip show... It's much too early to have one after only two seasons. Rewatchability? Low? None? Worst season finale ever, guys. The flashbacks can't even properly be called highlights. And so the second season ends on a definite whimper. We're still here. We'll take a break to collect our thoughts, and then uh, we'll be back with the third. I think things have to look up at this point. Attention. Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com Jocularity! Jocularity! So the Enterprise D is back for a third season uh, with Evolution, and immediately you can see there's a new polish on everything. The new uniforms are a vast improvement over the old ones, the episode doesn't skimp on sets, and the outer space shots are simply beautiful, including the new and very appropriate opening sequence. Let's expand on the universe beyond our own solar system. The biggest change, of course, is the return of Gates McFadden as Dr. Crusher. I think she was immensely gracious to come back after being booted off after the first season, and we're all the better for it. First off, she's looking great, and more importantly, she doesn't seem to have missed a beat. The other actors all found their characters during the second season to become very much what they remain today. Beverly wasn't afforded that chance, leaving when she was still annoyingly overprotective of Wesley and awkward with Picard because of a pointless subplot. But look at her here. She's still protective, but I wouldn't say annoyingly so. She's more balanced, stronger, still hurt when Wesley resents her absence, but able to bounce back from that pain and quite amusing in the final 10 forward moment. It's like she was never gone, and it's probably the best thing about this episode. Has he ever been in love? Um... I can't say the same thing about Paul Stubbs, however, the guest star. We've got all these characters we haven't seen all summer, originally, obviously, and we want to catch up with them. There's this guest character that's taking up all the room. To make matters worse, he's pompous and whiny and works against the crew. He's supposed to be a Wesley type 30 years in the future, but that's not entirely explored except in Stubbs' speechifying. I'm also not sure I buy the baseball obsession. All I hear is Michael Piller's voice coming through with a preview of Benjamin Sisko. As for the nanite plot, 
it's okay, but we've seen it all before. Whether it's in Elementary Dear Data or The Measure of a Man, we've had much better episodes about mechanical awareness. It's a bit more contrived than usual, and it all ends as suddenly as it started with off-screen solutions told through captain's logs instead of visuals. There are plenty of things that just happen to satisfy the plot too, such as Picard allowing Data to be invaded by nanites or Stubbs not facing charges for murdering sentient beings. I will give this a medium. Star Trek has yet to perfect the season finale or the season premiere, I'm afraid, but the creators visibly try their best. On to the Ensigns of Command. Data's given a solo mission because of some radiation problems and has to face his misunderstanding of human nature. At least, that's the idea. Unfortunately, these humans are a lot more irrational than most, thanks to a poor script. Goshevin is your standard bullheaded community leader who won't see reason no matter what, and the script helps him out, keeping Data from saying the things that would make a convincing argument. Ardrian falls in love uh, with the android for no better reason than to give him an ally and have him react to a kiss. It's all by the numbers, not very well acted, and also suffers from some obvious dubbing whenever there is running water in the scene. Brent Spiner is so engaging as Data that he manages to redeem a lot of the planet scenes, and his final solution is a good one. It logically should have come a lot sooner, however. Uh, aboard ship, the android participates in his first concert, note O'Brien at the cello in the background, leading to an ongoing hobby for the character. It's all likable, with Picard commending his creativity and his colleagues derisively telling him he has no soul. Glad to see the awkwardness between Picard and Crusher has been abandoned, as they are clearly on a date between friends here. Perhaps the best part of the Ensigns of Command is the appearance of the Sheliak, very alien creatures that seem to be the lawyers of space. This gives Picard the chance to flex his lawyerly muscles, which he always does well. Troy's not useless here either, with an interesting discussion about language. We are stranded on a planet. We have no language in common, but I want to teach you mine. Zasmarith, what did I just say? Cup. Are you sure? I may have meant liquid, clear, brown, hot. Point taken. I didn't think it'd get as high as medium, but it does. The best scenes are all aboard ship, but unfortunately, well, that's not where most of the episode takes place. Next up is The Survivors. It offers a fair mystery between the appearance of two elderly survivors from an alien attack, a warship that appears and disappears, and a song driving Troy insane. The performances are good, the effects pretty interesting, and you really do wind up feeling a lot of sympathy for Kevin Uxbridge. So why doesn't it quite work? I think chief among the reasons is that Picard not only guesses the mystery's solution, but from then on is as good as a chorus explaining everything as if he's read the script. The original leap of logic is believable, though rather risky, but after that it seems highly improbable that he would have all the facts right. A case of our being told the story rather than seeing it. Still, Kevin gets the final reveal, the scope of his crime, a true shocker. Another good element is Troy being driven batty by the music box. Those scenes are very well directed, with all the anxiety coming across quite well through sound design, lighting, and camera moves. Oddly, it's the one aspect aspect of the episode I'd totally forgotten about. Glad to have it back in my memory at any rate. I'm giving this a medium. It's a worthy story even when you know what's really going on, but the script is a little lazy in how it chooses to reveal all the information, which leads to a talkative last act. I'm not certain if he should be praised or condemned. Only that he should be left alone. In Who Watches the Watchers, we return to Vasquez Rocks. 
But once that euphoria wears off, of course I'm kidding, we actually get a very good episode dealing with the Prime Directive. In the past, these haven't been so strong, mostly because Picard hasn't really worked hard to obey it. In this case, while mistakes are made, the idea is to repair a series of accidents rather than deal with a crew member's screw-up. It's a better focus. While the Mintakins do come away changed and retaining knowledge of their encounter with the Enterprise, I think it all works better than the brainwashings that previously capped these episodes. The best of the episode is seeing Picard trying to squirm out of his godhood. His scenes with Nuria are excellent, almost a preview of First Contact, which owes a lot to who watches the Watchers. His final solution is in the spirit of the Prime Directive, even if it does betray it in another way, but shows that he is willing to die for it after all. Troy does a good turn as a Mintakin 2, acting intelligently under pressure. I must say that, though uh, Lyco is a little strident at times, I think we can see from what kind of trauma he's coming from, desperately wanting to believe his wife can be resurrected. It's through Nuria that this culture becomes an engaging one, able to touch Picard's heart. They're certainly not your everyday primitives. I won't go into the episode's implication that religion is a primitive impulse, since that pretty much goes hand in hand with the characterization of the Federation throughout TNG's run. Uh, not until DS9 will we really see any main characters discuss their faith. Let's just agree that having the Picard as your god would have been a bad thing and leave it at that. Get up. You must not kneel to me. Medium rewatchability? but a high medium. The Mintakins are memorable people coming off very sympathetically, and for once, the Prime Directive drives the action rather than creates an obstacle to be talked around. The bonding. Well, TNG's reliance on family issues and psychobabble tends to bore me, and while there are good character moments in the bonding, they do so here. The kid, Jeremy, does a good enough job of acting isolated, but one gets the sense he was told not to do too much. I think it would have been hard for a child actor to emote more than this anyway, but perhaps it's all over too soon and with one big therapy session in which even Picard takes part uh, solving everything. The episode then commits a major sin by having Jeremy become part of Worf's family a family that would become prominent through two Star Trek series and then promptly having the kid walk off stage, never to be seen or heard again. And then there's the required science fiction element. An alien takes the place of Jeremy's mother and causes problems for the Enterprise by attempting to kidnap the kid and raise him. Well, it's okay, but again, a little dull and repetitive. It's a frequent problem when the creators want us to care about what happens to a guest star at the expense of the main cast. Ronald D. Moore's first script, this isn't quite on par with what he would later accomplish. The bonding's one redeeming value is that Jeremy's situation mirrors Wesley's, and though this ends up being dealt with in therapy, it does give us a rather touching scene between Wes and Beverly, uh, McFadden very engaging and underplaying it here. The confrontation between Wesley and Picard is okay, but doesn't amount to much, I'm afraid. So this drops to a low. Not bad, per se, but pretty irrelevant. Skipping to the good parts leaves you with a two-minute episode, at most. I'm with you every day, George. Every time you look at this engine, you're looking at me. Every time you touch it, it's me. Booby trap. Hopefully not a pun. Uh, most of the cast have personal lives by now, but Jordy, Jordy's still something of a cipher. Uh, while I would definitely welcome a character-building episode for Jordy, nothing in Booby Trap makes me warm up to him. What they've decided to concentrate on is his trouble with girls. That gives Julie Warner, who I well remembered from Indian Summer, a chance to make a cameo, but the bigger guest star is Susan Gibney as Leah Brahms. She's quite beautiful, but it's really creepy how she warms up to Jordy. Jordy. This is a computer simulation of a real person, after all, and there's just something icky about the whole relationship being taken that far. 
and that cheesy dialogue. Note, however, that Leah starts out as a rather argumentative character, so the program wasn't always off track, relating well to Galaxy's Child later. This is also the episode in which he starts to exhibit a bad habit I've always hated. He talks to the computer much too familiarly, and then he's frustrated when it doesn't understand what he's talking about. Drives me nuts and it seems out of place in someone so technically minded. Though perhaps that's the point of his giving the Leah program a personality. He's actually not comfortable with computers, even if his best friend is one. Other characters are much better served by the script. Picard's enthusiasm over the archaeological find, he and Riker discussing the use of computers to replace man. Now the machines are flying us. And the cute bit about building ships and bottles, which makes Picard seem much older than the rest of his crew, and allows O'Brien to make the best of his brief appearance. Guinan is in here too, and as compelling as ever. And while the effects are nice, especially flying through the asteroid field and the incomplete Enterprise out the window on the holodeck, uh, and there's a tense moment, nicely driven by the music, when Picard pilots the ship out of the field, the story buckles under the weight of all the technobabble. There must have been pages and pages of this stuff in Booby Trap. It's a technobabble problem and a technobabble solution, which is bad enough, but the gibberish streams out of Geordi and Leah's mouths throughout. After dealing with that for the better part of a half hour, we're as inspired as the crew when Picard decides to do it all on manual. A human resolution, even if the solution itself isn't. Medium rewatchability, proof that pretty effects are, and even prettier faces don't make an episode watchable. The plot here is a snorefest. I would watch it again for the character moments, and I guess for those effects and faces too. An unidentified distress signal has led to the discovery of a crashed Romulan vessel on the surface of Galondan Core, a Federation planet. They have recovered one survivor, but Lieutenant Commander LaForge did not report back with the away team and is still missing. The Enemy is a second Geordie episode in a row. And this one sidesteps his rather pathetic personal life and puts him in a proper adventure. Uh, he comes out looking highly competent, but the script is very transparent about what it's trying to do, and anything it builds, it demolishes by too obviously manipulating the characters, events, and audience. In Jordy's case, I would believe a Starfleet engineer would be able to safely get himself off a place like Gilorndon Core, but having Jordy create climbing pythons from raw ore mm, stretches credibility. How about just handholds instead? It it also quickly becomes obvious that Bakra and Jordi should collaborate, but they become friends much too quickly. It's the old enemy mind formula, but in that movie, the two characters are together for a much longer time. Here, it just seems to happen because the script says it should. And the final scene is cheesy in the extreme. Back on the ship, we're doing a little better, but the script decides only a Klingon can donate the injured Romulan the vital component he needs to survive. Why? Biologically speaking, this flies in the face of Star Trek canon before it. The reason is to put Worf in an awkward position and have him revisit his parents' death. I'm not complaining too hard, since this produces some of the better scenes in The Enemy. Worf's talk with Riker, Picard refusing to order Worf to donate his ribosomes, and ultimately the non-PC choice Worf makes. However, we're in that situation a little artificially, aren't we? And then there's the Romulans themselves. We haven't really had a Romulan counterpart for Picard since the Romulans came back on the scene in the neutral zone until Tomalok. 
And he's a good one. A kind of sly diplomacy, a lot of posturing, working on the basis that he can always make someone refer to the transcript of any communication to show he never compromised, a great on-screen presence, even if we never see him off that screen. The idea of Romulan purity comes across in scenes with both of the Pi's survivors. They don't let disabled children live. They would rather die than pollute their blood with Klingon filth, giving us more of an idea of this race. Unfortunate that we never learn what they were doing at Galornan Core, though. A very brief side note, I thought Beverly's shorter hairstyle was really quite cute, and I'm sorry to see it go. The longer lion's mane is what we became used to, but I'm not sure her wig here is the best. Makes her look very severe and ashen in this particular adventure. Oh, didn't you know? Gates McFadden apparently never used their own hair on the show. Always a wig. Medium rewatchability, then. The Romulans make their strongest TNG appearance yet, but... The script is very manipulative and turns to cheese every time we get back to Jordy. After trying to give Jordy some depth, it's Troy's turn in The Price. Another misused character, Troy. They had to get to her personal life someday, and what I find most interesting is that she doesn't really have one. She never leaves the office, as Devanoni Rall comments, and that's very telling, even if it doesn't give future writers much of a hook to hang Troy's subplots on. This is a very personal episode for the counselor, but I find everything past her overtired first scene rather dull. It's fun at first to see her rolling her eyes and trying to get out of the impromptu reception, but what she does to relax, that's not so interesting. The obsession with chocolate starts here, for example, and I've always found this to be less of a hobby uh, than afforded other characters. It's pretty childish and shallow, truth be told. The crux of the price deals with a flighty love affair she has with Devadoni Rao, and though the creators do their best to make this steamy and passionate, doesn't really work. The sparks don't fly, and we as an audience never buy into the story despite the overbearing music telling us to think it's romantic. I think the reason is twofold. On the one hand, there's the casting. Matt McCoy is too fresh-faced and effete to sweep Troy off her feet. He should be much more manly to elicit a truly primal physical response. Most importantly, though, there's the fact that he's an unlikable character. We dislike him, so we never see the couple as having a future. You're never sure if he's just manipulating her, and it tends to get pretty creepy. Not sure I like the girls gossiping in the gym about it either. It seems pretty lascivious to me. You're unusually limber this morning. I'll say... Rao has more chemistry with Riker, frankly, and the negotiation scenes, coupled with Troy's two men competing for one another, has some good energy to it. The wormhole plot is okay, but clearly secondary, allowing Troy to do the right thing at the end. I enjoyed Damon Goss's arrival on the ship, totally dismissive of Picard and Worf, but the other two were more ordinary. Interesting way to get Mendoza out of the way, though. I think the plot could have worked without Troy's little love scenes. So this is a medium, a good enough plot with the Ferengi used minimally, and thus well, and some good negotiation scenes. But the romantic A-plot is creepy and unengaging. You might want to watch it as a prequel to the Voyager episode where the Ferengi caught in the wormhole show up in the Delta Quadrant. Or you may not. Captain's log, stardate 43421.9. In an effort to put an end to the Gatherer raids, we have come to the Akamar system to enlist the aid of Maruk, the sovereign of Akamar III. The Vengeance Factor. The teaser has an interesting green lighting, which I'd forgotten, but nothing really happens in that teaser, which must be why I'd forgotten. In a way, that's how I feel about the entire thing. I like things about it, but then I also dislike things about it in equal measure. For example, there's a cool location with the rafters in an unusual vertical set, but you can tell it's the same old cave set nonetheless. 
Uh, Riker starts out in good form, trying to make Yuta see her options, but Frakes gets incredibly mannered and cheesy in his quarters and then senselessly executes her aboard Chogren's ship. She comes across as sympathetic, so it's a bit of a bummer when he sets his phaser to disintegrate. Couldn't he just have overpowered her? She's only poisonous to one guy in the entire universe. Picard's mediator role is well played out and his interventions are always interesting, but we get no insight from the negotiations with Brule and Little with Chogren. So those scenes are basically peppered with grandstanding from Marouk or crass behavior by the gatherers. While Brule was interesting, the plot demands a second negotiator we learn little about, so that first character is abandoned. He still gets a scene with Wesley, uh, which seems to hark back to Okona, but maybe little more than padding. All in all, the pacing is slow and repetitive. I did like how the away team tricked the gatherers with the gas cover. The main cast are competent throughout. The main guest stars do a good to fair job with the material. The idea of a very specific engineered virus is a good sci-fi standard, but does anyone buy the Fountain of Youth Yuta got a taste of? It's an odd plot point when she could just as easily have been a long-lost granddaughter of the Trelesta or something. So just a medium, some good stuff. Some bad stuff. Not a disagreeable 45 minutes, but it won't stay in your thoughts for long. Next is The Defector. I'm glad to see the Enterprise is still near the Romulan neutral zone and that Tomalok gets to return to dog our heroes. But if The Defector works, it's really thanks to James Sloyan's Admiral Jarok. What a great character. He's haughty and superior, but manages to be sympathetic at the same time. Desperate not to betray his empire, but as Picard reminds him, in for a penny, in for a pound. His final betrayal at the hands of what can only be the Tal Shiar, gotta be, is painful, destroying the man before our very eyes. He's done the right thing and paid dearly for it. I love how duplicitous it makes the Romulans, how very smart an opponent they can be. I also loved that they knew about Data and would love to get their hands on him. Imagine the measure of a man if Data had been found by Romulans instead. And the creators did the episode justice, whether because they were inspired by the script and performance or not. That initial battle between the scout ship and Tomalok's Derideks uh, represents probably the best model ship photography we've seen outside the movies, uh, with real motion and energy, a sign of things to come, hopefully. The rest of the cast is as good as ever, with the mounting pressure of possible war looming over them. And while the Henry V scene seems an amusing aside at first, it really does inform the rest of the piece. The defector is similar to the Enterprise incident in a number of ways, with a standoff in the neutral zone with multiple warbirds and the idea of someone defecting to the other side, but can they be trusted. The parallel gets a little bit more obvious when the birds of prey appear at the end of the episode looking like the uncloaking battle cruisers in that original series episode. This is a low point in the episode, however, since the Enterprise gets bailed out by the Klingons coming out of left field. Deus Ex Machina, if I ever saw one. Still, the episode is a high, a real winner that builds on a Romulan arc with strong performances and doing a lot more with the race than the enemy did. Now, something I never noticed, but my friend from across the pond, Liam Cav, wanted to chime in with this, an SFX, a special effects fact. This is the first time they used a new, slightly smaller, but more detailed model of the Enterprise. You can tell because the saucer rim is a bit thicker and the panel lines are much more pronounced. It's noticeable when watched uh, in Blu-ray uh, how much the detail of the original six-foot model of the Enterprise had uh, that was completely washed away by the limitations of TV at the time. Although the new four-foot model is smaller, it's much more thickly detailed, with really obvious depressions along the saucer rim, which show better uh, in standard definition and make the ship seem much bigger. A lot of folks thought the change proportions 
make the ship look less elegant, but it was apparently far easier to work with, which helped them do more dynamic stuff uh, with the Enterprise from this point forward. The Romulan Warbird was also a new model. The Hunted is next and is meant to be about uh, Vietnam veterans and how we don't welcome as readily the soldiers of a lost war and their difficulty adapting to normal life after the hardships of war. It works within that context with Roga Denar, a sympathetic character who has committed atrocities and is deeply disturbed by them, but it achieves more as well. It's also a good action episode featuring an opponent that's both strong and smart. Daynar's various misdirections are somewhat inspired, and he shows up the main characters throughout. It's unfortunate that the bridge crew isn't a little smarter, because it would make Daynar look even cooler. And there are other problems, such as the usual laughable hand-to-hand combat that looks a lot like pushing and shoving to me, and the magic powers attributed to Daynar, such as invisibility to sensors, but Beverly can still scan him, and the ability to escape a transporter beam. The latter is a bit much, isn't it? Well, Data and Troy, the two that make friends with the super soldier, do a lot better here anticipating his moves and also driving the human rights issues. Finally, the end is a good bit of fun with Picard washing his hands of the matter thanks to the Prime Directive. Funny, but it does make the Federation appear smug and sanctimonious. The Angosians may well decide never to reapply after that little scene. In your own words, this is not our affair. We cannot interfere in the natural course of your society's development. I'd say it's going to develop significantly in the next few minutes. This won't really be addressed properly until the Maquis in DS9, of course. I give it a medium, very close to high, with a solid antagonist and a worthy subject. The episode keeps us guessing, but I can't really get behind the poor portrayal of the hero's abilities. Now, a generation of peace has ended with terrorist attacks by Ansata separatists. The high ground. For the second time in a row, we get a show that is an allegory for current events, and military-type current events at that. Again, we have the sympathetic guest star who's killed people. Again, he befriends a member of the crew, and again, the Enterprise seems to be working with the authorities, who are at least partially in the wrong. Aside from that, The High Ground is a very different episode, but I still wonder why they aired this and The Hunted back-to-back. The High Ground is much more topical than The Hunted, and was even banned in Ireland for being too close to comfort, though technically because of the reunification date given by Data. Today, it reads more as a commentary on a Palestine-Israel than on the PLO, but it means to comment on all terrorism. It's a complex issue, and while I think there's something to be said for showing the terrorists in a sympathetic light, because they too have children, they may have reason to fight an oppressive regime, etc., we also have to acknowledge that this is a very specific kind of terrorism after all. Finn's separatists use terrorism, yes, but their goals are those of freedom fighters, whereas we well know that this isn't always the case. It's a complex issue, thankfully not given a resolution here. Beverly is uncommonly strong in this episode, giving Finn the silent treatment at first, but eventually succumbing to Stockholm Syndrome. When the separatists target the Enterprise and Wesley, she does get a bit more weepy, but it's well played with only shades of the first season's constant mothering. I have a harder time with the scene in which Wesley is told of his mother's kidnapping as Will Wheaton is usually out of his depth in this kind of thing. The episode is a letdown whenever we're on the other side. The character of Police Chief Alexander Devos is grating in the extreme. She spouts rhetoric at an incredible rate, making all these terrible cliched speeches about the enemy. It's just dreadfully boring, and it hits us over the head with the message that no matter how sympathetic Finn can be, terrorism is still wrong. Well, duh. The music supports this cheesiness, as does the ending with a boy putting his weapon down. 
actually, you know, my biggest problem with the ending is that the crew really does break the Prime Directive and side with the apparently oppressive government. How? By allowing police forces to come with the rescue party where they kill a separatist leader, find the hidden hideout, etc. Like, that won't change the course of the culture's progress. We're still, the issue isn't even addressed. I can only give it a medium. Yes, a worthy episode, but marred by all the sermonizing. Uh, the Finn Crusher stuff is excellent, though. Andrew Gilbertson, one of my readers, had this to say. He said, I found this one to completely sidestep the issue of terrorism, hand-waving it into a synonym for freedom fighting or rebellion. As Finn says, the only difference between a general and a terrorist is history, or something to that effect. No, sir. The difference is that one attacks civilians, as you did, and the other attacks military targets. Freedom fighters try to overthrow the government. Terrorists kill people at random to try and frighten the nation or group into acceding to your demands out of fear for who you might kill next without provocation. If the episode had noted this, had Crusher called him on his BS, I might have respected it. But you want to show both sides of a coin on terrorism? You have to actually define terrorism and differentiate it from freedom fighting and the military general comparisons that he gives in this episode. However, no one does. So the terrorist self-serving rhetoric that disguises the reality of the situation is presented as the reality of one side's position, thus making the episode a fail in my book. As it doesn't explore two sides, it only explores propaganda of two sides. Good point, Andrew. It's a common TNG tactic. The show wants to tackle topical issues, because it's a Star Trek thing, but it often took the Howard's way out, I have to say. See also how the outcast uh, is so vague about sexual orientation. Up next, Deja Q. Never mind that MacGuffin plot about pushing a moon into orbit. It isn't really important. And the Braillians are bone-ugly aliens with unworkable makeup and odd voices. That's just background to the real story of Q's few hours as a human being. And it's an excellent one. Comedy can be hard to work into the Star Trek format without seeming forced, but when it comes out of the characters, there's nothing to worry about. Here, Q's unfamiliarity with the human condition produces a few laughs, but the really funny stuff comes up when he's being sarcastic with the crew. What must I do to convince you people? Die. Oh, very clever, Worf. Eat any good books lately? He and Worf make a great pair. In fact, I quite enjoyed all the characters being mean to Q. As evolved 24th century people, they don't often get the chance to show this much remorseless animosity and pettiness, but it's pretty fun to see them in that mode. Beverly's bedside manner, for example, or Guinan stabbing him with a fork, or even Geordi thinking he's in command. And he is correct. Uh, all great moments, and we can always count on Q to break the fourth wall, in a sense, and make comments a fan might make, since, in essence, he has been observing the crew just like we have. The one about Riker's beard stands out in my mind. There's one character who cannot be mean to Q, and that's Data, so naturally he becomes Q's only friend. Q tells the android that he's a better human than the former entity would ever be, is a fine, dramatic moment, giving a bit more oomph to the episode. And Q's final gift of laughter is very well played by Brent Spiner and a wonderful ending. Fun to see Corbin Burnson. Fun to see Corbin Burnson in a hyper performance as well. The Calamarain are a necessary plot point, though there's not much to say about this race. I like Q blowing on them, but that's about it. And their Tetrion weapon effect was pretty coarse compared to the series' usual standards. Still, the plot's fine, the actors are having fun, and the zingers fly. I give it a high. Q can be menacing, and Q can be funny. He can also be a little tragic. A fine showcase for both John Delancey and the main cast. Loads of fun. And speaking of fun, here's Ryan Blake with uh, his take on the episode. Deja Q, or the massive difference between knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom. Q loses his powers. 
because he's not smart enough to get along with anyone in the Q Continuum. He then proceeds to hide out on board the Enterprise, as it's the only place he's got anyone close to a friend in the entire universe. The universe mind. Not the galaxy, or a system or two. The universe. Infinite lifespan, infinite power, no friends. Not wise. Now, you could argue he thinks he doesn't need friends, but think that through. He's got all of eternity to play with. If no one wants him around, even with infinite power... He's still going to get bored that much quicker. He's still going to get frustrated that much quicker. When you get to the uh, Voyager Deathfish episode, he's going to want to end it all that much quicker. So Q, being an idiot, decides to antagonise the small group of people who might protect him from the billions of hostile races out there that want him dead. Guinan stabs him with a fork, which was really incredibly merciful, to be completely honest. Worf, somehow a security chief, resists the urge to walk him around the block, as it were and uh, present him to Picard on the bridge with two broke eyes and broken ribs uh, and using the excuse, well, Q's really clumsy. He's not used to having a nervous system and muscles, so he keeps falling over and bumping into things. Captain, honestly. So, well played, Worf. You have got more willpower than I would have had in that situation. And in the end... I honestly think Q tricks the Q continuum into taking it back because I really don't think it was a selfless act. I think it genuinely was an attempt at suicide, which kind of sadly gets played off as quite comical in this, which I think was a bit of a missed, a bit of a bum note. But great episode, really good fun. I'm amazed Q survived it. In our system of jurisprudence, a man is innocent until proved guilty. In ours. He is guilty until he is proved innocent. A matter of perspective. When Riker is accused of the murder of Nell Abgar, the holodeck is used to recreate various versions of the events leading up to the man's death. An intriguing notion, but the episode could have been a lot better. There's some fun to be had in seeing Riker squirm so much, as when he almost follows Data into the ready room, and there are some cool split-screen effects, especially when Riker manages to walk around himself. But aside from that... Uh, if the various versions of events were less biased, there would have been more room for ambiguity, but as they are, I simply can't believe Troy could detect nothing on Manua Abgar. Fine, she chooses to remember her dead husband in a good light, and that it was Riker who was flirtatious. But a sexual assault? Come on now. I really like Mark Margolis, who plays Abgar, but I find him wasted here on a one-note character being beaten up by Riker or beating Riker up. It quickly falls into the category of caricature. It doesn't matter anyway, since the solution to the mystery is clunky technobabble, starring an invented particle wave that acts differently from time to time based on what the plot demands. Cute moment when Data criticizes Picard's painting, though I wonder if we really needed the butt shot if everyone was going to paint cellos, etc. The scene has an all-too-obvious relationship to the episode's title, and from there on, it sinks into a sea of drivel. To me, this is a low, at best described as harmless fluff. I might have given it a medium, but I think by this point, TNG should strive to be more than inoffensive. But it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Here Here's Izumi Yukonori's perspective on, on the show. Episode Analytical Report Supplemental, Stardate 43610.4. Ensign Zoom Yukonori speaking. A Matter of Perspective was one of the standout Season 3 episodes to me, most likely because it was a combination of a Perry Mason courtroom drama mixed with a Roshomon effect. Of course, in the brilliant Kurosawa Akira film from which this effect takes its name, the actual events, despite being shown from different points of view, were left ambiguous. This episode, however, clearly uses clues from all three conflicting testimonies, as well as an over-extreme attention to detail in a holodeck simulation, to piece together the truth behind Dr. Nell Apgar's murder on the Tanaga 4 research station, as well as the motive behind it. 
Yes, there are a number of plot holes in this episode, one being that certain aspects of the hearing depositions and speculation, such as whether Riker had made arrangements for quarters on Tanaga 4, and whether Riker had actually fired his phaser, could have been objectively verified by a simple investigation, and I needed to suspend my disbelief regarding the aforementioned overattention of detail of the holographic model of Dr. Opgar's prototype Krieger wave converter. So much so that the hologram facsimile had actually worked. But despite these flaws, I found A Matter of Perspective to be a clever whodunit episode, and I was particularly amused by how each version of the events had painted the person who provided the testimony in the most favorable light, which can be an all-too-human practice when it comes to recalling and retelling past events. My favorite examples were Riker seeing himself as the overly chaste gentleman professionally warding off Manua Apgar's flirtations, and Dr. Apgar telling the assistant that he had beaten Riker in the fight. This also made it clear to me as a viewer that each person's testimony, even that of a decorated Starfleet officer, was not entirely accurate, and that the truth had laid somewhere in between. I will admit that I had found Manua Apgar's perspective as a victim of Riker's aggressive sexual advances and attempted rape to be very, very disturbing. This was the one event that was left ambiguous in the story, how willing and unwilling Riker and Manua were in their encounter, for lack of a better word. Given the number of romantic flings Riker had had on the program up until this episode, the portrayal of Riker in Manua's deposition was quite a bold move, and I was a bit surprised that this matter seemed to be quickly waved away by Diana Troy, essentially telling Riker that she did not believe he had truly behaved the way Manua claimed because, as Troy had stated, she knew him. However, I was surprised that the Tanaga Four authorities were willing to just let Manua's indirect accusation of Riker go, and that there wasn't at least a reprimand from Captain Picard, who also knew Riker and how flirtatious his first officer tended to be. As the captain himself said at the extradition hearing, Dr. Apgar, discovering Commander Riker with his wife, didn't help matters. Yukonori out. Thank you, Zoom. Next up is a bona fide classic, Yesterday's Enterprise, and it still comes across today as a very mature story throwing us in the deep end without the usual endless technobabble explanations. Patrick Stewart carries the piece with some of his best work to date on the show, bringing great drama to all his scenes, especially as he struggles with his faith in Guinan, his duty to history, and his wish not to see friends erased from it. If he trusts Guinan, it is surely in part due to desperation. As he admits, the Federation will likely lose the war. Part of Picard's dilemma is Tasha Yar. She knows she's not alive in the other timeline and that sending her with the Enterprise C is just as much a death sentence. While I didn't like Tasha in season one, and I, I still don't actually like her here, I must say the scene where she asked for her death to have meaning is the strongest Denise Crosby ever gave or got. Guinan says I died a senseless death in the other timeline. I didn't like the sound of that, Captain. I've always known the risks that come with a Starfleet uniform. If I'm to die in one, I'd like my death to count for something. On the other hand, there's really nothing to Tasha's implausible romance with Richard Castillo. You just know you're in television land when people fall in love so rapidly and for no discernible reason. I'm really glad the creators didn't give in to the temptation of putting Worf aboard one of the Klingon ships. 
shows like this already strain credibility, but by having everything uh, the same yet different, when in all likelihood, the cast would be much different, as would the ship's configuration. I won't go into the details of how, on a ship without families, Wesley uh, would not have gotten a shot at being an ensign, etc., since this is immaterial. We want to see all the same characters in different contexts, and so we accept things as they are. Worf's presence might have stretched credibility too much, so he isn't here. He still gets a decent scene in which Prune Juice is, perhaps unfortunately, introduced. Rachel Garrett makes a good showing as the doomed Enterprise captain, and her death is nothing short of shocking. Riker also kicks the bucket, but this isn't as effective since we know he'll be back. Great details on the Enterprise, including uh, stiffer uniforms, ten forward uh, as a mess hall, and the ship being packed with people. It's incredible how much value this adds to the show. The space battles are, okay, pretty dull, with ships usually treated as sitting ducks. Uh, shaking bridge scenes aren't great, but they don't call attention to themselves as much. After the model work in The Defector, I might have expected more. The budget must have been maxed out already. It's a minor niggle, since the drama is excellent regardless. Obviously, I give this a high. Yesterday's Enterprise manages to give us great acting, an acceptable return for a dead character, a lot of bang for its buck, uh, some intense scenes, a cool alternate universe story, and fills in a blank in the Star Trek universe's history. Quite excellent. For more on this, uh, let's hear from a couple of podcasting friends. First up is Nathaniel Wayne from Punch Like a Girl. Yesterday's Enterprise, Season 3, Episode 15, and one of the best episodes that Star Trek The Next Generation ever did. Such a basic plot, a little bit of alternate timeline stuff, but it just works. And it works on multiple levels. It's a good alternate history little time travel yarn, just removing it from the characters in the world and everything else. It's it's just a well-plotted, well-conceived little yarn right there. In addition to that, we have wonderful performances from everybody and the return of Tasha Yar, a character who paradoxically was completely overused in the first half of the first season and then completely just dumped unremarkably and killed. And to bring her back and give her something that felt like a more of a proper send-off and acknowledge the meaninglessness of her death before, that is something that elevates this above just being a cool little alternate timeline story. And all the changes that we see, the sense of militarism that is very important to not be part of Star Trek and not be part of the Enterprise, to see it imposed and just get this reminder of, oh, thank goodness it's not like this. Thank goodness they are explorers and have their families with them. Wonderful highlight for Guinan. Whoopi Goldberg does wonderful work and her interactions with Picard especially are terrific. Great supporting cast. And really the only complaint that I can make is of the lieutenant on the Enterprise C. His romantic inclinations with Tasha are unnecessary. She is given ample, well-motivated reasons to get on that ship and leave with the Enterprise C. We don't need that as well. But that is the one and only weakness that I can find in this. And it also has one of the best lines of the show when Jean-Luc Picard says, let's make sure History never forgets the name Enterprise. Nothing more that you can add. And here's Gene Hendricks with a theory that I happen to agree with. There is one big takeaway from this that I noticed on my rewatch this time, and that is Guinan. Now, we all have future knowledge 
of Star Trek Generations and the Nexus. And the fact that Guinan was in the Nexus leads me to think that, unlike Data's speculation, her knowing that the timeline is different is not because of her species. It is more about her connection and her existing simultaneously in the Nexus and in, quote-unquote, reality. So that connection leads her to know that something's off because her other self has all the memories and everything of the previous reality. So that leads us to question, well, now in this episode, does Dr. Soren know that something is off? Because he is also existing both in and out of the Nexus. And that is a, a story I would like to see, actually, maybe in a novel or something, about what he's doing and how he might be trying to say, oh, well, this is actually better for me because now I can go here with no interference from Starfleet. Interesting thought. And now one of my favorite episodes of all time, The Offspring, uh, which very much hinges on Hallie Todd's performance as Lal. And it's top notch. She manages to make us care a great deal about her character, creating both comedic and tragic moments effortlessly. Her mime work is also good and makes Lal very believable. And she's well surrounded. Brent Spiner offers some of his better work, despite some redundant dialogue on his part reminiscent of Pen Pals. Uh, there's immense subtlety in his final expression at the op station. Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden, very naturalistic in their scenes, and I love their reactions throughout. Crusher's surprise at Data coming to her for advice, and Picard's smiling nod when he admits to, to Haftel that, yes, he's jeopardizing his career, are two of many great character moments. By making Lal a girl, the show seems to have more for the women of the cast to do, with Crusher being joined by the uh, lightly comedic Troy and totally mischievous Guinan. This was Jonathan Frake's first episode as director. He certainly pulled a winner's script. So Riker isn't in it much. Uh, his one real scene... What are your intentions toward my daughter? Uh, ...is quite memorable. Thank you very much. Starfleet does come off rather badly here, however, since they seem to have forgotten about their allowing for android rights in The Measure of a Man, but that's par for the course, and it is revisited differently enough. Haftel, just like Maddox, isn't really a bad guy, and he comes to respect Data by the end. And what an end! When Lao suffers from cascade failure, it's wrenching. A real tearjerker that doesn't fail to get me to break down every time. I must take note of the writing, which has a number of wonderful touches from the childish question, why is the sky black, to Lal's last words, regressing her through her life lessons. Every scene with Lal's has something special about it. Her discomfort after serving a drink, uh, as Haftel watches, her not wanting to be different, and Data not really knowing what to say. Now, I could go on and on. A wonderful episode that makes you wish Hallie Todd could have joined the cast right then and there. Of course, a high rating, funny, touching, well-written, and more than able to overcome its retread of the Android issue. Gushing applause for the guest star. And I think my friend Kurt Onstad has some applause of his own. Here it is. All the actors do a great job with this episode, but a special shout-out has to go to guest star Hallie Todd who gives an excellent performance as Lol, the episode's titular offspring. She doesn't just mimic Brent Spiner, but gives her own unique portrayal of a new android learning about life and humanity. And the scenes where she starts to feel, and her final scene with her father, are absolutely heart-wrenching. There's some great laughs in this episode, but you'll want the tissues handy as well. 
Sins of the Father, a sequel to A Matter of Honor, is an excellent idea, and the first act is great fun, as Kern is introduced as a real tyrant. Riker should know better than to challenge his authority, though, and I'm not sure we're given enough of a reason for Wesley to start running scared like he does. But overall, it's fun to see a real Klingon on the bridge, and Tony Todd creates a fun, very primal character. We're even given parallel scenes to A Matter of Honor, such as the caviar dinner. Is it really worse than Gach? And then the whole thing switches gears and actually gets better. Kern turns out to be Worf's brother, should have known with those identical foreheads, which plunges us into TNG's first political Klingon story in our first visit to the Klingon homeworld. It's all very moody, and the Klingon government turns out to be highly hypocritical, though it is attempting to prevent a civil war. The various Klingons we meet are well-drawn, except for Duras, which I always found either badly cast or badly acted. I guess he shouldn't be too Klingon since he's a traitor from a line of traitors, but his portrayal has never been all that great to me. A minor point, since he isn't meaningfully Worf's adversary here. Uh, The situation is. The Empire is. All of Duras's machinations are behind the scenes. What we learn about Klingon honor, tradition, and values is all interesting, uh, with the lone exception of the word discommendation, which I find to be totally un-Klingon. The ceremony itself is pretty dramatic, though, and Worf taking one of the te- taking one for the team is an excellent moment, though diffused a little by taking Worf out of an empire he never really belonged to. Still, Sins of the Father is quite well written, with memorable characters and loads of new information on the popular Klingons and Worf specifically. Easily give this a high, the Klingon stuff is as close as TNG ever really got to multi-part stories, and though you could say it all begins with the MS that show was more of a prologue. This is chapter one, and it's excellent with a downbeat resolution and the introduction of three important characters. It is a good day to die, Doris, and the day is not yet over. Picard is kidnapped at the start of our next episode, Allegiance, and his efforts to escape his cell take up most of the episode. Unfortunately, it's all pretty insubstantial, and we've seen this lab rat scenario before and done better, which doesn't mean there aren't some interesting things in this episode. On the contrary, the best part is probably Picard's replacement, putting the moves on Beverly, singing songs with the crew, uh, crashing the old poker game, and generally being very entertaining and pleasant. Since a telepathic scan seems to have been used to create this copy, it would seem that a measure of wish fulfillment was included. After all, this isn't Picard, it's really Picard's idea of himself. Patrick Stewart seems to relish the chance to play a subtly different Picard, not as stuffy. It leads to such great scenes that you almost wish they'd happen for real. I also like the change of tack for Beverly, since I found her pursuit of Picard to be rather sappy. The runaround being given Picard and his cellmates is less interesting. Dealt in obvious reversals, but nonetheless, Isak the Chalnoff makes for an interesting character. Kovathol is less entertaining, though. Picard is smart enough to figure it all out, of course, uh, leading to the introduction of the previously unseen aliens, and that's where I start to lose interest. They're not understanding certain concepts, strains credulity, especially if they're telepathic, uh, and they can create convincing copies of people. How about using the copies for study, then? And they even had a plant in the room spouting the morality they're not supposed to understand, as it doesn't work, and is further marred by some very silly technobabble about reproducing people via transporter technology, etc. The final solution with the intruder force field is well played, but unfortunately this is the first time the crew is ever shown so in tune with one another and the first time such a gadget is used on the bridge and the last. 
A lot of that material is saved, however, by some very cool direction. The weirdness of the faux Picard or of real Picard situation it is highlighted throughout using high camera angles and extreme close-ups. It really gives the episode a distinctive look. Also uh, of note is the uh, Lanka Pulsar, a very nice effect translated very well by lighting on the bridge. Still can't go beyond medium uh, rewatchability. It's inconsequential fluff. It's quite amusing when it wants to be, and everyone involved does the best they can with a problematic script. Ales for everyone! Captain's Holiday. Uh, Well, I love the teaser and the first act of this one. The interplay between Riker and Picard is particularly fun, and it's great how Luxana Troy is used as an incentive for Picard to leave the ship. Riker's Horgan trick tickles equally, and Ryza is luscious with beautiful women and greenery, whatever your tastes are. Picard's refusal to have fun on his vacation is well played, etc. Unfortunately, the episode has a plot. Now, obviously, you can't have an hour of Picard sunbathing, so yeah, you need a story. It's not a terribly accomplished one, however, perhaps because it at once tries to have immense stakes, but also a light touch. So the MacGuffin of the week is an artifact from the future that can destroy stars and has three parties trying to get a hold of it, so big stakes, but the villains are ineffectual so that Picard and Vash can pretty much beat them on their own with only a little help from the Enterprise at the end. So they were going for a fun adventure over a tense one. Okay, fair enough. Let's look at those villains. Whenever the show's creators want a lighter villain, they will often go for the Ferengi. Having failed in making them dangerous, they've instead chosen to make them laughable. Sovak in his Hawaiian shirt is just that not very threatening at all despite a creditable performance by Max Grodenchik of later Rom fame. At least Picard has some fairly good confrontations with him. The Vorgons are far less interesting, limited to appearing, standing there, delivering exposition, and disappearing again. The most damage they do is shoot Vash with a tractor beam. Ooh. So I've kept Vash for the end because I find her a very problematic character. I'm sorry if I embarrassed you. Sure, she's written as this charming rogue, but I just don't find her that charming. I find her more annoying than anything. Jennifer Hetrick does a good enough job. It's not that. I guess I find it hard to believe that a man like Picard would fall for a bad girl like her and do no more than call her outrageous. She lies to him over and over, has stolen goods and information, plans on committing more crimes, and he just lets it slide. Evidence suggests he doesn't really leave the job at the office, so I guess he just hadn't gotten any noogie in a, in a long while. They've got some good scenes together, and there is at least some chemistry there, but it's an offbeat pairing to say the least. It's all drowned in heavily plotted reversals. However, I'm not really sorry to see Vash go. Let summer camp romances stay in the past. Handing it a medium. Uh, Patrick Stewart has some fun playing the Indiana Jones part, and there is some humor here, but there's no real tension with those Keystone Cops baddies. Uh, Enjoyment of the episode may well rest in whether you like Vash or not. Next is Tin Man. Uh, Harry Grenner's uh, performance as Tam Elbrun goes a long way in making Tin Man watchable as he's generally very good. He exudes anxiety and he has some very heartfelt moments with both Data and Troy. I'm surprised at how sympathetically he comes across after those annoying early scenes where he keeps completing everyone's sentences. But thankfully, there's more to Elbrun than that, and the episode is peppered with good character moments. The performance does dive into the melodramatic occasionally, though, and this may well turn off some viewers. Betazoids are meant to be somewhat ethereal, and in Elbrun's case, that comes across as a sort of poetry in describing minds. He His link to Tin Man, certainly, but I also liked his description of the Chandrasans as kind of like alien treants. The fact he can't read Data makes this yet another episode where Data relates to a guest star better than most, 
uh, passing no emotional judgment, Data can can more easily befriend the likes of Q, Roga Denar, and in this case, Tam Elbrin. The two make a good pair on screen. There's a poignancy in Elbrin's remark that being different isn't a sin, and he clearly shows his expertise when he does read Data after all. The episode is well complemented by dynamic visual effects whenever we get outside the ship. Gum 2 is strange and beautiful, and incredibly lit by a dying star. The Romulan attack on the Enterprise harks back to the defector in style, and it's a great shot, though the Enterprise is very good at just sitting there and taking it. Not so great is Tin Man's interior, which is okay, but kind of misses the mark with its clumsy sliding doors, melting wax effects, and supposedly spongy walls. The Romulans are a bit boring here, uh, the commander lacking any kind of personality, but they're a necessary evil. The final coda, where Data realizes where he belongs, now, that seems unnecessary to me, though the moment is touching thanks to Marina Sirtis' performance. Tam and Gumtu are a pair I would have liked to see revisited, but alas, we never found out what happened to them, at least in canon. I believe he found what he was looking for, Counselor. Medium rewatchability, then. A good story with a strong guest star, but somehow it feels a little empty. The Romulans are relegated to special effects, and Data's story arc, that, that's pretty shallow. Ah, Hollow Pursuits. Dwight Schultz is given the job of creating a character that plays against the normal Trek type, and he succeeds beautifully. Barkley is quite atypical. He's nervous, he's anxious, he's shy, he stutters, uh, can't find the right words, freezes when asked to speak in public. It seems that engineering attracts these imperfect types, if we go by No Luck in Love LaForge and klutzy Sonia Gomez. Uh, I'm sure there's a reason for the amazing, revolving chief engineers of season one, too. Good thing there's... O'Brien, he's a pillar of strength, uh, showing us someone like uh, Barkley humanizes Starfleet a great deal, and Schultz is careful to make Barkley sympathetic where he could easily have been annoying. His only escape from his anxieties is the holodeck, and he makes very natural use of it, too. I just wonder how far things with Hollow Troy have gone. Hmm. Though I do think some of the Musketeer material goes on too long, Barkley's fantasies do serve a variety of purposes. They allow him to be charming and confident, get the girl and punch out the jerk, a nice sword fight. They also give us revenge visions of the bridge crew, which are pretty Pretty funny. Wesley as a spoiled brat, Riker as a small statured fool. Unfortunately, this isn't very well executed as I'd like. I, I tend to never notice number one size until Troy mentions it, uh, etc. Finally, they also make good false leads as you suddenly realize you're not watching the real McCoys, but their holodeck facsimiles. In the real world, there's a plot that requires Barkley to be instrumental in saving the ship. But this is all par for the course. Far more interesting is everyone's quest to make him fit in. I particularly loved Picard's management style here. Killing the nickname thing, and he's the one that slips, and ordering LaForge to make Barkley his best friend. Guinan's good here too, making some good points, and when Barkley finally opens up to LaForge, what he says about being shy feels right. You, you don't know what a struggle this has been for me, Commander. Well, I'd like to help if I can. Being afraid all of the time of forgetting somebody's name not not knowing what to do with your hands i mean i i am the guy who writes down things to remember to say when there's a party and then when he finally gets there he winds up alone in the corner trying to look comfortable examining a potted plant you're just shy barkley just shy Sounds like nothing serious, doesn't it? 
Troy's defense of Barclay's behavior turning into outrage when she discovers the goddess of empathy is another fun moment. This episode is really filled with them. I give it a high. With hindsight, we know Barclay did not go the way of Sonia Gomez, and we can all be glad about that. A fine and very human addition to the Enterprise, and his intro story is worthy of him. Now I'd like you to welcome Alan W. Wright on why he likes this episode so much. Unlike a lot of classic Trek fans, I was looking forward to Star Trek The Next Generation. I was ready to embrace new characters beyond Kirk and Spock. But when the show aired, I found the first couple of seasons disappointing. The new characters and stories seemed flat, and some of that was by design. Gene Roddenberry had decreed that by the 24th century, humans had evolved away from our petty faults and foibles. By the third season, things had begun to change a bit better. We start to see more character and more drama, and Hollow Pursuits comes during the beginning of TNG's high point. Here we have Reginald Barclay, a shy man, prone to insecurity and resentment, and yet Barclay doesn't descend into a mocking caricature, at least not in this episode. He's intelligent and imaginative and helps save the day without taking away from the regular cast. And speaking of the regular cast, we get a glimpse at Riker, Geordi, and Wesley's faults too. This episode shows you can be heroic and fully human at the same time. But Hello Pursuits isn't just a character study. This script by Sally Caves, aka Sarah Higley, is proper science fiction too. Literary science fiction has been defined as showing the impact of changes in science and technology on individuals and society, and that's what we see here. The idea of hollow addiction explores aspects of online culture that were already present when the show was made on BBS's news groups and message boards, and would only increase in later years with the rise of the modern internet. Like Barclay, people can spend all day in online personas on Second Life, World of Warcraft, and many other proto-holodecks. We even get a glimpse of the dark side of online culture. Geordi was pretty accepting of Reg's holodeck activities, but the one he saw was couched in the playful framework of a Three Musketeers adventure. How would Geordi have reacted to seeing Barclay's more realistic ten-forward scenario that opens the episode? There, Barclay cast himself as an aggressive bad boy and beats up Riker and Geordi and puts the moves on Deanna Troy who seems much closer to the real one than the goddess of empathy later in the episode. Yes, by and large, Barclay's likable and redeemable character, but watch his earliest fantasies and you might see the disturbing traces of the dangerous incel movement. Thanks for letting me share a few words about Hollow Pursuits. It's been a tough day at work, however, and someone's been getting on my case. I need to blow off some steam. Hmm. I wonder. Siri, play Barclay Program 9. I couldn't find Barclay Program 9 in your music. Oh well. It was worth a shot. The most toys. You know, I own a book called The New Trek Guide, which has very brief reviews of every TNG episode, along with a choice of great lines and technobabble, info about aliens, various funny bits, etc. Now, I like to glance at this thing to see if my opinion differs from the authors, who also penned the excellent discontinuity guide for Doctor Who. They called The Most Toys a rather ordinary comedy episode, which tells me that, in this case at least, they completely missed the point. The Most Toys is most definitely a drama and a strong data episode. Saul Rubinek does does a fairly good job with Kivas Fajo, a bit over the top, but only in the way of an eccentric, amoral billionaire. He's cruel, petty, nasty, and uses his intelligence only to devise ways to possess others. Data's point to Varya that Fajo has them both 
is a strong incentive for her to later help the android escape. Data fights his captor in every possible way, only staying his hand when it would cost the life of others. When Data realizes at the end that Fajo will keep killing, he makes a choice that goes beyond his programming and is about to kill Fajo when he's beamed to safety. This is a shocking moment, made even more shocking when Data then lies about it to Riker. And does he then go see Fajo to gloat? Data really does seem on the edge of his humanity here. Powerful and very ambiguous stuff. Back on the ship, the reactions to Data's apparent death are uniformly excellent. For an android with no feelings. He sure managed to evoke them in others. Ending that scene with a quote from Shakespeare's Hamlet scores big points for me. He was a man. Take him for all in all. I shall not look upon his like again. Uh, and Worf having to fill another dead crew member's shoes is addressed as well. It's not quite a funeral scene, but a greater variety of scenes that avoid that cliché. Also of note, some pretty cool effects like the destruction of the shuttle and Fajo's eye-popping force field. Of course, the episode is far from perfect uh, when it comes to the premise itself. Fajo's plan seems entirely too complex and yet avoids one central question. How did he know Data would fly the shuttle pod? In fact, they don't address why he would even pilot it. But accept it, we must. I'm not that keen on the Fajo collection either, even if that's a minor point. It seems incredibly humanocentric to me. Or was that just for Data's benefit as part of a theme? And another baseball reference? Keep it for Deep Space Nine, please. But this this has high rewatchability written all over it. If you're a Data fan, I can guarantee you'll be as much of one after the most toys, but it's a must-see. Adds a level of complexity to the character with a nasty bad guy to chew up the screen. Here's Adam Ackerman and his particular take on Data's dark turn. I tend to think of the most toys as one of the two most important episodes regarding Data. The other being The Measure of a Man, both of them dealing with slavery. When it comes to the end of The Most Toys, where Data fires this, the disruptor, it's supposed to leave a, wait, how could Data fire to kill him moment? But this, I think, is because people get mixed up in their mind Asmov's three laws of robotics and what Data goes by. Asmov. One, a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Two, a robot must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Whereas what Data said is, I have been designed with a fundamental respect for life in all its forms and a strong inhibition against causing harm to living beings. Nowhere does Data say he cannot kill. The real question I have always had with Data firing the disruptor is the second part of his statement, inhibition against causing harm. While he could logically jump to killing would it still not have made more sense for his programming for him to use his strength, speed, and knowledge of anatomy to quickly and painlessly have killed him instead of using the disruptor, which causes more pain than needed? Next up is Sarek. Uh, this episode rises above its Alzheimer's allegory and truly becomes one of TNG's best, thanks to Mark Leonard's textured performance and Patrick Stewart's rather intense one. First and foremost, however, the return of a character from the original series and movies is a delight, almost heralding the reappearance of Spock. Oh, and we're tantalized with his possible wedding. Leonard is excellent in the role he created all those years ago and gives both a dignified and sympathetic performance. It's indeed tragic to see this great man deteriorate like this. The 
collection supports this well, uh, especially in the Mozart concert, where rack focus is used beautifully to show everyone noticing Sarek's tear. Yeah, who cares if it's a piece of Brahms that makes him break down? Rewatching it, it was ironic to hear Picard saddened that he might not get the chance to share Sarek's thoughts, and the final mind meld scene does not disappoint. Without great actors, this episode would quickly fall apart. But Patrick Stewart pulls a tour de force when he takes on the full brunt of Sarek's Vulcan emotions. Shocking, touching, exhausting to watch. I can't imagine what an actor has to do to work himself into that kind of state. This weakness disgusts me. I hate it! Where is my logic? The various fights breaking out all over the ship are interesting and never get redundant. Wesley pushes some of Geordi's buttons rather well, and the bar brawl is great fun. And not O'Brien's last. Uh, Wesley gets slapped, that's entertaining too, though Beverly's a bit quick to say he hadn't at least deserved her being upset. Outbursts of other emotions might have kept the audience a little more on their toes, but the plot's fine. Sarek's staff is bland, but I guess... Everyone would be compared to some of the actors here. I give this a high. People often talk about how TNG truly started to take off in its fourth season, but with quite a few episodes like Sarek, the third is often underestimated. In fact, I think a lot of people, myself included, tend to mistakenly place such offerings as The Offspring or Sarek in, in the fourth season. TNG got excellent at least half a season before that. This is top-notch. Menage à Troy. Here's a rather ordinary comedy episode. As in Captain's Holiday, when the creators want a lighter adventure, they can usually call on the Ferengi to make less threatening villains. I don't think the Ferengi have been in any really good episodes to date, and this is no different. They're played so foolishly that you never get any sense of danger or tension. Throw in Luxana Troy, who is at best a polarizing character, and you've got a recipe for goulash. And the worst traits of both those elements are brought out in Menage à Troy. So, to begin with the Ferengi, they again act stupidly, easily manipulated through their greed or lust, and worst of all, there only seem to be three of them on the entire ship. They're so ineffective that Tog has his food replicator keyed to his secret access code. Riker can stroll around the ship and find sickbay without encountering any security, and the ship's doctor seems to be able to depose the daemon. The mind probe is the only potentially scary dilemma. No, not the mind probe. But it's so campy. It's as unbelievable as the rest. At the end of the day, the Ferengi only really managed to beam girl out of their clothes. Pretty horrid frocks in any case. Why do the costume people do this to Diana? Then we have Luxana, played more over the top than ever. I mean, the character is already pretty broad, but Majel Barrett plays her even more broadly here, which makes Tog even more stupid, seeing as he can't tell what she's really thinking. She wasn't very strong in her last appearance, Manhunt, but she's just plain aggravating here for me, only dialing it back when she sacrifices herself for her daughter near the end. But that's all too brief. Now, if the kidnapping plot made any sense, then that might help matters. But logic isn't among these writers' friends, or even their acquaintances. Deanna throws a tantrum when her mother treats her like a child, which is very childish and unbecoming in itself, but proceeds to take time off on Beta Z at her mother's estate. So, why the scene? Uh, Beta Z is a Federation world that nonetheless is unable to detect a Ferengi ship beaming people on and off their world. The Ferengi go to the trouble of beaming the ladies out of their clothes, but they're dressed in the very next scene. Again, why? The access code to the replicator? Why would you even need that? 
And while Riker sending a message through static might be ingenious, his choice of ceremonial rhythms is ludicrous when Morse code probably isn't on the Ferengi vocabulary. And he can read Ferengi? Never mind that Wesley uh, has to make that connection when Data is sitting right there. Even such throwaway scenes as Worf finding Loxana formidable are later ignored by having him shake his head disapprovingly. Very, very messy writing. The B-plot concerns Wesley once again escaping the Academy, which seems such a moot point by now. He just doesn't want to go, so he keeps sabotaging his career. It's clear that Wesley doesn't really have what it takes to be a career Starfleet officer, so Picard is making a mistake when he rewards this behavior with a field promotion. At least we don't have to look at those silly pants that don't zip up to the top anymore. There are a couple of good bits buried under here, including they're teasing us with a possible rekindling of the Riker Troy romance. Uh, it's also fun to see Picard get his revenge on Riker for the events of Captain's Holiday. The best is Picard, or really Patrick Stewart, hamming it up, proving his love for Luxana as a ruse to confound Tog. You can see Picard and Stewart are both having fun with this, but it's really a moment you skip to. Never mind the rest. I give it a low. A contrived script, some ham acting, not all of it in character, and ineffectual villains. I'll make this a pretty paltry episode. One good scene does not a good episode make, and the Wesley stuff simply feels tacked on. But for a second opinion, here's Mike Peacock of Justice's First Dawn. I know a lot of people are internally groaning, oh great, it's an episode featuring Lexana. And I know it, it's an involuntary reaction, but the thing is... She actually has moments of being really clever in the episode, along with having a genuinely kind of creepy moment when the doctor in the Ferengi vessel starts investigating and kind of penetrating her mind in an examination. Plus, you get a lot of fun moments with Riker in the episode. You get <laughs> the promise of Wesley being shipped off from the actual Enterprise. Doesn't happen, unfortunately. And probably the other best-known thing from this episode... Captain Picard's superb Shakespearean delivery in negotiations with the Ferengi Daemon, which has spawned possibly one of the single most overutilized meme images for Star Trek The Next Generation. I actually have a lot of fun with this episode, and if you appreciate just light, breezy Star Trek fare, you should probably enjoy this as well. Next up, Transfigurations. Hey, nice to see Christy Henshaw again, though her character is hardly developed. Still, I like to see Julie Warner in this. Jordy seems to have turned to Worf for dating advice, which, while amusing, is more than a little ridiculous. Worth it for the scene where Worf attributes Jordy's new confidence to his tutoring, but that's a small side story, led down by Jordy losing that confidence in later episodes. The A-plot concerns the mysterious John Doe turning into a new life form of energy, I guess that's how it's done. Uh, interesting that we've uh, met so many godlike aliens that say that they once were just like us, but the leap is pretty sudden. It's like a monkey turning into a human overnight. And do these Alconians seem on the cusp of godhood to you? Sunad and his ilk are fascists that you really wouldn't want turned into gods. But there's no sense of any possible negative consequence at the end. Very heavy on the Roddenberry message of humanoids evolving into something great. The future's so bright, I gotta wear shades. But in fact, Transfigurations feels heavily indebted to the original series. It's got the science fantasy element so common in later TOS episodes, required to turn the episode into a moralistic fable where message is more important than logic. Given that you have a messiah figure aboard ship, healing bodies and souls, 
I'm not sure it was a good idea to give the Zalconians some kind of magical choking weapon to boot. How does that thing work? How can John Doe cure it? It hardly makes sense and only exists to turn John into a savior at the end. Though the John Doe character is a nice enough one, his pseudo-romance with Beverly can't go anywhere and we all know it. It's all rather dull, though Gates McFadden plays it very well. She's an impressive naturalistic actress when the script gives her something to work with. I haven't decided if I like that a month passes by during one commercial. That a slow month without occurrence could happen is realistic, but it goes against the usual episode structure. No directorial effort to make the time pass visually, I guess is what I'm saying. I can still give it a medium rewatchability rating. I do seem to have a lot of objections to the episode, but that's because I wanted it to be better. The performances are good and the story is worthy, but it's feeling the end of season fatigue. Still watchable. I'm Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Jean-Luc Picard, Captain of the Starship Enterprise Registry NCC-1701D. You will lower your shields and prepare to transport yourself aboard our vessel. If you do not cooperate, we will destroy your ship. The Best of Both Worlds, Part 1. Well, it hardly comes any better than this. The Borg were a great creation and liable to become a major threat in the lives of our heroes when introducing Q-Who. And unlike the parasites from Conspiracy, that promise is fulfilled. They're back new and improved, with a more interesting goal, assimilation, and spouting their famous dialogue about servicing them, etc. Really, for the first time. The effects are up to the task, repeating what we've seen before, but also opening with a great shot of the rooted-up colony, and later giving us some atmospheric nebula footage. A most brilliant creation is Locutus, very dramatic speaking voice for the Borg, and after Picard's talk about the last tour of the ship with Guinan, you don't really know if the good captain will be able to return in the next season. The first time I saw this, you really didn't know, so no Star Trek series had ever gone four years, so a great time to cement it with an actual cliffhanger, and with Riker being offered captaincy and Shelby looking for her first officer slot on the Enterprise, it didn't take long for rumors of Patrick Stewart's considering leaving the show to crop up. It was a long summer. Uh, part of the reason the episode works so well is the tension that mounts over the course of the hour, ending with those wonderful musical cues after Riker says, fire. From this time forward, you will service us. Mr. Worf, fire. And the to-be-continued card comes up. Those cues are charged with so much tension, I get a rise from them every time. Speaking of the music, I can't review uh, The Best of Both Worlds without mentioning the beautiful Borg theme with its multiple angelic voices. Excellent. As for Commander Shelby, uh, I'm not as taken with her. I have no doubt Elizabeth Dennehy is a fine actress, but she's fallen to playing the strong woman as an overbearing harpy. This is most annoying. It seems to be a tradition on Star Trek for strong women to be portrayed as overly antagonistic for some reason. The Bajoran one, certainly, Tasha, Bellana, uh, even Pulaski, but it seems outmoded. Shelby is instantly dislikable as uh, she goes over Riker's head time after time because we like him, you know? On the flip side, Riker is written as more wishy-washy than he's ever been. It's a bit of manipulation to make his finally taking charge more powerful, but it's a manipulation I can forgive given the rest of the material. If 
Shelby had really become Riker's XO, we could have expected a relationship not unlike Sisko and Kira, with a little more drama aboard ship. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm glad it never happened. But here, you do need an antagonist with a personality, since the Borg can't really provide that. The best scripts have something for the entire cast to do, and that's the case here. Despite the intense use of a guest star, and a good scene for Guinan, they all get a chance to offer useful input. Troy advises Riker on his career, Beverly suggests the Mosquito's approach, etc. After this, there's little chance of the resolution to be as good as the setup, but part one is worth watching on its own. I give it a high. Trek at its best. The best of both worlds completely deserves its reputation. Shelby is a flawed character, but adds to the level of pressure Riker is under, and certainly makes things less predictable. Before we go to break, let's hear from David Ace Gutierrez. Here's what he thought of the episode. So what's great about this episode is the number of things that it does, uh, one of which is a is uh, Riker's character arc. A lot of times in Star Trek, especially with the original series, we wondered why the old crew stuck around so long and why they never accepted promotions elsewhere. You saw that some of that, for example, Chekhov and Rathacon, but for the most part, they stayed the course and stayed on the Enterprise. And we see this addressed with Riker directly because he's offered a captaincy, another captaincy. He'd already been offered one that he turned down previously. And we see Picard encouraging him to do it, to, you know, to finally take the chair, as it were. And Riker being, you know, a little unsure about it, but then nipping at his heels, this Lieutenant Shelby, this this wonderkind, this great Borg specialist who um, is very much a young, a younger version of Riker, who is more than capable of probably becoming uh, Picard's XO, which is really her dream. And of course, we have the first fight with the Borg, which leads to the assimilation of Picard, where he becomes Locutus, which is another fantastic character turn, because that opens up just this number of possibilities for what could happen with Picard, namely that he doesn't come back to become captain in the Enterprise because uh, Riker's given a battlefield commission and becomes her captain. And finally, what, what, what really makes this episode great is its cliffhanger. You have the assimilated Picard slash Locutus uh, ready to assimilate the Enterprise, and the Enterprise with, again, Riker at the at command, um, ordering her to fire upon the Borg ship, what they assume is this fail-safe plan to destroy it. But man, seeing this as a kid, not knowing what was going to come next, having to wait three or four months for the resolution of this thing was it was just incredible television. It was nail-biting. It was smart. Definitely one of the highlights of Star Trek, the next generation for me. Thank you, David. And now we do go to break. After this, the final stretch, the first half of season four. Come back. Back through the Fire and Water Network. Come Back with the supermates. I said, come back. Back to the house of Franklin Stein. The supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Hain. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. 
Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Jean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, master. He thinks I'm Dracula. (laughs) On to season four. And that starts with The Best of Both Worlds, Part 2, funny enough. Uh, The previous season's cliffhanger, well, it's cheaply resolved by having the weapon not work and Riker thus not destroying Picard. But since it solves none of our hero's problems, that's easy to forgive. Tension remains, and a sense of helplessness seldom seen in Star Trek does too. Uh, Guinan, once more, well used, this time demanding the captain's ear and advising Riker to throw out the book. Uh, Great stuff, well played by both actors, and Riker does, showing what I've always loved about him, his consistent originality when it comes to tactics. His ploy is interesting, sending Worf and Data on a ninja mission all their own, and again, keeping all the characters busy. Oh, and they revamped the battle bridge a little. Nice. It gets a little less exciting once Locutus is aboard, turning the action into a lot of talking, but we do learn a great deal about the Borg here, and Picard shows his true strength of will, as belated as he might think it is. There's some cool moments, including the last second save, the destruction of the Borg cube, and... Oh yeah, the ship graveyard at Wolf 359, which is a real shocker. And Shelby is less annoying here, but as Riker shows more leadership, she shows less and less. Suddenly, she she becomes the safe one. She's still debating her orders, but the other way. And of course, in true television fashion, she's Riker's best friend at the end, and she leaves without a second thought for her prized position on the Enterprise. The Borg threat is just as easily dispelled, with an auto-destruct sequence being fortuitously initiated. Yeah, it all ends a bit pat, but there's at least that final moment in Picard's ready room, When he thinks about what he's done, what they did to him, and where he can still hear the collective's voice? It's ambiguous enough that we can read that into it. I I do wish it had given us just a little longer moment. Obviously, I'm giving this a high rewatchability. I don't think it's quite on par with part one, but it's still very solid. And you can't really watch part one without watching part two afterwards, can you? Discussion is irrelevant. And this leads into family. A rather quiet episode after all that action. It's a welcome change of pace, though the three family stories aren't of equivalent value. The jewel of the bunch is obviously the Picard story. Though it starts with some humor, with Troy psychoanalyzing him, and then the meeting with his nephew René, it quickly becomes a character study. We learn a lot about Picard's youth and values, but also about how much he was hurt by the Borg. The best of both worlds definitely had consequences, and they aren't neatly glossed over for once. Picard's final breakdown in the vineyard is wrenching, even if slightly ruined by all the mud on their faces, and we discover that his brother, Robert, isn't such a bad guy after all, pushing his buttons in order to bring about catharsis. It does get a bit schmaltzy in places, as with the final shot of René looking at the stars, but like the rest of the episode, its heart is in the right place. Indeed, if there's one thing about this episode, it's that it is sincere in its sentimentality. And that's enough to forgive it its over-sweetness and, and its massacred French. The B-plot concerns Worf's parents visiting him aboard the Enterprise, and it's mostly played for laughs. Mr. and Mrs. Rojenko are memorable and sweet, but very nearly caricatures. His mother is especially fawning, stressed 
expressing her love for him a little too much, not only in dialogue, but in performance. It gets a bit wearing, though again, it's all very sincere and never quite cloying. The two do make a nice tag team as she keeps her husband from letting his enthusiasm run away with him. O'Brien and Guinan get some good bits in this section. As for the C-plot, it's only a couple of scenes dealing with a long-lost message from Jack to Wesley Crusher. Nothing too original there, but it works, and Gates McFadden, as usual, does the most of her few scenes. Again, this is worthy, heartfelt material, but you can hear the violence playing. We're still on high rewatchability, very nearly medium but the performances are worth it. And the Picard section in particular is a necessary epilogue to the best of both worlds. For more on this episode, we go to Kurt Onstad. This episode has my second favorite moment with Patrick Stewart. My favorite is in the second half of the series, so hopefully I'll get to talk about that sometime in the future. But for now, it's all about the climax of this episode. With the wind raging, the two Picard brothers fight in the mud and vines until finally the captain breaks down, explaining what happened to him when he became one of the Borg. Seeing Captain Picard covered in mud, sobbing and pitying himself, shows off Stuart's Shakespearean chops. As in a lesser actor's hands, this scene would come off as laughable and pathetic but instead, it's one of the most gut-wrenching moments on television. I tried so hard. But I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't good enough. I should have been able to stop them. I should have. I should So, my brother is a human being after all. Next up, Brothers. Brothers is really in two parts. The first is this really cool sequence in which Data is possessed and takes over the Enterprise. It's great for his character, but not so good for the rest of the crew, who seem unable to think of anything that would stop Data. The battle bridge and shuttlecraft are only two of the solutions they simply forget about here. And while Data is rightly superhuman in Brothers, it seems like the ship itself is much too vulnerable to take over. Should you really be able to fake Picard's voice, for example? The second part of the show is about Dr. Sung. He's not only alive, but has recalled Data to give him an emotion chip. Well, we sort of know he can't get it in the end, but Lore arriving on the scene to take it away is a nice surprise. Brent Spiner plays all three roles here, and he really gives Lore a more sympathetic side as the evil android refuses to believe his father is dying. Lore is too unstable to remain a nice guy, however, and he'll destroy everything before too long. Spiner is unrecognizable as Sung, and you almost have to wonder why they had to go through all that trouble if you couldn't tell it was him. Still, once you realize it is him, you can't help but applaud the technical work. I did feel like there wasn't much happening in this section, though. Perhaps I was spoiled by the action and simply found the second half of the show to just plot along, but Spiner does good work in all three roles, and we do learn a great deal about Data's origins. Speaking of plotting, there's also this whole subplot about two fighting brothers aboard ship and one of them somehow getting deathly ill thanks to the other's prank. It's by the numbers TNG Family Fair, something for Beverly and Troy to do, but not much else. The moral that brothers forgive opens the door for future lore episodes, really to Data's detriment, and seems to be the dramatic purpose of the subplot, but it otherwise feels quite irrelevant. Gets us to a medium high, uh, very close to high rewatchability, as this is an important and even at times cool data episode, but it flounders a little with the pacing and the humdrum subplot. 
the quality couldn't last because we're up to suddenly human. I understand that TNG is all about family, as opposed to TOS's friendship theme, but while it usually works when we're dealing with the main characters' families, shows about other people's turn out deathly dull. As was the case with the bonding, suddenly Human asks us to care about some guest stars, and sorry, but I find Jono to be a waste of screen time. These Talarians and there are already many species with a similar name, have a most annoying culture between their mourning lamentations, dreadful electronic music, and contempt of women. Endar is a better character, more thoughtful than you would give the race credit based on the example given by their teens, and his scenes do resonate truly. This is no doubt a credit to Sherman Howard who plays him, but Chad Allen, Jono, doesn't quite have the same acting chops. Then again, the psychology of the character is pretty badly written, with some over-the-top repressed memories crippling him. It's pretty melodramatic, and he may be badly directed as well, if I go by that stabbing scene where he just seems to plant the dagger into the bed and not Picard. And what's with Starfleet in this episode? Where's the respect for other cultures? Isn't it hypocritical to embrace Worf but not let Jono live in a different culture? The physical abuse issue is just a red herring to push things along, but it never pans out and it seems both misplaced and slightly offensive. Picard finally realizes what is the right thing to do, but he should have seen it from the start. This is just one of the many out-of-character moments in the episode. I mean, racquetball? Since when? Why not bring Jono to the holodeck where he can actually run along a river or whatever actually relaxes him instead of inventing a sport for Picard? Just to blow the effects budget on a glowing ball? Why does he even forbid the kid his music while he's not around? And how does Jono get into the captain's quarters in the middle of the night shift? I don't even buy Picard's discomfort with children in this episode, not after his warming up to Wesley and true rapport with Rene just a few episodes ago. Fun to see him squirm when Troy gives him the assignment, but really, since when is she in charge? Everyone except Picard, Troy, and Crusher only get token scenes. Worf and Riker might have made better mentors for Jono, and Wesley could have been contrasted with him, but nope. Just a boring slapstick scene for the latter two and Data. When we finally saw Geordi, I was actually startled awake. This is a terrible use of the regulars, Picard included. You see where I'm going with this? Low rewatchability, seemingly written by someone with only a passing familiarity with the characters and ethics of the show, and a muddled message about abuse. Pass on it. <laughs> Up next, Remember Me, a very strange reality bender. Remember Me is one of, actually... Very few Crusher episodes made during the series' run, and probably one of the best, by virtue of having her in practically every scene. When you know the premise to begin with, yes, you do see it coming when she disappears from engineering, but I don't think you're meant to upon first viewing. It's a fairly short scene and quickly forgotten, especially since the creators wisely decide to still have Wesley's experiment featured as a possible cause of the problems even in Beverly's reality. And there's a lot of both tension and humor to be had with the disappearing crew, as things get more and more absurd and eerie. My favorite bits are when uh, running the ship becomes nigh impossible, but everything is still justified in the minds of everyone but Beverly. The two of us roaming about the galaxy in the flagship of the Federation, no crew at all. We've never needed a crew before. At times, she gets a bit strident, forced to play the same emotion for an extended period, culminating in a forced scene where she describes crew members to Picard almost in series Bible terms. And again, they try to have her confess something to Picard, only to interrupt her mid-sentence. 
enough already with that thing. But once she's alone, there's a great sequence as she asks questions of the computer, revealing the nature of the problem and the universe. She makes a great detective, and we are right there with her, never questioning why she's verbalizing everything. Of course, by that time, we know the truth ourselves, and I'm almost sorry to get the revelation, because I know it's going to be a lot of technobabble. If it had been only revealed at the very end, it would have been something of a cheap deus ex machina, so it was probably hard to gauge. The way the revelation is made, however, is really cool. As we cross through the vortex ourselves, the vortex effect is pretty simple, but it does the job and has Beverly exit the bubble in a most dramatic way. The return of the traveler shows him in a most boring light. Why does he speak so slowly? But uh, it means Wesley's destiny is still a concern for writers. Overall, the episode hinges on how well Dr. Crusher can handle being in the driver's seat. And she does very well, indeed. A far cry from the sappy character of season one. We're back to high rewatchability. I find that even when you know what's going on, this is still very fun to watch. Yes, sure, it's a mix of zen and technobabble, but Beverly's reality can be enjoyed for what it is. A cool reality bender with plenty of suspense. Then there's Legacy. It's no secret I wasn't Tasha's biggest fan, and revisiting her past indeed interests me less than any other characters. Tasha's home planet has some interesting bits of design to it, the matte painting, the oriental neon sign, but it's basically a random confluence of gray corridors. In fact, there's little to distinguish it from other by the numbers Civil War slash terrorist-ridden worlds as seen in Too Short a Season or The High Ground, and no character is given any kind of psychology except the main guest star. As far as guest stars go, Beth Toussaint is a bit soap opera-y. Once again, the show turns out a strong female character that thinks strength is a measure of how stridently they can deliver macho dialogue. I can see the crew's initial mistrust since she looks nothing like Tasha, more of a Linda Hamilton type, really, though they both have questionable severe haircuts. However, once we get later into the story, everyone lowers their guard and we're meant to believe she's endeared herself to them doesn't quite work because the audience scarcely cares. The only thing saving the dull guest star and even duller plot is Data's story arc. This is really a story about him and his learning a lesson about trust and friendship. Once again, we start things off with a poker scene, this time to illustrate uh, that the android isn't as naive as he once was. But by the end, he's shown not to be as wise as he thought. His conversation with Riker at the end is really the gem of the piece. And once again, it seems like Data protests too much when he claims not to be hurt by Ishara's betrayal. I am an android. It is not possible for me to be injured in that fashion. Look, I'm just going to give this a medium. Data is eminently watchable, but the acting and writing aren't up to par as far as the guest stars are concerned. So it's even a low medium, but it's still worth it for everyone's favorite android. And now Reunion, perhaps the most important Klingon episode of all time. It not only features prominently in Worf's story arc, but also in the Klingon empires. Looks like Jonathan Frakes once again pulled a winner. You know, the real directors must have been getting jealous. Just the return of Kaelair would have been enough for me. And though she's not quite as electric as in the emissary here, she, she is shown to be supremely intelligent and perceptive. Not only that, but she faces both Garon and Duras with perfect aplomb. After some of the strong women we've been getting lately, in quotation marks like Ashara Yar and Shelby, Kilair is a breath of fresh air. So now what? I have to perform some ridiculous ritual to talk to you? uncompromising and smart, but no less sexy or feminine. The appearance of Alexander with her adds to her conflict with Worf, but unfortunately, it's hard to accept this Klingon child. 
He's much too old to have been fathered a year ago, and the child actor basically doesn't act. He's as stoic as Worf, perhaps, but his tiny body has none of the expected ruggedness. Although you could argue he's pretty rugged for a one-year-old. Uh, hindsight is speaking here because I know Alexander shows to come will be most annoying. But I just can't agree that having Worf in TGIF-style family hijinks was a good idea for the character. The other disappointing thing about Kaelair's appearance is that she has to die at the end. She has to for Worf to take his revenge and complete his arc here, but it's a great loss to the Star Trek universe. And this is the second time I've been sorry to see Susie Plaxon's character leave, Dr. Solar being the other. Still, uh, her death was dramatically necessary, and Duress's death is the result. I never really liked the character, so I'm happy to see him go. His death at the pointy end of a battleth is simply eye-popping. Talk about not compromising Worf's character. And note that this is the first appearance of the weapon, and it immediately gives Worf and his culture a lot more texture. It's unique, it's graceful, it's a wonderful creation. We also get a huge helping of Klingon politics and traditions as Kimpek is slowly assassinated and two warriors claim his throne. Picard handles himself very well here, running an investigation, playing the challengers against each other and not letting himself be intimidated. Duras is definitely proven to be in league with the Romulans, but are we sure Garon wasn't the one that poisoned Kimpek? These ambiguities lift the episode even higher since there is no truly honorable choice here for Picard to make and no choice at all by the end. Robert O'Reilly is immediately memorable as the snaky, creepy, manipulative Gauron. Love it when he gives Duras the look at the hint of Romulan conspiracy. With this new face for the Klingon Empire, you know the next Klingon stories won't be boring. Oh, and the modern Klingon cruiser making its first appearance here is pretty sweet. We're back to high rewatchability, the Klingon arc is still producing winners and could easily be watched in sequence as a kind of miniseries. A must for the continuity and the drama. Here's Derek William Crabb for his take on Reunion. Reunion, if IMDb doesn't fail me, is the second episode that Jonathan Frakes directs. It is essentially a Worf spotlight episode. Worf is met by Kalar, an old flame of his, who brings his son, who he didn't know he had, to the Enterprise. And the actual plot is that Kalar is a Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire, and Picard has become embroiled in a power struggle between two different factions in the Klingon Empire, one led by Galron, the other led by Duras, and he is there to mediate the succession of the new High Chancellor position. There's a certain sardonic nature that Susie Plaxton has as Kalar that maybe I think I found familiar in some ways in some of my own relationships in life, and also the father and son dynamic between Worf and Alexander and being introduced to the world of a warrior. I think for the most part, this episode is a fairly atypical whodunit murder mystery. They're trying to find out who was responsible for the poisoning, the unhonorable poisoning of the Klingon High Chancellor in order to succeed him. But I think when Kalar is murdered in her quarters and she points the finger at Duras, this is where that entire story comes screeching to a halt. And I think this is why this is one of my favorite episodes, because Worf just cuts through all the bullshit, goes over there, and stabs the f***ing guy to death with the bat left. And that, in and of itself, 
gets my blood pumping, and I think it's a reason why it's one of the standout episodes for me. You get viscerally involved with the lead character, and you feel a sense of catharsis once he excises his nemesis. It's probably not typical of the philosophy of Star Trek, but it is typical of the Klingon philosophy, and you feel a sense of vindication and justice by the conclusion of the episode. Worf can now reveal himself as his father to his young son, Alexander. You know, I, I thought it was Brian Bonsall for all the episodes, but I guess it turns out in this episode, Alexander was not played by Brian Bonsall of Family Ties fame. I always kind of remember being told, hey, that's the little kid from Family Ties. And you went, oh yeah, that is the little kid from Family Ties. Man, I do love when he goes over to that ship and batlets the hell out of that guy. Man, Duras is a slime ball. He totally deserved it. This is a wonderfully directed episode. Like, you understand why Jonathan Frakes had a talent for directing and would go on to direct more episodes of The Next Generation and the First Contact feature film. And even now, he's still directing to this day. He's doing episodes of Orville and Discovery. I can't say enough good things about the direction and the episode. And it's nice that he didn't seem to have, you know, some people seem to have that kind of ego trip where it's like written, starring, directed by. And in this case, you know, clearly the focus is Worf. I have to give it up to Frakes for not falling into that trap. Overall, a great episode. A lot of emotional connection and visceral feelings in this episode. Now, how about Future Imperfect? Though alternate future episodes have become a staple of Star Trek, this is really the first story to do it. Uh, even if that future turns out to be a fake based on Riker's thoughts. This kind of thing is inherently cool, and it works on that basis. You know, more aliens aboard, Geordi's eyes, everyone rising in rank, pretty much expected, of course. There's little sense of surprise throughout that fantasy sequence, uh, but the future insignia pins that show rank are a highlight. And of course, there's Riker's mysterious wife, Min. Uh, the revelation that this is Minuet is a very nice surprise. Too bad Carolyn McCormick couldn't be in the show more substantially. It's well hidden by a more Asian-sounding nickname, I guess. This is what makes Riker finally clue in, and then and he then goes on to destroy the fantasy by overworking the system. All the justifications he gets back are part of the fun, and he even gets to tell Picard to shut up. The second reality we're presented seems more real. That's a cool giant holodeck. And normally, we should take this at face value, uh, much as Riker does, but it's a double twist, and this too is a fantasy, unfortunately. It is one that devolves into running through corridors from foolish Romulans, uh, like a guard gets his disruptor knocked out of his hand by the kid, you know. When the first half hour of the show had some flair, the Romulan base sequence is unartfully directed, with Riker sitting potato-like in a chair for an entire conversation. The kid is the only common element, and it turns out that he's creating the situation. Looking back at it, you can see how events conspired to send Riker back to his son, etc., but perhaps not enough. Or is Barash content with watching Riker act out some adventures? The kid's better than most of the children we've gotten lately, though his acting is far from convincing. Chuck it up to his really being an alien, I guess. I get the feeling TNG was a major employer of under-18s around this time. Unfortunately, I don't much enjoy the idea of giving each crew member a child or a, in quotes, child or a kid brother or whatever. On a show where the adult guest stars are always up to the task, the kids sure aren't. It's all supposed to be so sweet, but it's rather cloying and seems to target my mom more than me, you know? That's a purely personal reaction and opinion, of course. Getting back to Barash, the final revelation is fine and the heavy alien makeup is interesting and different, though it couldn't possibly stand up to more involved scenes. Riker's final line, To me, you'll always be Jean-Luc. 
It was just terrible. Uh, it sounds forced and doesn't ring true at all. It's just more of that sweet, cloying family drama. Of note is the return of Tomalak, always fun, even though he's not really there, and the first appearance of Nurse Agawa, who must have existed on the real ship to be part of Riker's neural baggage here. I'm going to call it a medium-high. Though it has a lot of entertaining concepts, it comes off as rather insubstantial, though there's enough here for me to recommend it. Next up, Final Mission. Yeah, it's Wesley's final mission as a regular member of the cast. And it's actually a good one for Wesley, but not really for anyone else. He gets to accompany Picard on a mission that goes awry, uh, comment on the times they've had together, save the captain's life, and have a somewhat cool confrontation with an energy creature or device. The episode also has some nice outdoor photography with the alien desert, a very welcome change from Vasquez Rocks, or various botanical gardens and the cave set, which we still visit. The desert has real scope and makes the story more epic. The story isn't all great, however. Durgo could have been made into a stronger character, for example, and he's just a fool that gets himself killed in the end. So much for the tough shuttle pilot role model. Loose ends abound, and we never learn who or what put the force field and sentinel around the water fountain. It's all just a technical conundrum for Wesley to resolve by pushing some buttons. The cave-in, necessary to put Picard in grave danger and force Wesley to become a man, is very badly staged and edited, with Picard pushing Wesley out of the way, then standing there looking up. This is all somewhat redeemed by a heartfelt ending that makes you feel good about Wesley, and not just because he's leaving. Unlike, say, Tasha's farewell episode. You will be missed. And then there's the B-plot. The Enterprise gets caught on an errand of mercy so that conveniently it can't save Wesley and Picard until the A-plot has run its course. TV drama is often contrived like this, but you brush it off when the results are entertaining. They aren't here. I've had a lot more fun with the CCG's radioactive garbage scow card than I have watching this part of Final Mission. The runny-nosed aliens are some of the ugliest to come out of the Star Trek hair and makeup trailer, and the problems and solutions are all technobabble. Dull, dull, dull. Still, this is a medium, an episode of two parts, really. Wesley's farewell story is more than okay. It looks and feels good despite its problems. The scow story is, well forgettable garbage it's time i accept the truth captain and resign a ship's counselor the loss there aren't a lot of opportunities for troy driven episodes so why make her thoroughly unlikable when one actually comes along troy has always had a childish spoiled side when her mother was around we often revert to old behaviors when thrown in with our families but here it is unleashed tenfold She's insubordinate, bitter, condescending, ungrateful, and veers towards offensive as she wails about how disabled she is. Her attitude is totally unbecoming of a Starfleet officer. I mean, get over yourself. It's not that I think Marina Sirtis isn't playing it right. Indeed, she's pretty uncompromising about her portrayal, fearlessly making Troy unlikable. But this stuff should never have been written for her. By the end, you get the very real sense that Diana is an emotion junkie in withdrawal. Now please watch it again. Tell me I'm wrong. The therapy stuff with Janet Brooks is all meant to mirror Diana's situation, but we could have been spared this as well. It's boring and it's hackneyed. The B-plot about two-dimensional creatures isn't a real winner either, even if I am a big fan of that Cosmos episode where Carl Sagan has thin squares living in a roofless house, as well as the deeper discussions about two-dimensionality in Edwin Abbott's Flatland. Though it ends with an interesting behavioral approach that finally uses Diana well, it's all technobabble until then. Staring at screens, pushing buttons, and trying to start the engines. Steeped in higher physics, but dull. And I guess some wouldn't use the but 
here. It's also silly that no one wants to connect Diana's loss and the creatures. Obviously, they're connected. And yet, I can't totally pan this one. I thought I would, but I found everybody else's performance just right. And enough to marginally recommend the episode. Troy is insufferable, but anytime the other regulars have a scene with her, they shine. Beverly's knowing hurt. Picard's stuffy anecdotes and anxious fiddling. Guinan's reverse psychology. Riker's being there for her no matter what. Data's perking up at Diana's new approach. They all hit just the right note. There's some amusement to seeing everyone else play counselor to an infuriated Troy who knows all the tricks. And the discussion about what it feels like not to have empathic powers, actually informing the opposite, is interesting. It reaches medium-low rewatchability. If you haven't seen this one in a while... I'm pretty sure I've been avoiding it myself. It's a lot better than you remember, but Troy is still hard to take, so it's far from a must-see. Second Officer's Personal Log, Stardate 44390.1. Record entry for transmission to Commander Bruce Maddox, Cybernetics Division, Daystrom Institute. We've reached Data's Day, a massively important episode despite its lighthearted nature. Uh, It purports to show us a day in the life of the android, but winds up showing us a day in the life of the ship. This gives the creators a chance to show us all the mundane stuff you would normally care about during a normal episode. This is a ship with a barbershop, a shopping center, an arboretum, a nursery, and pets. Between weddings and births, the ship seems very much alive here. This is also a nice follow-up to The Measure of a Man, using a letter to Maddox to readdress some issues about Data's growth. The idea that he could marry, for example, prefigures in theory. Some of the interior monologue makes Data out to be more clueless than he's been in a long time as to human behavior, but when it isn't exactly funny, it's still either brief or sweet. Still, mangling idioms as he does gets a bit heavy at times. But that's a minor complaint as the episode jumps from scene to scene quickly enough that we can't dwell on these things. So though ostensibly a Data episode, there's a lot to be said for the rest of the cast here. They all get their moments. Jordy is perhaps less well-served, as usual, being called the lunkhead and arguing with the barber. Uh, Troy shows some humor in her scene. Picard welcomes a newborn aboard in a very quiet and sweet moment. Riker charms an ensign at tactical. Uh, Worf is a hoot when he contemplates buying a crystal swan and gives his views on human weddings. O'Brien seems to take Wesley's place in the cast as he marries Keiko and shows all the no-nonsense attitude we'll come to appreciate later. Rosalind Chow makes a fine first appearance and I look forward to more from her. Note also the first appearance of Spot, though it looks very different from other appearances, so it may not be the same cat. Uh, The cornerstone of these character moments, however, is Beverly's. She's revealed to be the dancing doctor here, finally giving her an interest beyond Wesley's welfare. And not a moment too soon, I guess. Her dips into the world of performance arts are a great quirk in this oh-so-technical universe. Beyond what it means to Crusher's character, the scene never fails to elicit a laugh for me as Data steps on her toes, holds her too tight, and grins like a crazy mannequin. The episode isn't all laughs, however, as there is a rather intense Romulan plot in the background. Other comedy episodes have aimed for outright comedy and failed too often relying on guest characters we care nothing about. Here, the comedy comes from the principals themselves and is highlighted by more serious events happening in the story itself. It helps that the Romulans are well used here, showing just how devious they are by having a deep cover operative on the Federation side for decades, who becomes one of its most respected diplomats. 
Only seeing things from Data's point of view adds to the mystery, and and Seelock is entertainingly curt with everyone. At the end, our side has lost, and Picard has to hurry back home. The use of Romulans here in a reversal of the Enterprise Incident's plotline is well chosen, since at the wedding, Picard pays homage to Kirk's own words at the start of Balance of Terror, the very first Romulan episode. I give this a high. The comedy works for once, and tension isn't sacrificed to make it happen. Totally recommend, and you get a couple of first appearances as a bonus. Andy Capellish gives us his take on the episode. Both the first appearance of Data's cat, Spock, Spot? I almost said Spock, and Keiko O'Brien. And it is the wedding of Chief O'Brien. Keiko is having second thoughts, she gets cold feet, and that plot is very interesting. There's also a subplot about a Romulan infiltrator who is posing as a Vulcan, and that is a major drag on the episode and is is terrible. Uh, But all the parts that focus on Keiko and O'Brien and Data's interactions are wonderful, and uh, they all resolve in a very interesting and satisfying way, but less so for the B-plot. The episode is really nicely narrated, of course, by Brett Spiner, and it is probably one of my favorite Star Trek episodes I've seen of TNG so far. And I don't know how to end these, so you're just going to have to edit it, Siskoid. Next up, The Wounded. It's all about the prejudice born out of war, and in that sense, is just as much about Iraq as it is about Vietnam, Korea, or World War II. Can we let go our hate for the other side? Can we forgive individuals for what their people or government have done in the past? There seems to be something fortuitous in the casting of Rosalind Chow in the role of Keiko, since she had previously played Sun Li on M.A.S.H. and plays a Japanese character here. Since her first appearance was just an episode ago, I can't help but think the creators must have given O'Brien an Asian bride as a way of linking the wounded with similar situations from our recent past. If Data's Day didn't convince you O'Brien had truly joined the cast, you have to admit it by now. This is his story. We learn more about the character here than in all his other appearances combined. Not only do we check in with the culture shock happening in his marriage which is quite fun by itself, but we meet his former captain and hear about his time fighting in a war with the Cardassians. His prejudice is shockingly honest, but is also rooted in the trauma of the first time he killed a man. It's not you I hate, Cardassian. I hate what I became because of you. Powerful stuff, and it certainly doesn't mince words, setting up, as we can now realize it does, the moral ambiguities in Deep Space Nine. Benjamin Maxwell is another of the wounded, and though well-played, the character is a little broader. We care for him through O'Brien, but it's always hard to relate to characters who've gone off the deep end. I do miss seeing other crew members from the Phoenix, since it makes it seem like Maxwell is acting alone. Still, we do feel for him, and as it turns out, he's probably right. As for Cardassians, their first appearance holds enough history to warrant their reuse later, and though these early uniforms are almost laughable, especially in hindsight, the basic Egyptian scarab design is already there. Mark Alamo plays on the script's ambiguities, defining the race as devious. This is the model for all to come, outwardly nice and polite, but hiding dangerous secret agendas. For example, it's hard to tell if his glin was ordered to ferret out the lower decks only to be publicly chastised for it. Picard gets the final word at the end, calling Masset on everything. Take this message to your leader's gull, Masset. We'll be watching. Yes, Picard, so will we, as this is a most intriguing race. They have a style similar to the Romulans, but less historical baggage. I give it a high rewatchability index 
It's a marvelous O'Brien episode and certainly important for any fan of Deep Space Nine. Beyond that, it's an insightful human story with some interesting design. Ryan Blake sings the praises of Ben Maxwell in this clip. The Wounded, or the PTSD PSA episode, concerns the plight of two Starfleet officers, Chief O'Brien of the Enterprise and Captain Robert Maxwell of the USS Phoenix. Both of them are suffering from PTSD. O'Brien, because he accidentally killed a Cardassian soldier during a thing called the Cyclic Three Massacre when the Federation and Cardassia were at war. Somehow he managed to be on the front line of an intergalactic war and only killed one person, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. But that's not to take away from his plight. He was handed a phaser that was set on kill, he didn't know, and he disintegrated a Cardassian soldier. However, as he is a 24th century guy, he's well-adjusted, and although he does have PTSD, he's kind of getting over it. Captain Maxwell lost his family, and eventually, I suppose, breaks, and invades Cardassia, wages a one-man war to try and expose the Cardassian war drums to the Federation and Starfleet, and give them warning. Now, eventually he is caught, and put in a Starfleet medical facility to be treated for his condition. However, when he gets out, I hope that the Starfleet Chief of Operations gives him a medal, promotes him to Rear Admiral Lieutenant General in charge of all operations involving sneaky alien races. I hope the President of the Federation gives him a full pardon and a letter saying, whoops, sorry, should have listened to you. Because we find out later on that the uh, captain was absolutely right about the Cardassians. Picard tacitly acknowledges this at the end of the episode, but Starfleet doesn't really do much. In two seasons' time, Picard will be tortured mercilessly by the Cardassians because they are planning an incursion into Federation space, proving Maxwell right. Let's not forget, at this stage, they're also occupying Bajor and torturing and uh, ruthlessly exterminating the Bajoran people, proving him right. And uh, let's not forget, they do enthusiastically join the Dominion in, the, in Deep Space Nine in a couple of seasons' time, proving him right. The last episode on the docket is Devil's Due. TNG is settling into the trap of offering up a teaser that has nothing to do with the plot in this one and everything to do with the theme, which seems awfully fortuitous. As with the poker bluffing scene in Brothers, here Data explores Scrooge's fear, touching on Ardra's exploitation of that same emotion. It's an interesting subplot for Data, sure, but do we need these links? And even more importantly, do we need them referenced later on? A minor quibble, since I always find Devil's Due entertaining, though it is, by all accounts, a rather averagely written episode. Marta Dubois does a savvy job as the roguish Ardra, real name unknown, extremely confident and sexy. As with Vash, the character type infuriates Picard, but he doesn't fall for this one. Uh, instead, she needles him to the point where it becomes personal. Fun, as is her bag of tricks, especially when it goes out of bounds of the basic three that are explained. Appearing as an ensign after being forcibly beamed off, for example. Courtroom stuff featuring Picard is usually a winner, and again, it's a spot of fun here, especially with Data as the judge. The advocate will refrain from making her opponent disappear. Owing more to Matlock than more serious legal shows like L.A. Law, to use references from the time. But despite the conundrum being an interesting and unusual one, Ardra hamming it up effectively, and an amusing courtroom climax with Picard in good form, the story has plot holes you can drive a runabout through. For example, if Picard could explain her tricks in the conference room, why can't he do so in the courtroom later? How does Ardra beam through the Enterprise's shields? How did Ardra hope to keep her claim on a Starfleet vessel? What would she have done with Picard's soul? 
Why are the Vintaxians so dense, since, as Picard demonstrates, Ardra had little to do with their golden age? The thousand years of peace and prosperity are a dubious concept, as is Ardra's getting a hold of the legend, as is the peaceful Vintaxians not being annexed by the Klingons 70 years ago, as is the idea that the guards can come in and arrest her like they knew she wasn't really the devil anymore, etc., etc. But th this is... Look, this is harmless fluff, and I can't help but enjoy it as is. The ending seems to open the door for later appearances, but unlike Harry Mudd, Ardra never returned. Sadly. For me, this is a medium high. Though the reflex is to reserve high rankings for important episodes, I shouldn't be shy about expressing enjoyment of some of these standalone tales, right? Give me Ardra over Vosh any day. So this brings us to the halfway point in TNG's series reviews. I guess I'll be back in, what, six months or so to, to do the other half and the TNG movies? I mean, you, you have time to recuperate. This has been so long that I am gonna pass on uh, the usual Star Trek news and feedback segments. We'll pick those back up in the next episode. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And we'll talk again in about a month's time. I gotta rest my voice. So until then, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs> <laughs>